I'm hitting record, Dan. Here we go. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy, too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Welcome to the broadcast. I'm David Feldman, davidfeldmanshow.com. Please uh, friend me on Facebook, follow me on Twitter. Let's go to the newsroom where our very own Dan Frankenberger is standing by. Hello there, Dan. Hello, David. Um, tonight, Friday, March 5th, we have office hours and hours. Yes. And what is, is office off- hours now? Because we do office hours every Friday starting at 8. But what is office hours and hours? Well, office hours is every Friday night. But once a month on Friday night, we do office hours and hours where we go 24 hours of office hours and the schedule this time looks like it's going to be more like 25 or 26 hours. So uh, stop on by, go to the davidfeldmanshow.com website and click the office hours button and you can get registered. And uh, we have a a special uh, announcer here this week for this. Ken Mann has written a song. That's right. Let me let me play it. Uh, Hang on for one second. Uh, keep talking while I find it. This is okay. I have uh, I have in front of me a, a list of some of the the folks that have signed up to, it, it, uh, and it's truly remarkable. It, it, it's yeah. lectures, comedy, conversation, and uh, and we're, we're Ken Man. Yep, we're kicking it off at eight o'clock, where uh, we have a, a potential guest or two. Then David's going to do his greetings and convocations, and maybe we'll slip in the uh, complaint department there. Um, then we have Professor John's going to do some analysis of political songs. Texas Tom Weber uh, continuing on and maybe wrapping up his uh, spirituality and activism series, which that's been a, a, a big hit for sure. Um, at midnight, Professor Ian Faluna is going over Ken Wilber's uh, integral theory 
Mm. So that's going to be great. And then Dan Nauman at one. And it's then, just great. It's just great. Yeah. And we're going to do uh, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is going to be there with uh, a lecture on the Mies Commission. He's going to be discussing pornography. Who is Ken Mann? He's coming to you right now, straight from the closet. Straight from the closet. <laughs> so, and where is he? He's in Norway, Sweden, Finland? Oh, Scotland. He's in Scotland, and he does show tunes from his closet. This is a song he's prepared for office hours and hours. Tonight at 9 p.m. Oh, that is not it. Okay. <laughs> is it this? Hey there, Feldo. Fellow listeners. Non-academics. Feldo parishioners. Here we are at office hours. And I can see that only three of you've had showers. I'd like to bring up a frequent complaint. Your podcast's boring. It lacks all restraint. It requires perseverance. And at best I'd say it is an inconvenience. Long-time listeners are frustrated. When we ask questions, we get berated. <laughs> David's controlling the conversation. He's always seeking sycophantic adulation. You see from way back, he's been a lefty. The lead speech writer for Hubert Humphrey. He's always ready to fight the good fight. Just as long as you buy tickets on Eventbrite. Cancel this show. We all know that it needs to go. We all should take the time to find a better waste of time. Cancel this show. There's better places we could go. The C-SPAN weekend feed or watching a car crash on the street. Wait a minute. There's a Discord. Oh, wow. So there are others. Uh, hi, guys. Feeling this board. I know Liam is such a... Also friendly. That's a great pie. Far left of center. workers control Mr. Feldman, kindly disregard this letter. Yeah, fuck him. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Ken, 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 man. We met him over uh, at office hours. Looking forward to that. Well, this is exciting. A lot going on. You know, they, they had to shut down Congress today for fear of another insurrection. That means we're lucky enough to be joined by the Speaker of the House. Please welcome Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Thank you. Hello, Thank Nancy you, Pelosi. Thank you, Wolf. It's David Feldman. But thank you. Thank you. Uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule. As you know, we do a thing called Diabetic Fury, and people pay extra to get a, uh, a shout-out from a famous person. They, they, there's, a, there's a special tier, a level, they pay extra, and we get, a, we get a famous person like you, the Speaker of the House, to give a, a special thank you. And this first shout-out from the Speaker of the House goes to Daniel Frankenberger. Well, well, good, good evening, Daniel Frankenfurter. Yeah, that would be, uh, uh, you got the name wrong. That would be uh, Frankenberger, not Frankenfurter. No, you're wrong, Wolf, okay? 
Okay. I'm very disappointed to say you're just completely wrong. Oh. Are, are the Russians involved here? Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe the Chinese? No. No. You may want to ask yourself that. Uh, okay, we're, we're just trying to thank people for coming to last month's Diabetic Fury. I don't know why you need to keep accusing the Russians and the Chinese of things. Because they're darker skinned than the British and the Germans. That, that's how it works. Our, our system of checks and balances. I, I just want to make it clear, Air Frankenfurter. His name is Dan- uh, uh, D- Daniel Frankenfurter. Air Frankenfurter. Even though the, the sexual harassment claims against Governor Como are credible, okay. I'm not going to take them too seriously. In, investigations like these must have due process and respect for everyone involved. Well, that's good. Except Tara Reid. What? Look, look, we wave flags. We wave our flags in honor of democracy for the people, for the voters. Why? To protect the integrity of our storied democracy's sacred system of checks and balances. I'm sorry. (laughs) What was that? Our storied storied democracy's sacred system of checks and balances, setting strict strategic standards of safety for the necessary continuations of sustainable staff activities. What? Our heroes, our heroes, heroes, the first responders responding firstly, heroes. Wes went to Wales to watch walruses. (laughs) May I have the next shout out, please? Yes, this next shout out uh, from Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi goes to Jennifer Pelkey. Strategic genius and master legislator Nancy Pelosi. Say it. Say what? Strategic genius and master legislator Nancy Pelosi. You want me to say that? Yes. Please uh, get, we have our next shout out from, how does it go? Strategic genius. Strategic <laughs> genius and master legislator, Nancy Pelosi. Please uh, say it. Okay. Strategic genius and master legislator, Nancy Pelosi. Yes. Precisely. <laughs> I am a master legislator. Yet, when we came back late from the Hyacinth Garden, they called me Belladonna, Mm. Lady of the Rocks. Shall we play a game of of chess? Pressing lidless eyes? Get yourself some teeth, wolf. Sandwich papers, silk handkerchiefs, boxes, and silver, silver cigarette sacks. Silver what? Silver cigarette sacks. <laughs> what? What? 
what is that? What is that whistling sound? Do you have birds? Well, I'm sorry, but that's that's just a nearby sap sucking sap sucking seed eater from Sausalito. Why do you ask? I, I, I'm sorry. Did you? What was that again? A sap sucking seed eater from what is it? What, from what? Sausalito. What kind a of bird? Sap, a sap sucking. <laughs> Seed eater from Sausalito. Okay. From Sausalito. They're, they're a native species, native to the nearby estuary. Okay. Well, well um, first of all, to yeah. answer your question, yes. let me circle back. Circle back to Jennifer Pelkey. Yes, yeah, she gave a lot of money for your shout out. We should all show suitable solidarity with Jennifer. Yes. And for that reason, I have added an extra $777,000 in 17 cents award for her missing Swiss Staffordshire Spaniels. I'm sorry, you're, you're saying you're, I didn't quite hear you, you're adding what? I'm adding to, to the stimulus to the sti- yes for that reason to I, the stimulus I'm package added, you're adding what the stimulus package has added the what an, the what stimulus has added an extra seven hundred and seventy seven thousand dollars in seventeen cents award for her missing Swiss Staffordshire <laughs> Spaniels. I, I didn't know her Swiss Stratfordshire Spaniels were missing. How many? Yeah, seven, seven Swiss Staffordshire Spaniels. Jennifer, seven Swiss Staffordshire Spaniels are missing. And who took her seven Swiss Stratfordshire Spaniels? Miscreants. Who? Miscreants, absconded. Miscreants. Miscreants absconded with seven, seven Swiss Spaniels. <laughs> they they absconded with ha- what? Seven Swiss Staffordshire Spaniels. And I just have a question: Do I hear? Do, <laughs> do I hear? Do I hear more birds, Madam Speaker, from the nearby estuary? From the nearby estuary in Sausalito. Where? Yes. Where? In Sausalito. Oh, Sausalito. Near Sausalito. San Francisco. Isn't that right over the bridge? It's near San Francisco. Right. Yes. The super ciliated, <laughs> snowy scoop sparrow. Huh. But what makes me amused if not so sad, is that you think that you know more about the suffering of the American animal species than I do. You think you know more than the suffering of the American animal species than I do. Well, I have wineries. I have vineyards. I have chocolate. I have ice cream. Yes, we know that. The, the issue, the excuse me, the issue, the <laughs> issue is about the children, mm-hmm. our heroes, healthcare workers, teachers, teachers, teachers. <laughs> Anybody else? Sanitation workers. <laughs> Honor our heroes, the first responders, the doctors, 
the lawyers, the Indian chiefs, the Susquehanna Hatcheress. The what? Susquehanna Hat Service. I'm sorry. That must be the St. Louis. I I keep hearing those. What are those whistling sounds? This is the St. Louis, San Francisco, (laughs) Silverton Express to the Scipio, Savannah, and Silver City. I don't think you understand the severity of the situation, Sally. Crush the virus, meet the needs of the American people, and so on, etc., etc., etc. Well, thank you. (laughs) Excuse me. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for this shout out to Jennifer Pelkey, your speakership. Yes. Speakership. Yes. You're welcome. I, and, and I will leave you as a stroke. If, if you shove jello, jello up I'm sorry, you're ass, leaving us with what? I'll leave you with this. Oh, okay. With one last thing. Okay. If, 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 if you shove jello up your ass, it's almost like getting fisted by an alpaca. Thank you. Uh, we know and how good. Don't forget, I might mention, yes. there's a new show, the Diabetic Fury Show, on March 27th, 2021 at 9.30 p.m. sharp. Okay. Thank you, we Madam Speaker. Thank you us. And, Thank you very much, Will. And what is that, just before you go, uh, if you shove gel, how does that go again? Uh, if you shove jello up your asshole, it's almost like getting fisted by an alpaca. Ah, thank you. Thank you so much. Speaker Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> say, uh, uh, say hello to Jim Earl. He's a big fan of yours. I sure will. I, okay. Let us uh, say hello to Henry Huckamacki, who's in the Upper Peninsula. Why don't you turn your video and we'll start a little earlier. We're going to do the news with you and Grace. And I figured we'd start a little early as we're waiting for uh, Grace to show up in Great Britain. You've come loaded for bear. You're pissed off about something. You sent me something right before we started. What uh, yeah, well, I guess let's wait until Grace is here to talk about that specifically, because uh, I, I think that she's going to want to chime in on it as well. But yeah, there is something that's bothering me quite badly today from okay. somebody who I know some people in the audience are fans of. But uh, even if you're a fan of his, you're going to be upset by this. I can assure you of that. OK, so uh, Neanderthals, we, we've learned a lot in the past 15 years from from paleontologists, from archaeologists, from people who dig, right? Neanderthals weren't as stupid as we we used to think. They, they, they buried their own. They had empathy and compassion. They used tools. The, the idea that Neanderthals are are idiots is unfair. And we all have a literal little Neanderthal in us. Some of us at least do, right? Uh, a lot of people do. Not everyone does, but 
a, a large percentage of individuals have at least some Neanderthal uh, DNA within well, them. Well, I happen. I did 23 in me, and uh, I have some Neanderthal in me. And I think President Joe Biden owes me and my Neanderthal brethren an apology. Did you hear what he said? About no, I did not. Oh, he said that the Texans, Governor Abbott, who is telling people they don't have to wear masks anymore, and he, he's opened up the state. He called that Neanderthal thinking. Actually, he mispronounced it. He called it Neanderthal thinking. And I'm part Neanderthal, and I wear a mask everywhere I go. And I, I, I think that is, I, I want an apology. Yes, I guess stick up for your ancestors, David. Well, never, never let anybody denigrate your family line. Well, I'm like part Neanderthal, and I'm sick and tired of being treated this way and having to be ashamed of my 23andMe results. Yeah, I mean, it's not anything to be ashamed of. Like I said, a lot of people do, and having Neanderthal DNA has nothing to do with making stupid decisions like... I don't know, opening up your state entirely and removing your mask mandate just as you have some new variants being recorded in your state for the first time. Uh, there's no correlation between Neanderthal DNA and making decisions like that. I can assure you of that. All right. While we're waiting on Grace, and she's not late, we were going to start at 530, but I saw you arrived early and I figured we would talk about COVID since you host COVID Town Squares. Are we doing one this month? I think so, though okay. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. I've been too busy to uh, okay. keep track of anything right now. So, so it's good news and bad news. We were told first yeah. that new cases was dropping precipitously. Now new cases are back on the rise. and Just starting to tick up, yeah. And they're saying it's ticking up because now that this is what I read, that the reason it's ticking up is because once the vaccines came out, people stopped getting tested. There's been a, we're not testing the way we used to, and it's ticking back up because now more people are getting tested. Is that a, a fair assessment? Um, I think that that's, that's probably contributing somewhat to it. I, I haven't looked at the overall test positivity data for the nation. I've been looking mostly at the states of Michigan and Wisconsin because I live on the border of both of them. And the test positivity rate has gone down in both of them relatively recently, precipitously. And in my region, at least, it hasn't yet come up yet. Wisconsin, I think, has started to see a little bit of an uptick in their test positivity. So that, that might be part of it nationwide is that people are getting tested more. Uh, now than they were before. But it also certainly has something to do with the fact that uh, the weather is changing. Uh, I, in different parts of the country, people were sequestered with other people in close proximity. That's going to contribute somewhat to it. People are not going to be following mask restrictions in a lot of places anymore because the restrictions are being lifted. And we're seeing upticks in the percentages of new cases attributable to different variants, particularly B117 from the UK is really starting to uh, ramp up in terms of the percentage of new COVID cases that are attributable to that variant. And we're starting to see some cases come in of B1351 from South Africa, as well as I believe we've had 10 cases of the P1 variant from Brazil and the United States as well. So those two, B1351 
and P1 aren't contributing in any meaningful way to the uptick in cases as of yet, but it's worrying that we have them uh, because they're both, they're, there's some new data out on both of them. And we can talk about that if you want, but well, otherwise we can. Yeah, I mean, without, go, now. without going too deep, in, hey, Grace, let's go to Great Britain, where Grace Jackson from Literary Hangover is also joining us. Have you heard of COVID, Grace? COVID? Yeah. Never touched the stuff. <laughs> uh, we're, we're talking, we're, we're, we're getting an update on COVID. And I figure since we have Henry here, let me ask Grace if she feels the same way I do. You're too young, probably, to remember post 9-11, which was a series of mixed signals that we got from the government, which was relax, relax, code red, relax, relax, go shot, code red. Uh, they, they kept turning our head around, like relax, go shopping. There's nothing to worry about. We're about to be attacked. And it, it kind of feels this way. The, the message I seem to be getting from my government, at least, is we're doing great. We're doing great. 54 million people have gotten at least one dose. And by June, there'll be enough vaccines for everybody. And, you know, we were scared about the South African variant, but it turns out that one of these vaccines is very effective. And even <clears> if you <throat> even yeah, even if you get the variant, it's not a, a death sentence because this vaccine is a palliative. Uh, Henry, you cleared your throat. <laughs> That, that might have been intentional, David, might have been. Oh, uh, I, yeah, I'm worried you might have, I, you don't have COVID, do you? No, no, oh, I okay. haven't seen a person in forever. Okay. Um, yeah, <laughs> just the, the mention that one of the vaccines is effective against the South African variant needs some clarification. None of the vaccines that we have good data on so far is great against the South African variant. Some of them are absolutely abysmally awful. So let me just do a very brief roundup of the five vaccine candidates that we have in phase three trials are approved. Well, well, well let's right let's now. keep it a little lighter. <laughs> yeah, let, yeah, let's yeah. not do all five. Right. Let's hold off well, because I, I'll, I'll group them into three groups. So we have our mRNA based vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer. Those ones we don't have efficacy data against the B1351 variant from South Africa yet. We, we just don't know what percentage of people that got those vaccines are going to be protected against it. We do have neutralization assays, which is when they take the blood of people who were vaccinated that has the neutralizing antibodies in it. And they want to see how much less of the virus is neutralized in the case of B1351 compared to D614G, which is the variant that we have in most places across most of the U.S. And they found that the neutralization was reduced between six and eight times not six and eight percent, six and eight times. We don't know how that corresponds to efficacy overall. It's just not a very good sign. Now let's move on to the adenovirus coupled uh, vaccines. We have Johnson Johnson and AstraZeneca. Johnson and Johnson has efficacy data out against B1351. It's a decent sized sample set. And they're finding that their efficacy is probably somewhere in the range of 51 to 57% against it which is okay, but not good. It, it's okay. And as you said, it, it certainly would, 
it, it almost certainly would reduce the likelihood of severe disease, even if you do get sick after getting that vaccine. But 51 to 57% efficacy is not great. It's not enough to reach herd immunity. AstraZeneca, on the other hand, we also have some efficacy data on, and they're estimating their efficacy against B1351 is around 10%. 10%. That's, that's basically nothing. And Novavax just put out a, they just had a preprint come out yesterday. And I made a hour and 12 minute long uh, explainer of this preprint on my Patreon yesterday. So people, uh, patreon.com forward slash Huck1995. But here's the 30 second version of what this paper found. They looked at Novavax in South Africa, where the majority of the cases are B1351. And they found that instead of having 96% efficacy, where they fo- what they found in other places that have the variant that the U.S. has predominantly, D614G, it goes from 96% down to around 49 to 51%, with a 95% confidence interval between 6% and 71% which is a very wide range and it's not very encouraging and none of those numbers are big enough to reach herd immunity. What's even worse though, what this paper found is that they also looked at uh, individuals who are seropositives. They had antibodies against COVID from a previous infection, not due to B1351. Worth mentioning that all of these people were asymptomatic cases in this study. They didn't allow anybody in the study that had had symptomatic disease, but there was a group of individuals in the study who had had antibodies in their system. So they had been infected before. And then there was people who did not have antibodies in their system. So they probably had not been infected before. How much did those antibodies protect the people, David, against B1351, the new variant from South Africa? How much do you think? I, I don't know. Okay. So like, let's say, for example, if you were, if you were infected with D614G, you were just out in the street and got infected with the, the primary variant in the U.S., and then you recovered and went out in the street three months later, you're probably covered 98% or better. In this case, there was no protection whatsoever. Uh, it went from like 5.3% of the individuals who are seronegative in the study got infected by B1351 5.2% of the individuals who were seropositive got B1351 during the study. So there was no protection at all, meaning that if you were infected with COVID previously, you probably don't have any significant amount of protection against that specific variant of COVID. Right. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, I figured I'd start us out on a happy note. Wear a mask. Wear, wear three masks. Grace Jackson, yeah. host of literary hangover it's great to see you in great britain thank you for staying up late and are you going to be participating in office hours and hours and hours yes i i may well end up taking one of the slots that's kind of like the graveyard shift for the east coast thank you my morning yeah yeah thank you and i just wanted to say david on the topic you just introduced uh before henry's explainer there um I totally agree with you. I feel like our government as well here in the UK is sending all kinds of mixed messages. I mean, just as as the most egregious example, last summer there was a scheme that uh, the Chancellor rolled out called Eat Out to Help Out. And this was uh, in the kind of lulls between COVID spikes. We... We had a phase where people were being subsidized to go and eat out in restaurants, literally being given discounted meals. And, and the government was paying for it. Yeah. Yeah. 
so yeah and then what happened we had a huge great spike again and then during the christmas season um the government said okay we'll give you five days where you can mix with up to three households but then you've got to go back to your restrictions so it's i think it's been yeah terrible and this whole rolling lockdown thing is is there's really no way to go. Are you uh, having, Grace, in Great Britain, people like Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi, Republican, obviously, mm-hmm. and he was offended uh, that Joe Biden accused him of Neanderthal thinking. If you look at Tate Reeves, uh, I, I believe on the evolutionary ladder, calling Tate Reeves a Neanderthal would be a, a step up, a rung up. <laughs> But he says uh, Mississippi residents are smart enough to to make up their own minds when it comes to to science, to the science of COVID. He says Um, the people of Mississippi are smart enough to make up their own minds when it comes to whether or not they should wear a mask. (laughs) By the way, this is why they hate us in Mississippi. Uh, and I mean, my... seriously though, like I just saw on, <laughs> on uh, social media today, there was a clip of Boris Johnson from I think a year ago where he was bragging about how he had been to hospitals and was proudly shaking hands with everyone he met, and he thought that people could make up their own minds and could have their own approaches, and he thinks. It's but do, you know, he's talking about Mississippi. Don't you have a? Don't you have to have a mind in order to make it up? I mean, these. You no, know, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry. At some point, you have to push back at the old Confederacy and tell them to get with the plan. Otherwise, you're just. You you don't you're not entitled to weigh in on something you know nothing about. You're not equal. The people, the leadership, the Republican leadership of Mississippi, they're not equal to us. That's why they have to, that's why they cling to racism, because they, they have to feel they're better than somebody. That, 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 it's one of the last vestiges of stupid, racism is the last vestige of stupidity. I have to be better than somebody. I'm not going to respect Republicans from Mississippi. They're not they're they're only worthy of my contempt. You don't have that level of stupidity in Great Britain. Uh I think for the most part the level of our political discourse is just a tiny tiny bit maybe higher than it is in the most in the reddest part of the red states. Let's say that. But we do have a a kind of underbelly of of far right wing thinking um particularly in the far right wing of the Tory party but yeah it's not it's not the same species let's put it that way so henry when when these people talk about freedom they they don't really know what freedom means when when you have libertarians when you have these these uh boors b o o r s at CPAC talking about liberty and freedom. They're talking about a, a, a bastardized version of, of Locke and Jefferson's conception of freedom, freedom from the government. But yes. they're okay. Freedom to enslave as opposed to, yeah. Go ahead, Grace, freedom to enslave. What do you mean by freedom to? Under the boot of others. What do you mean freedom to enslave, Grace? Well, I think um, 
during the like run up to the civil war, the civil war and the post civil war period, there was this conception of freedom. I think it's basically associated with Andrew Jackson, a Jacksonian conception of freedom, which is instead of the freedom to, you know, live a life with a roof over your head, with certain kind of social goods available to you. It's it's more a freedom to own slaves, to run your household the way you want to, to make your money however you want. And it's it is like you say, a kind of bastardized version of of Locke, um, or a kind of more of a Hobbesian idea where it's the, you know, the law of the jungle. And um, I think that still persists, that idea. And Henry, they want freedom from the government. They don't realize that they're living under the tyranny of corporations. These people, these people who stormed the Capitol have no idea that their entire lives are reined in. They are imprisoned by the banks, the credit card companies they're indebted to. Yeah, I, I, if, if we abolished the government right now, there wouldn't be much of a material effect on the people's lives that are trying to get freedom from the government because what they don't realize is they're seeking freedom from the government, but the government is already controlled. It's a bourgeois government controlled by corporate interests. What do you if mean you bourgeois? What does bourgeois mean? Bourgeois is the group of people within society that control the means of production. Right, because it's it, lately in the past fifty years, bougie mean has taken on the connotation of middle class, middle class thinking. But that's not yeah, what Marx is, meant. No, it is not. Uh, no, the the government is controlled by the bourgeois class, the, the class that owns the means of production, and those the individuals in there are controlled by even more powerful, more rich members of that class. And if you eliminated the government right now, we lived in a, uh, you know, a libertarian capitalist utopia, you're still going to be oppressed by the same corporations that are oppressing you right now on a day-to-day basis. The government is not the ones that are oppressing you. It's your, it's your employers. It's, it's the individuals who own those companies. It's the people that are worth $150 billion. Mm-hmm. And so what the people don't realize is that the the controlling interests of those institutions are demonizing the government to get the people to turn against the government without realizing, Hey, there's this other controlling interest at play here. If you want real freedom, you can't just have freedom from the government. You need real freedom in your own life to control your own life, not to be controlled by somebody other than this tyrannical government that only exists in your mind. You need to to get freedom from all oppressors, not just governmental oppressors. Right. Grace, help me out with this Dutch translator who had to step aside from translating Amanda Gorman's uh, poetry. Now, Amanda Gorman spoke at Joe Biden's inauguration. She's an African-American. She comes from a a mother, a single mom, a, a teacher, and she's a uh, either attending Harvard or just graduated, and the Obamas love her. And I have a problem, as I've said, not with Amanda Gorman, but 
the the exploitation of her during the inauguration that uh, I'm tired of celebrating the the uh, the people who rise above their obstacles and get into Harvard and make it all the way to uh, the inauguration and then get a book deal and then the Obamas embrace her because it it fosters the illusion that our classes are porous, that you can move up from South Central and get into Harvard when in fact you're an anomaly. And once you are absorbed by the Obamas and the uh, the Harvard people, you pay lip service to, you know, you remember where you came from, but suppose you just want to stay in South Central. Suppose you don't want to go to Harvard. Suppose you can't get into Harvard. Suppose you can't, you just want to live your life. Uh, you're kind of told to feel bad about that. I, yeah. I The idea that Biden... Again, nothing against Amanda Gorman. Um, you know, we're all, we all think she's wonderful. But we should also be celebrating the, uh, the community college kids mm-hmm. who are, uh, they should get a, a spot at the inauguration. Uh, but the outrage now is not over that. The outrage is that an award-winning author, I believe he's from Holland. His name is, uh, I'm not going to pronounce, R- Ringeveld, Mariki Lucas Ringeveld. Uh, she or, or they are white and a African-American activist named Janice Duell was outraged that a white person was going to translate Amanda Gorman's poetry, that that should be given to an African-American. How well, am David, I supposed... The thing to also mention here is that the translator was, I believe... Trans. Um, well, yes, but Amanda <laughs> Gorman's choice. Yes, yes. I think the poet herself chose this translator, and that, for me, is really the um, the critical part of this story, is that you know, this this uproar that's been kind of whipped up by this one critic, I, I feel like it, it's deeply disrespectful to the poet. Um, it's disrespectful to the poet, but uh, it stirs and also, up... It, and also to the idea that poetry, like all kinds of art and culture, can be a form that transcends certain kinds of social categories that we Mm. might find useful in other spheres of our life. I'm not saying that race is not salient or important, but the fact is um, I don't think that race necessarily is the most salient factor when it comes to literary translation. I mean, people are translating across cultures all the time, and it might even make for, like, a more nuanced or an enhanced translation to have a little bit of distance on the material that you're working with. I don't know. I was having a conversation with some comedy writers and our default mode 
is always, can you believe this? Here's something I've never been asked to think about. Can you believe that I now have to think about this? Well, maybe, maybe you should have to think about this. Maybe you should step back and say, stop saying, now I have to worry about, because African-Americans have PTSD in this country. They are, if you're especially, well, no, all African-Americans have PTSD. Every time an African-American leaves their home, they don't know if they're coming back. They don't know if they're going to be spending a night in jail. And that's just a fact. They don't know. And, and when they show up at work, they don't know if they're really doing a bad job or they're being persecuted or they don't know if they're really doing a great job because they're being tokenized. It's a, it, it wears the neurons down in your brain, the, the, the systemic racism. So I said to my friends, you're so afraid to say something that, you know, we constantly hear about people who use the N word in context and now they're getting fired and it's so unfair and, and they're walking on eggshells. They're terrified. And I thought, well, maybe that's the idea. Maybe you need to be as terrified as the African-Americans in America have been for 400 years. Maybe you need to start walking on eggshells. And this is very glib on my part, because so far I haven't slipped or anything uh, and, you know, said the wrong thing, but I will. And I'm well, David, not you know on the Discord channel, there's a, well, there's a whole Discord channel devoted to cancel David Falcon. Oh, good. Thank you for that. So be careful. Yeah, I know. The, uh, uh I, I've already been canceled, basically. So the it's very glib for me to say, you know, if, if, if a couple of people have to go down to teach society a lesson, so be it. If 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 it, it, I, and I always said that when it came to sexual harassment, if a couple of men in the workplace have to go down because of a gray area, they they didn't know any better, but they're going to be. They're an example. It's it's for the greater good, unless you're that, unless you're that guy taking the fall. But you know, life is unfair. Uh, so now we, you know, the Dr. Seuss thing. We were all raised on Dr. Seuss. His family, the estate, was told that. There's some really bad stuff in his past. Not just in the Dr. Seuss book, some advertise, some early advertising that he did that included jokes about the N-words and burning them. And so he's not alive to apologize and say, you know, I'm deeply, deeply. But, but the family has said we're removing a couple of uh, books that we find uh, more than problematic, racist. The, the, the foundation, the, the estate has said this. Instead of focusing on the 99% or BLM or the systemic racism in our, in our police, 
Fox nonstop. Fascism, cancel culture. God. And uh, is it a distraction, Henry? Or do we have to discuss Dr. Seuss? I feel like it's a distraction to to some extent, uh, if not a large extent. I feel like the battles that are being fought over cancel culture are are being used in a lot of cases to obscure from the other inherent tensions within society. Of course, we can't have hate speech. We can't have racist speech, xenophobia. Uh, that has to be eliminated from society writ large. But to dwell on these things beyond just saying that's not acceptable in society is going to distract from any further discourse on other facets of life. Right. Before we go on to the bug up Henry's posterior, <laughs> I, you know, Mark Rain is on the show all the time. He's absolutely brilliant. And I found last two nights ago, I was watching him on Firing Line debating William F. Buckley, who is the father of the modern conservative movement. I guess you would call him a paleo conservative. And there was always a whiff of racism that he smoothed over with fancy words. And, you know, they always talk about how heroic he was to disassociate himself in the National Review from the John Birch Society, when in fact he was against the Civil Rights Acts of 64 and 65. And there are writings where he, he said that uh, black people in America are not ready yet to, to have full enfranchisement. He's on record as saying this. This is the guy who ushered in the age of Goldwater and Reagan. This is the heart and soul of the conservative movement. And he's debating Mark Green about voters' rights in 1993. 1993, Clinton is president. And Buckley is saying, if you're illiterate, you shouldn't be allowed to vote. Mark Green is saying that's absurd. He's saying that there should be, Buckley's saying there should be literary, literary, literary tests. And then he did something and I want to isolate this and play it for Mark Green, because whenever I hear people using the N-word in context, I can't help but wonder why they have to say the actual N-word and what delight they get in saying it. And so Buckley refers to a colored fella he just re, like he just 1993 bill buckley says a colored fella was upset because of this cartoon that and then buckley says the actual n-word and i thought if you're using if you're calling somebody a colored fella in 1993 and then you go on to say the actual n-word instead of quote unquote the n-word at least subconsciously, you're getting some kind of delight in saying that word. And that's what I think most of this conversation is about. They want to use the N-word. Henry, what's your bug up your posterior 
about socialists. Oh. Why, why are we... Before we get to that, David, I just want to mention about illiteracy. Uh, illiteracy is a tool that's used by the people that are in power to keep other people from achieving power. This is something that there's no real reason for anyone to be illiterate. If society puts its resources into ensuring that people are literate, they will be literate. And, 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 the, and the logical extension is, so if you're illiterate, and by the way, one of the things I've learned after doing this show is that a lot of people can't read, not because they're illiterate, they have some kind of neurology, you know, some kind of issue, uh, dyslexia, something that doesn't mean anything other than you can't read. Not being able to read has nothing to do with your intelligence. Right. But uh, what I was going to say is that if you use literacy as a standard for people being able to make decisions in life, that is going to be used as a tool to prevent people from being able to make decisions about their life that are inconvenient to the powers that be. Let's look at Imperial Russia before the, the Russian Revolution. Literacy rates among men in Russia at that time were about 37%. Among women, it was under 13% in terms of literacy before the revolution. So one of the first things that the Bolsheviks did when they took power was put out a mass literacy campaign where they aimed to have 100% literacy of their industrial workers by 1923. That's a mere six years after the revolution, going from four, less than 40% of men and less than 13% of women being literate to 100% of individuals being literate because they understood that if you don't have literacy, you're unable to organize people. You're unable to give those people the voice that they need to make the decisions that are going to improve their lives. And so that was one of the tactics that the Tsarism, uh, that the, that the Tsar uh, used to keep people down was to ensure that there was large swaths of people who were illiterate and therefore were unable to affect change within their own lives. But, but again, Grace, just because somebody can't read doesn't mean they should be disenfranchised and not be counted and not consulted. No, absolutely not. And, and, and just because somebody, I'm not saying illiterates are stupid, I'm saying separate of that. If you're stupid, if you're dull-witted, dim, you should still be allowed to vote. Yeah. And, and, and if your government, you know, Albert Einstein said, if you don't, if you can't explain your theory to a five-year-old, you don't have a theory. If you can't explain your platform to a five-year-old, you don't have a platform. That's why people who have the, 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 the intelligence of a five-year-old vote for Republicans. They speak to five-year-olds. I'm being serious. And the Democrats make everything so convoluted and complicated you, you're intimidated. You must, oh, they're so educated, they must know. When they stand for nothing. Well, they stand for a little. They, there were some bills in Congress that were passed this week that uh, shines light on what we're up against when it comes to the Republican Party. There were some bills passed by Nancy Pelosi this week that tells us what we're up against. Henry? Okay, David, will you allow me to read this thing that I sent to you? Oh, Mr. Reader. 
He's going to read, Grace. Go ahead. Show off your intelligence. Okay, this is an excerpt from a Daily Caller article. Now, what is the Daily Caller? Let's not talk too much about the Daily Caller. But what, 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 who are they? Is this Tucker Carlson's thing? It's a right-wing website. I think Tucker. Far, Tucker far, Carlson far right. created, yeah. right? Right. I believe he created. I don't know if he's still involved. He walked away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... This is an article about Glenn Greenwald calling basically everybody socialists. Here's an excerpt from it. He went on to say, he being Glenn Greenwald. Well, hang just, on, give us context. Glenn Greenwald called everybody socialists? We'll, we'll get there in the quote. He would describe a lot of people on the right as being socialists, such as former White House strategist Steve Bannon, and the 2016 iteration of former President Donald Trump as a candidate, based on what he was saying. I would consider Tucker Carlson to be a socialist, Greenwald said of the Daily Caller co-founder. He then described an instance where Carlson and Democratic New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a self-identified socialist, agreed in their mutual opposition to Democratic New York Governor Andrew Cuomo wanting to give tens of millions of dollars to Amazon to bring an office to New York. He attributed their agreement to people realizing that neoliberalism doesn't work. Uh, there's more. The, the crux of the argument is that he's, he's conflating not being a neoliberal with automatically being a socialist, which is the most infantile view of what socialism is that anyone could possibly take. And it's very disappointing to see this from Greenwald, who... 80% of his articles used to be good but back, you know, eight years ago. Now it's maybe 20% of his articles are, are worth a darn. Um, but he, he takes the most infantilized false view of what socialism is, as being, ah, it's not neoliberalism. Therefore, it must be socialism. Uh, I'm a regardless. little confused uh, because I live in a binary world. So I know that I hate Tucker Carlson but I love Glenn Greenwald. Are you saying there's nuance here? Who, who, who am I supposed to hate here? Glenn Greenwald or the Daily Caller? All of them. Uh, <laughs> no, seriously, David. Greenwald has been awful for the last few years, and I'm sorry for anybody that's still a fan of his in here. Once in a while, he puts out an okay piece, but he's been awful for a few years at this point. But when you bring up it, it, it I'm being serious, Grace. I'm so trained to into this Manichaean worldview where <laughs> we go, when I hear Tucker Carlson, black hat, and I hear Glenn Greenwald, white hat. So I don't understand like what... Like and Slytherin for we millennials. Yeah. So, I mean, and socialism good, and and we are all socialists, including, right? Isn't that the message? We all, whether we're all socialists. Exxon Mobil. I, I was talking to somebody this week who's an expert on gas and oil, and I asked him, would, you know, given the boom and bust cycles of the oil industry, would Exxon Mobil exist without government subsidies? He said, no. Would the banks exist without bailouts and the glass, what's left of the glass steagall protections? No, the banks would have gone under. The auto industry would have gone under. We're all socialists. What the Republicans are really... Well, I wouldn't say that. David, we've had this argument before on what socialism is, where a lot of people conflate, 
conflate welfare or subsidies from the government right, as being socialism as opposed to anything regarding the control of the means of production. So yeah, I'll just go back for for one brief second to put out some definitions. Again, when we're talking about capitalism versus socialism versus communism versus feudalism versus slavery, these are all different systems. And the the underlying difference between all of these systems is the relation of individuals to the means of production. Who is in control of the means of production? Now, the means of production, of course, being what creates the, you know, the products, the capital in society. So when we're talking about welfare in terms of, okay, the government is providing uh, health care for people, the government is providing education for people, the government is giving a subsidy to this green energy company, or they're giving gov- money to Tesla like they did. That's not socialism because it doesn't fundamentally change the control of the means of production to the people that are working in those means of production. Uh, So when we're talking about socialism, the definition of socialism has, of course, changed over the years. Uh, The original definition of socialism being something that was relatively akin to what we would consider to be communism today uh, before communism became a term, in which case socialism got a uh, different set of definitions. And then when uh, Marx and Lenin, particularly Lenin uh, and State and Revolution were writing about it, socialism became used as a term as a transitionary phase from capitalism to communism. But the, the point is, is that for somebody to claim that Tucker Carlson or uh, Steve Bannon or 2016 Donald Trump are socialists, it displays a fundamental lack of understanding of what socialism is or has been considered for over a hundred years. Grace? I think you're assuming that this, this, there's nothing disingenuous about this comment, right? Whereas I think we know, you know, I'm I'm not assuming that at all. Okay. Well, the way your analysis at least does it, the kind of, you know, um, would suggest that, but I think it's worth bearing in mind that if you've been following the work of Glenn Greenwald for the past few years, you'll realize that uh, he seems rather motivated by just a desire to own the libs all the time. And if he can own the libs by saying that Trump is as socialist as AOC, then he'll go there. You know, I think he's, uh, I certainly respect a lot of the work that he's done, but I think that there are just other you know, kind of social forces at play here that have to do with the image that he's carving out for himself online, especially after leaving The Intercept last year and kind of, you know, going rogue on Substack or whatever. Right. David, can I I give one last thing a little bit? Because I I did Yeah, just hang on for one second. Hang on for one second. Uh, And we have Professor Ben Burgess waiting to come on. I have to stop owning the libs. It's too much fun. (laughs) And no, you don't have to stop. No, 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 I I do. I was thinking about the past couple of weeks and my hatred for Pelosi and Schumer and Biden and the vice president. It's got to stop because the right is far worse. Owning what professor? Why is that the question? Huh? Why is that the question? Well, (laughs) <laughs> like, 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 you're right that the right is worse, but why? I, I don't understand why that means that you have to 
uh, stop hating and thinking about and, you know, uh, critiquing the libs, especially because the libs are the ones who are actually in power right now. Because. Very good point. Be, be, yeah, but I'm almost at the point where it's irrational. Like, I feel irrational when I talk about the, the, the families of these people and how they're all self-dealing grifters. There are bigger issues than their hypocrisy. And and they are. I, I, I Today, you know, I was looking at some of the bills that got passed uh, in the House that were somewhat ambitious about restoring the rights of African-Americans and making it easier to vote. The Democrats do seem to be for democracy, don't they? And that that to me, well, yeah. I mean, of course, of course, they are. They're for making it easier to vote for them. I mean, uh, that's who wouldn't be. Uh, like this, it's the same reason that the republic, you know, Republicans are against it. That they uh, that that everybody knows that if uh, if more people uh, in in these groups are allowed to vote, uh, then uh, then they'll vote for Democrats. So that's an issue that you know. I mean, that I mean, whatever. I mean, obviously, voting rights are good, but it's it's. It's sort of the thing that they could. The, the, the single thing they could do that they get the least credit for, because it's like, yeah, you're you're. Uh, are you going to do the thing to make sure that you have a chance of winning the next election? Yes, of course you will. But, but, okay, so hang on. Um, before, let me let me just hang but, on, but, Henry, but, hang but, on for then, one but then, like the, the Sam Libs just uh, uh, just uh, murdered twenty two people in Syria and violate in like in. It, like transparent violation of both U.S. international law and at the same time uh, said, you know, pulled the my mom says I can't go defense for the minimum wage, you know, that the uh, that uh, a Senate staffer telling them that it didn't count as a significant budgetary effect uh, is just an insuperable obstacle that there was nothing that they possibly could have done about this because the rules are sacred. I mean, you, you, you should hate these people. I, the but getting I rid of the getting rid of the getting rid of the filibuster that that's another issue i'm just let me just couch this i well, it's that, not even getting rid of the filibuster. I mean, it's literally just firing the parliamentarian, which has been done multiple times in the past when whoever was in charge didn't like what they're ruling. That's something that they could do like nothing. Yes. Uh, or just or just have the vice president overrule the, uh, the, uh, the, the the parliamentarian. They're opting not to. And it's 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 a it's a bad joke. Right. They, they if they don't get rid of the filibuster to pass this Voting Rights Act, this this bill. They're they're completely full of it. They're, it's all that the past. It was lip service. I mean, if if they say that they if they say that they they can't pass the fifteen dollar minimum wage because the parliamentary parliamentarian uh, told them uh, told them they couldn't, they're full of it. I mean, that's I, I don't know what more you want. Okay, David. Let here's here's the bottom line. You just have to call balls and strikes. You can't say, okay, well, blue team isn't as bad as red team, so therefore I'm going to couch any opposition to anything that they do. You just call balls and strikes. You say HR one overall good bill makes it a lot it enfranchises a lot more people, makes uh, voting more democratic. In effect, as Ben was saying, it's going to make it easier for Democrats to win. Of course, that's why they have uh, an interest in really pushing it through right now, but. You, you have to also call the strikes or, or the balls at whatever would be the bad in this case. Uh, so HR1 overall good bill, but there's a provision in this bill that makes it much, much harder, about five times harder for third parties to get funding. 
That's a bad thing. If we want any sort of representative democracy where people have more than two choices, you want to ensure that these other smaller parties have the ability to get money funding in order to, you know, advance their issues, to get people interested in their party and whatnot. That's a bad thing in this bill. Overall, the bill is good. That's bad. We have to acknowledge both sides of that. You can't just say, well, the Republicans are worse because they oppose it outright. Well, you might as well just say that this well, part of it is bad. Well, the Republicans are worse. We literally just finished having an election. Like, it seems like if there's ever going to be a time when we can talk about the Democrats without the Republicans are worse being part of the conversation, surely this has got to be it when we have have almost two years till the next election. Right. So you're I, I understand what you're Ben Burgess, you voted for for Joe Biden. Yeah, I, I did vote for Joe right. Biden. Uh, and I do it again, you know, because I live in a swing state and I do think that there are differences that do matter. I really like what Henry said about calling uh, balls and strikes. But uh, also, I point out that like one of the reasons, you know, it's not at the top of the list. I mean, obviously, between, you know, the Dreamers and, you know, the National Labor Relations Board and the Supreme Court, there are lots of other more consequential things. But one of the reasons that I voted for Biden was because I was really sick of uh, of having to talk of people talking and thinking about Trump all the time in a way that made it impossible to uh, wage the war that we need to wage within the Democratic Party. Uh, and so I get especially frustrated when, OK, all right, Trump is gone. He's not president anymore. Uh, the uh, the Democrats, you know, are, are in control of uh, of both uh, of both houses uh, and the presidency. If there's ever a time that we should be able to just fire both guns at the Democrats, this has got to be it. I agree with you. I agree with you. But. They are they're they're. Their lip service on some issues happens to be somewhat good. And, sure. And the Republicans, to me, am I wrong for being terrified of the Republicans when I see what the alternative is? Am well, I wrong well, for thinking these people are monsters? Okay, am I wrong? You're certainly not wrong for thinking that they're monsters, but uh, I don't understand why what the alternative is, is even part of the conversation uh, when we are literally just a couple months after the last election and like a month after the last election finally wrapped up. This is our golden opportunity to just have this war within the Democratic Party and not have the phrase what the alternative is or the phrase the Republicans even be uh, even be part of that conversation. How about the alternative is that uh, is that next time uh, is that next time we win the primary and like and, and, and have and keep your eyes uh, your eyes on that prize. Right. The. So you're saying this is the season of uh, of civil war within the Democratic Party. It should be. Yeah. yeah. Yes. This is the season of owning the libs. Own the libs. It's lib owning season. And then heal, heal in two, and heal in two years. Yeah. I mean, if, if, sure. Right. You know, it's, it's, uh, but now, uh, but people who are left of center are going to say, you got cinema, you got mansion. They're not going to vote to get rid of the filibuster. So, what do you do? Okay, so I, I do want to separate out two issues here. One is is the getting rid of the filibuster issue, uh, and the other is the 
can you talk about the faction that's actually in power right now and all the bad things that they're doing uh, without having to stop every 90 seconds to say, okay, but the Republicans are worse and, you know, let's, let's moderate this. Um, well, let's to, to, second- to, as, as I, as, as my alter ego says, how are we going to get there? I'm all yeah. for this, but how we, but it does feel, well, well, how do we well, get there? How do we get rid of the filibuster? How do we get rid of the filibuster? Again, I just want to separate out these issues because there are lots of things that the how are we going to get there doesn't involve the filibuster. There are lots of things it does, but there are lots of things where it doesn't. So not bombing Syria, uh, the uh, the filibuster is not relevant to. You just don't bomb Syria. Uh, Not saying, sorry, the Senate parliamentarian said we couldn't do it. Uh, doesn't involve getting rid of the filibuster. You just fire the, Demi- the parliamentarian. But, but that's reconciliation. That has th- that's not the filibuster. Right, right. But that's, but that's but that's what I'm saying. The filibuster is not a get out of jail free pass for everything. That even if we accept the premise that there's nothing to be done about the filibuster right now, I think we can uh, get an infrastructure bill through reconciliation, and I think we can get the stimulus bill. But when it comes to HR one. And some of the other things, you have to get rid of the filibuster, seems to me. And how do you do that? I agree with you. I'm not arguing with you. I'm asking you, how do we get rid of the filibuster? Transition between subjects is very rapid. I just want to make sure we're clear on that. But yeah, look, I think as far as uh, how you can get rid of the filibuster, uh, you know, one, um, you know, certainly... um, you know, one option uh, is that you could uh, you primary could mansion, primary cinema. So, so yeah, that, that's, play that's, hardball with them. That's one way to go. Uh, a uh, another way to go uh, would uh, you know, which is uh, some liberals were uh, you know were suggesting uh, you know back during the uh, the Obama years that then Vice President Biden, now Vice President Harris, uh, could uh, could just issue a ruling as the. Um, as the president of the Senate, uh, that the uh, that the filibuster was unconstitutional, which I think you can make a pretty good case for. That you know, it's a constitution clearly sets out simple majority, uh, simple majority rule. Uh, you know, maybe without vo- without voting. Yeah, uh, and uh, and maybe you know, maybe that would be you know, challenged in the courts, whatever. But I think that uh, I think you know, I think that's worth a shot. I think that the. I think that the primary uh, challenges uh, are worth a shot. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exaggerate, um, you know, the hope there. I think, you know, cinema maybe, uh, you know, mansions going to be a much harder, uh, you know, would be a much harder primary challenge. You know, the last uh, primary challenger uh, was, uh, you know, was crushed. Uh, but, um, but you know, I mean, I think that you could, uh, if you found somebody who was a good candidate given local conditions uh, who would go around every day, you know, saying, uh, why doesn't, um, uh, you know, why doesn't, uh, why doesn't Manchin want you to have, uh, well, you know. You're in the poorest state in America and your senator doesn't want you to have health care or a minimum wage. Yeah, exactly. A a livable wage. And, and, you know, have Biden and Harris, you know, uh, campaigning with this person, shining a spotlight on it. Look, maybe uh, I think that there's a chance that even the uh, even a serious threat of this uh, would uh, would make um, 
you know, would, would make Manchin recalculate. There's a chance it wouldn't. That maybe maybe he'd say, look, I, I won my last primary. I'll take my chances or uh, I'll go down with the ship because uh, I know I'm going to I'm going to be reincarnated as a, a corporate lobbyist and, you know, and I'll land just fine. Right. But uh, but I think it's it's certainly uh, I think you got to try all of these things because if uh, because if you just accept well the filibuster is a fact of life and there's nothing you know that you can do about it uh, you know you're you're going to be in a very uh, uh, you know I mean I think you're going to be in a very bad spot in uh, in two years because you know uh, there's not. Um, it's almost like a law of nature that after you've taken the presidency two years later, you have losses in the midterm elections. Uh, the, the only recent exception uh, was the Republicans after nine 11. Uh, so given, uh, given that, I think the only, the Democrats only hope of holding on to, uh, you know, holding on to what they've got, you know, which is the, the barest of majorities and, uh, and, you know, not having that happen, in the midterm elections would be to show people that they've concretely improved their lives, uh, which right now, again, to take us back to why I think now is lib owning season, uh, that is, uh, is not something that they seem to uh, be in any hurry to do. I mean, we've, we've gone from, uh, you're going to have a $2,000 check, uh, the second we take office to you're going to have a $1,400 check the second we take office to you're going to have a $1,400 check in March maybe to, well, some people are going to have a $1,400 check, but there are whole categories of people who got a check. Well, if you're making 80, th- if you're making 80, who, who, got, who got it, who got in Trump. I mean, if you're making $80,000 a year, wait a second. It doesn't matter who's in the category. It's, it's, it's just political insanity to say that you're willing to create a category of voters who got a Trump check, but not a Biden check like that. That's, that's, that's just, just abject lunacy that you would, that you would do this. That's like the kind of thing that you do if you didn't know that you were going to be up for reelection later. Right. But to me, it's reasonable. If you're making more than $80,000 a year, you, well, you first, of all, first of all, that's based on 2019 uh, before the uh, before the pandemic. Uh, so those are uh, those are irrelevant numbers anyway. Uh, secondly, uh, this is uh, this is the same argument that's that's used for having a public option, not Medicare for all. This is the this is the Hillary Clinton argument against free college. You know, Donald Trump's kids go to college, uh, and uh, I hate them. I hate them more than. I'm trying. I, I woke up this morning and I was reading about some of the stuff that was passed in the House, and I thought, well, they're 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 trying, but they're not, are they? They're reprehensible. No, they are not trying. They are they are reprehensible, and I, I think that I think that we need to be taking every possible moment in the next couple of years to point out. And yeah, you know, look. Republican obstruction is real. Joe Manchin really exists. Some of their excuses are right, but not all of them are. And we need to be taking every conceivable opportunity to be pointing out all of the every time there's any gap between what they could be doing and what they are doing. I think we need to relentlessly point this out because this is the kind of thing that's going to be important for beating them in primaries in two years and four years. And ultimately, if we don't beat them in primaries, then, uh, then, then what's, you know, I don't know what the alternative to, to that is. I mean, like, that's the only way that the left is ever going to get any of the things that we want. Joe Biden gave a full-throated endorsement of the workers in Bessemer, Alabama, voting to unionize he, last Sunday. 
Did you hear his speech, Professor? Uh, I saw that he. Uh, it was full throated endorsement. He said, "I want you all. If you're li- if you if you're in earshot, and you work for Amazon in Bessemer, Alabama, I know a majority of you have already voted. Uh, I'm sorry for being a little late to the show. I, I know you're. I know mm-hmm. you've voted already, but uh, let me be clear. Uh, it's not up to me to decide whether or not you should vote for a union." I, I can't think of a, a more powerful endorsement. Of it's, not, the, it's not up to me whether that's or not. That's not you, up to me. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, that's what the Republicans say. You know, yeah, join a union, don't join a union, whatever. You know. Yeah. Do you, do you. Right. Reagan said, you know, what, the air traffic controllers are on strike? It's yeah, not up to me. Strike, go back, you know, whatever. It's whatever. Awesome. Let it, you know, it's, I'm not going to step in here. Uh, yeah, very, uh, very disappointing. Did you watch CPAC? Uh, no, I, I, uh, I didn't. And I'll tell you why not. Uh, cause it's lib season. Uh, Donald, uh, Donald Trump is not president anymore. And, uh, one of the many benefits of this, I mentioned earlier, you know, I voted against him. I do it again. But one of the many benefits of this is that nobody ever has any reason now to pay attention to anything that he says. You know, we, uh, we, we can, uh, you know, we can ignore him now if we want to. He no longer holds any power. He's 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 just a blowhard talking. He's like one of those guys who does conservative YouTube videos from the front seat of his car. But what about Weisselberg? What about Cyrus Vance going after Weisselberg and and getting hold of the, the tax returns? This time we really got him. Aren't yeah. you aren't you caught up in that? The the idea oh, that No, I'm not. I I, <laughs> I, would, I would give anything to to somehow get everybody and you know all my friends and family members to also not be caught up in it uh since it's uh it's completely irrelevant. Like But it's an uh, existential you, threat. Don't we don't we need to prove is, that no man is above threat. the law? Don't we have to just um, focus well, it, I mean, look, if, we, uh, if we're going to start enforcing laws against ex-presidents, that'd be fantastic. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, don't, I don't think that one's happening anytime soon. But uh, the idea that, I mean, look, if you're living in fear of Donald Trump coming back in four years, then I still don't know why you care about this. Because the one thing that we've known for sure since sometime in 2015 is that no scandal is ever going to uh, is ever going to bring down Donald Trump? That you know that he is he is scandal immune. You know, I mean, if you can count all the times people say, "Oh, we got him now," right? Like now that this has come out, you know, now he's done for. You know, did you see what he said about those gold star parents? Did you, uh, you know, did did you watch the uh, Access Hollywood tape? You know, did you did you see what he tweeted last Wednesday? Uh, and none of it. Uh, None of it ever has uh, has any effect, um, but uh, but somehow people are you know like people still keep keep thinking it will. So even if you are even if you are hyper focused on whether he'll you know decide to run again in four years or whatever, which my God, if we could have like a breather of a year or two before we have to start talking about that, that would be nice. But even if you are, I don't know what good any of this is supposed to do. Well, let's talk about something. Well, I, maybe can I just sure please. I think that, you know, Professor Ben is basically right. Um, But I think one reason, if you want a reason to watch CPAC, it is to contemplate what could happen if, like you said last week, David, the Democrats don't start putting big numbers on the table. You know, you have to kind of be aware of like 
what's coming down the pike and it could be so much worse than Trump. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I know uh, Professor Ben Burgess has wanted to talk about this for a couple of weeks and we haven't had time. One of the reasons Trump is irrelevant is because Twitter canceled him and the Facebook Supreme Court has not yet issued a ruling. They literally have a Supreme Court to decide whether or not you're worthy of having the platform or not. Jack Dorsey and the the, uh, the wizards of Twitter have silenced Donald Trump and misinformation is down, they're discovering. They're mm. discovering that ever since Donald Trump was taken off Twitter, the, the amount of misinformation being spread on the Internet has gone down. So that's a good thing, right? That they're that they're finally stepping up. That the tech companies are finally stepping up and being responsible, right? No, uh, it's no. Not. It's a very uh, it's a very bad thing, and uh, I think that uh, not because I uh, you know not because I feel sorry for uh, for Trump. Certainly, if um, look if if I had my way, I like uh, I I have the Will Menneker position that you know he said. Uh, uh, Trump should probably spend the rest of his life in prison, but he should also be allowed to post from there. Uh, the, uh, you know, you're, you're taking away the one entertaining thing about Donald Trump. But no, uh, I'm, uh, I don't actually believe this. I mean, whatever, you know, 2% decrease in the amount of, you know, of, of uh, misinformation is, uh, is supposedly on the Internet now. Uh, I don't think it's worth it uh, because uh, the, the larger question is uh, how much power uh, do we want the uh, people like uh, like Dorsey to have? And I'm a lot less interested in uh, whether or not they're going to exercise it against uh, my enemies than um, you know than whether they're going to uh, exercise it uh, against us. Uh, because after all, uh, Jack Dorsey is uh, one of our enemies. Like that, this is uh, these these platforms are uh, are not you know benevolent not for profits you know these these are owned by exactly the kind of corporate overlords whose interests are threatened by by every single thing that the left wants, uh, and uh, if they're not you know if they're not um, censoring us much and of course they they are a bit right. Uh, but yeah. if they aren't cen- censoring us much uh, yet, that's uh, that's because they don't take us seriously as a threat to their power. You know, if uh, you know, if if they if they did, the, didn't the Democratic Socialists get deplatformed briefly, I think uh, uh, I might miss that one. So I know uh, there's something called the um, uh, the the World Socialist website that has that has been uh, had the brunt of, uh, of various forms of uh, of big tech censorship at various points lately so like they uh they did a uh they did an s they they published an article uh you know about uh the uh the washington post uh the washington post had uh had run a uh a story it had basically the washington post had given credence to the uh the Wuhan lab theory of the origins of uh, COVID-19 uh, and uh, the world socialist website did this thing where they were, they were pointing out that this is um, that the, uh, the world health organizations who report on this, you know, completely discredited this, this, the story the Washington post had done. And as far as I could tell, I mean uh, the, you know, look, whatever you think about, 
these people who run this particular website, whatever, that shouldn't matter. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they, uh, this is something that they were right about it, right? right. Like they, the, the Washington Post, in fact, in this case, was the purveyor of fake news. Uh, but uh, the uh, the World Socialist website, I think uh, Facebook, I believe, wasn't letting people uh, share it. Uh, like that's that's a uh, that's a very worrying thing. I think that even though it was contextually directed against the right, I think it's extremely creepy uh, that the uh, the New York Post uh, story about uh, you know, about Hunter Biden. Uh, was uh, was censored, you know, by all of the big tech companies. Uh, the uh, the way that it, uh, uh, you know, the way that it was, you know, that you had like a big mainstream media outlet that, for transparently political reasons, uh, you know, was uh, you know was you know was being stopped from having one of their uh, one of their stories shared. And yes, I think, frankly, even the Trump thing, uh, that it is, you know, whatever you think the right outcome was, right? Even if you think it's a good outcome or justifiable under the circumstances. It's still an amazing show of power that they were willing that these, that these private tech oligarchs uh, were going to uh, deplatform the president of the United States and cut off all of like all of these different lines of communication between him and the general public. That is a astonishing display of uh, of private power, and because it's Trump, and we rightly hate him, I think a lot of us have some impulse to to minimize the importance of that. But I think if the shoe were on the other foot, there's absolutely no way we would minimize it. If it was, uh, if Bernie Sanders was president, uh, and uh, you know he'd been you know accused of uh, incitement, and if you have a hard time imagining that, you don't have a very good imagination. Right. Uh, you know he uh, if you know maybe there was some you know, general strike going on and, you know, and, and he'd, he'd given a, you know, militant go get him speech. Uh, and, uh, and then he was, he was blamed for inciting any violence that had occurred afterwards and all, and his Twitter, his Facebook, his et cetera, et cetera, as president of the United States were being cut off. Uh, I think we'd be correctly apoplectic about this. Uh, so I, I think that's a very worrying sign too. Uh, I think, I mean, I could, um, you know, I could mention, I mean, look, uh, Jacobin Magazine uh, has for months, uh, Facebook uh, has uh, has banned its subscription appeals uh, because uh, on the grounds that they don't allow political advertising anymore, uh, which uh, is, is something that I think a lot of progressives. They just re- they just started up again with political. But, they have, but, but during that entire period, right, Wall Street Journal could have subscription ads because apparently they don't have politics. Right. Uh, you know, but uh, but Jacobin couldn't. And this is, you know, above and beyond the fact that I would like to have a uh, digital commons uh, where the the rules governing what you could put there uh, favored, you know, free speech and open dialogue. I think that like that's what I'd like in principle anyway. But above and beyond that, I think it's 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 fantastically short sighted for anybody on the left to uh, side with the censors or make excuses for censorship or minimize it or say things like, oh, well, they're private corporations that can do whatever we want, which is like every time I hear that line, I just think, what the hell is going on? It's like the uh, people are ripping off the leftist Clark Kent you know, costume and revealing libertarian Superman right. you know, un- un- underneath because is this is the libertarian definition of free speech. As long as it's a private company doing it, they can do whatever you want, you know, do whatever they want. Uh, and I think it's incredibly short-sighted for anybody on the left to do this because to the extent 
that there's any danger of the left being able to enact its program, right? Then we are going to be the uh, the main victims of this because the, the decisions are being made by tech CEOs who are definitionally on the other team. So I, if you're if you don't want. Uh, you know, I, I mean, it's amazing, like, that there are people who somehow both have these, like, flamingly radical sort of, like, revolutionary communist views, you know, that, like, in, they seem to be committed to the idea of, like, having actual, like, you know, uh, insurrection as, like, a path to socialism. But also they say, oh, yeah, no, they, uh, they you know, Twitter and all these places, they should really be cracking down harder on the right and, you know, having having more stricter content enforcement and uh, and it's just amazing because the only way you could possibly hold both of those positions at once is if on some level you know that uh, the powers that be see you as a joke and you don't think that you'll ever be a serious threat to their power. So you don't think you're ever going to rise to the level of the censor's attention. Right. We have to wrap it up. We have a young comedian coming on and uh, they're always nervous. It's always fun to break in a new comic on this show. Speaking of which, your new book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. When does that, when does that, is it, is it out yet? Uh, May 1st. May so 1st. Very exciting. A, Professor Ben, thank you. Order many places. Uh, the place I'd always recommend is Red Emma's. It's a worker-owned bookstore in, uh, in Baltimore. Uh, you can, uh, you can order books from online. So that's redemmas.org. Uh, can I, um, uh, can I make one last uh, comment before I go? Yes. About what- yes. Okay. We have a, we have a very. F- I just have to. We have a comic. This is his first time on the show, and he's he's been. This is a big thing for him, and I always like to break in new comedians. And he's backstage. He's very nervous. Go ahead. I was just going to say on the subject that you guys were talking about when I came in. Yes. Uh, that. Um, I think I think that we could argue about how much, you know, you should hate the libs and how much you should hate, uh, you know, how much you should be focused on the Republicans. But one thing that we should not focus on, I think, is hating people we basically agree with that we think have some bad takes. Um, you know, that's I, the I, story of my family. That's every family dinner I've ever had. Yeah. Well, you know. I don't know. I mean, I'm, um, you know, I've, I've been, I've been reading uh, Glenn Greenwald since like 2007 or something at Salon. Uh, and one of the first conversations I ever had with Michael Brooks was about how much we both liked and admired, you know, Glenn Greenwald's work. Uh, he's had some takes I disagree with. I right. think that what he said about Tucker Carlson was wrong. I wrote an article about this a few months ago. People can see it at the third rail. Will the real right-wing populist please stand up? Where I say the idea that any of these people have meaningfully populist economic views is nonsense. So, you know, I, I, I disagree with it. And I think we should I think we should state those disagreements and not be afraid. But I also think that, like, you know, maybe, uh, you know, go out and talk to people. Most people have, uh, you know, disagree with us about lots of things and, uh, and you know, people who are basically at the metaphorical left-wing family dinner table, you know, I, I, I just don't think that we should be that focused on hating. So that's my little kumbaya moment. Uh, have fun with the comedian. Thank you. Uh, Professor Ben Burgess teaches political science at Perimeter College. He's a columnist for Jacobin, and he's the author of the new book, which you can pre-order. It's called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, comedian. 
Thank you, Grace Jackson. Listen to her on Literary Hangover. And what is your, it's Grace Jackson is your Twitter handle. Yeah, Thank yeah that's you. right. Grace As Jackson. always, great job. Thank and you. Henry Huckamacki's newsletter. Subscribe to it by going to patreon.com forward slash Huck 1995. Listen to Gorilla History with Henry Huckamacki and Professor Adnan Hussein. Thank you, Henry. Yep. Quick mention, David, March 24th, I'll be speaking at the fourth annual conference of migration and health university, Texas medical branch. It's an online event. And I just found out that the hour before my presentation is going to be professor Alexander Avenia. Wow. Uh, who's been on this show a couple times and is also coincidentally going to be the next guest on gorilla history, which that episode's going to drop uh, two days after that conference. So just kind of funny how that worked out. Very exciting. Thank you, Grace and Henry. So much fun doing this with you. It's uh, it's an honor to know you too. Thank you. Well, you, you seem like a good crowd and that's good because uh, it's always exciting to introduce a new new comedian to this show. He's making his debut here on the David Feldman Show. Please welcome comedian and comedy writer Mike Rowe. Oh man! Thank you. Hey, yes, I am. A, I am a new up and coming comedian. I, you know, I don't want to say I've been around a long time, but I I just had my TV shots colorized. <laughs> That's how long I've been doing stand-up. You know, I can't believe uh, you finally... Uh, well, I should... Let me introduce you. I've been trying to get you to do the show since I started doing the podcast, and you just... But I, now you have something to plug. Mike Rowe is a former stand-up who started his comedy where comedy career in the 1970s back in his hometown of Waterbury, Connecticut. At 18, he landed in the crack-infested streets of New York City, where he continued to do stand-up, but not crack, most notably at the Improv. I believe he uh, either directed or produced the documentary about the Improv. He later found... Huh? Is that correct? That's correct. You directed it? Directed it, wrote it, edited it. Interviewed, and you were the only one in it. And uh, yeah, and I haven't made it yet, but it's all in my head. No, it's, uh, <laughs> it is. Uh, uh, um, Let me finish your intro. Please. He later found his way to Hollywood, where he got to write sitcoms and animated shows for so many of his comedy heroes, including Martin Short, Eddie Murphy. He was nominated for seven Emmys for his work on Futurama and Family Guy. Finally, he won an Emmy for an episode of Futurama, and he has a new book out. You can buy it on Amazon, uh, and it gets into the struggles and triumphs of his 40-something-year crazy journey from his hometown to Hollywood. Please welcome Mike Rowe. Hot crowd. And the name of your book is... Uh, it's a funny thing how the uh, professional comedy writing business made me fat and bald. Yes, that's absolutely true. I don't want to say that intro was long, but I didn't have to shave before I came on. (laughs) What was the, Uh, so why did you write this book? Why now? Um, 
Well, well, if I wrote it in my first year of stand-up, it probably wouldn't be a very long book. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the, the first thing I thought about is, like, it'd be a fun thing to write. I thought about me when I was 16 and 17 and wanted to do stand-up. And I thought, like, what would be a great book for a young person who was thinking about getting into the business? What is kind of, what's that journey like? You know what I mean? What's, what can you expect kind of behind the scenes? I just thought it would be a cool thing of like, you think like of a hometown kid saying, I want to get in show business. What, what can I expect? You know? So it's really a detailed account of like everything starting with, you know, working in these shithole bars in my hometown. And, you know, and this was before the days of, you know, it was before the comedy boom when like every, little shithole bar, you know, wasn't a comedy club. I would just walk in, I'd wander in a, in a club and, you know, ask the manager, I said, when the band has a break, can I just go up and tell jokes? And the guy was like, okay, you know. Was that your first time doing stand-up? Now, your dad owned a bar, right? Yes. Uh, you write about that in the book. Yeah. yeah he had a uh, bar for six years. Um, that was a great place where I kind of, you know, I hung out there as a kid. I was seven, eight, nine years old and hung out with the pimps and alcoholics. And, you know, is that uh, true? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they taught me how to play pool and uh, there was gunfire some nights. It was pretty great. So uh, you did do stand up. Yeah. Because uh, your dad let you hang out with pimps. Yeah. Um, it was, it was, I was there mostly for the softball beer leagues. He had about 10 beer league teams um and what was great is they were these young like college guys and the way the beer leagues worked is if you uh if you lost if you won the game then you and the losing team go to the winner's bar so there were softball players there all the time and as a kid i mostly got to see how they made fun of each other and laughed with each other. And I saw kind of the power of humor as a little kid and the, the camaraderie in humor and just the, the, the bonding. Are kids it. allowed in, in bars? I guess only if your dad owns it. And and did you ever meet a pimp? Yeah, they used to call me little man. Little man. Really? Yeah. And and how old were you when you met your first pimp? Uh, eight, nine. And did so your I father know. explain to you who this no, man was he wasn't they weren't trafficking through the bar <laughs> so i guess it was okay um i probably wouldn't have understood anyway see i i, I don't mean to interrupt your, your story but i find that fascinating that your father was prescient enough to know that you should never shelter your your kids that you should expose them to everything and explain the context well, uh, he used to have a go-go dancer there every Tuesday night at nine o'clock. And I why that. wasn't he reported child protective services? <laughs> well, here's the thing: this like, is disgrace. Go ahead, I'm joking. I, I uh, see. I think this is you. You turned out great. Go ahead. There well, was a go-go da- when you say go-go dancer. Well, I'm not wearing pants. <laughs> uh, I'm lubing and tubing, as the saying goes. Uh-huh. No, uh, he, well, uh, he felt that by exposing you to people who expose themselves, go-go dancers, you could, you, you'd have a keener understanding of what the real world is like, right? Well, after certain things or incidents or something I didn't understand, like 
these goings on, you know, I remember the drives home, you know, even at that age thinking and hoping that maybe there's a, a life lesson he could give me or something kind of ethereal. And like, I would wait and it would mostly be like, uh, don't tell your mother. <laughs> um, well, that is a life lesson. Yes, that's true. That's true. That is true. <laughs> Uh, I do distinctly remember because I never saw the go-go dancer, and and that was the mystery to me. Like, what, what does she do? What happens? You know, right? What, what goes on? And there was one night, and it was the the, <laughs> the Schaefer beer clock. You know, was mm-hmm. creeping towards nine o'clock, and I'm like, my dad's not here. What's going to happen? I'm going to is it? And then I just distinctly remember like some guy went up to the jukebox and cranked it up and filled it with quarters and uh, and then it went dark and there's like nine trunks there and the spotlight moved over to this little tiny stage. It was actually like the light. I think my dad stole it from our our, our aluminum Christmas tree. It was this wheel with the green, red, blue. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm like, holy shit, it's going to happen. I'm like sort of a high day behind the ice machine, you know, just kind of like it is is. Is there, is she going to be naked? Is there going to be like sex? Does she read poetry? What the fuck's going to happen? You know, your father had, your father had a tremendous impact on you because when you won your Emmy for Futurama, you looked up to the sky. I remember that and said, this is for you, dad. Yeah. There was a touching moment because he had died like a few days before. Right. Um, my dad and I bonded through comedy and, uh, Henny Youngman was sort of the staple in our family, in my, the bonding between my dad and I, sort of the Henny Youngman jokes. Uh, uh, my dad just loved him. So on his 60th birthday, I hired Henny Youngman to show up at his birthday party. As a go-go dancer. <laughs> you know, take my clothes, please. <laughs> <laughs> but uh wow Henny and it was you know it was a room it was his finished off basement in his house and there was like 80 of his friends there and then I get up and I'm like and my dad's like oh fuck is my son gonna tell jokes again and was, I introduced like I got a friend of mine Henny Youngman was in the phone book yeah right you could just call Henny Youngman and he would answer. I remember calling Henny Youngman well, he came down and did a set, and my, but he walked down the stairs. He had the loud jacket and the violin, and my dad saw him, and, like, he didn't believe it. He, like, spun out of his chair, and, like, it, it's, it's as if, like, we had the Who show up at our party. I mean, he... The Who? He, that's what I'm trying to find out. <laughs> the and, Who show up at our party? The Who. Oh, the... <laughs> the Who. Oh. Guess Who? Is that better? Yes. You guess who? Yeah. Yes? Yes. I don't know. I don't know. Third base. Um, but here's the, here's what I was getting at when my dad was in hospice. Uh, cause first like part of the fabric of our life. Cause when I was a kid, I remember when I was trying to, to not go to school and pretending I was sick and my dad in a straight face says, you know, he moved his arm. But does it hurt if you go like this? And I go, yeah. And he said, well, don't go like that. <laughs> right. So, uh, my dad's in hospice and his wife at the time, you know, it was my last night alone, my dad, and it was he and I together. And she, she left the room. She, she said, read your scripture, read the scriptures to your dad. And then she left the room. And I pushed the scriptures aside and went to the Honey Youngman joke book. <laughs> and 
I, you know, it sits on Santa, rich kid sits on Santa's lap. Santa, what do you need? You know, just like reeling off all these, you know. Right. So, so yeah. So then it was uh, not that much long after where I won an Emmy. And to me, you know, I don't know what Emmy means in the industry, but you know, it's it's more like. You know, you, you it's the thing you win for your parents. Yes. Hey, look what I did. You know what I mean? That, that you know, it would have been the Super Bowl ring to my dad. You know what I mean? So. Uh, this is a true story. When my father was dying, there, there was chocolate on the side of the hospital bed. And my sister said, can I have some? And he said, no, it's for after the funeral. He literally did that joke. <laughs> you know that joke, right? Yeah. <laughs> I went, um, wow. That's, um, that's amazing. So nobody comes from a happy family. But one of the things I've noticed about you over the years is your comedy does not come from hatred. There, there's a, there's all, when you were doing stand up, I always remember, like nobody doesn't like you. There, there, you never come on stage when you did do stand up. Nobody hated you. You know, you, you always kept it silly and light. And what little work I've done with you, you, you were happy to be there. You weren't grumpy. You weren't complaining that it's, you know, salted peanuts in the snack room instead of unsalted. Mm. You know, and just going on. You've always been grateful to be yeah. in show business. I, I've been lucky, I think. I or mean, stupid. I think stupid, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'm no. looking at the... Uh, I'm sorry, but, what? Uh, nothing. Uh, I forgot. It'll be fine later. Uh, <laughs> no, but you're you're happy to be in the... You're happy to be in the business. You don't bring... Right. Although, although what's interesting, and I kind of talk about this in the book because it's a thing I, I still don't understand, is I've written on so many shows, so many different kinds of shows, and I'm glad I did. From, you know, a lot of sitcoms and animated shows and got to do my own documentaries and stuff like that. But what I'm still trying to figure out is, like, I can go from show to show. Like, I can be on one show and be, like, the, the funniest guy in the room. I could be the star of that show in the writer's room. And then I go to another show, the, the very next show, and I can't explain it, but the, if I don't get the sensibility of the room or kind of the sensibility of the show, I'm like worthless. I mean, but it, I, can I give you some insight into that if you don't mind? Yeah. Because I, I my first job was Roseanne. And I don't know if you remember Roseanne, but Tom Arnold hired easily 1,000 writers. There was a writing staff of roughly one to 5,000 writers. And so you would go from room to room. I was going from punch-up room to punch-up room. And I used to say the guy running the room, and it was always a guy. Uh, well, no, that's not necessarily true. There were a couple of women. Uh, I would say, well, he's an alchemist. Like, how come when, he, when Mike Rowe is running this room, I feel funny and the next day, when David Feldman is running the room, I feel unfunny. I think we, I think the guy, the human being running the room is the alchemist. They can, they determine whether or not you feel like gold or, or bronze. 
It's right. like parenting. Do you notice like, like you have favorites, right? Like, don't you favor one of your kids over the other? And the one uh, you favor feels. Well, there's a few I haven't met yet. So <laughs> we'll, uh, I will determine, you know, what's. Does it bother um, you when you, what do you I do when you're, I'm sorry, go ahead. I just, I have identical twins, so I guess it's hard to have a favorite. Do you have identical uh, twins? Yes. I wanted to name them. I wanted to name them Martin and Lewis. <laughs> the wife would have none of it. I was serious. And my friend, I think, you know, Eddie Gordetsky. Yeah. He offered, he offered my wife 5,000 in cash. <laughs> For what? To name them. Martin oh, Lewis. okay. All right. Marty and Lou, right? This, yeah. This, Does he know Bob Dylan? <laughs> no. Mark, he, I mean, has he introduced you to Bob Dylan? No. No. Uh, Bob is an enigma. I don't mean to get racial, but. <laughs> I, I but Gordetsky is like his best friend, right? Pretty much, yeah. Him and Elvis Costello are very close. And you, uh, his three best friends are Bob Dylan. Right. Huh? That's right. We're, we're touring. Yeah. What are you working on now? And will you come back? Uh, I'm uh, I'm doing a lot of development stuff. I'm doing a bunch of animated stuff uh, with David Cross. We're doing a thing. I'm just, might be doing a thing with uh, Jack Black now, and 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 what else? Do an animated Christmas special with uh, Jason Mraz doing music. It's a musical with Allison Janney and 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 uh, uh, Nancy Cartwright who does Bart Simpson's voice. Um, so I've been in a lot of development since the uh, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um. So, Let me ask you about Family Guy, because you yeah. were there. Were you one of the original? And I came back right after it was picked up again after the big DVD sales. Right. That show, for me, is life-changing. Like, to me, I can sit down. Like, I don't watch that much television. But I bonded with my kids over Family Guy. Uh -huh. That show is, without a, in my estimation, the funniest show that I've ever seen in my life. And one of the reasons it's so funny is I imagine the writing room and it just feels like, can we get, can we do that? Can we do that? Can we do that? Whereas well, the, whereas the Simpsons, the Simpsons is, you know, it's like watching Michael Jordan. When you watch the Simpsons, you know, it's like, yeah, we, they, they, of course, it's fantastic. I get it. But Family Guy is real and dangerous and stand-up-y. It has a stand-up-y feel to it. One of the secrets as far as getting pushing the line is Seth would have us purposely put in like eight really over-the-top things that we never planned on using so that when the, when the network gets on the phone and say, you can't do this, then we negotiate it down and we keep the ones we plan on keeping all along. Right. And it also maybe works like when you were at Roseanne, like those cutaways, like the script would be written and then there'd be a morning meeting where they go through the page and go like, oh, okay, at the church, let's do, I haven't been this religious since or whatever. And then they would send three or four of us off in the room. Right. And then we together would spend the day, we'd have to come up with three cutaway jokes. Right. right. And then at the end of the night we read it and then he picks the one he wants. You know, when my kids were really young, 
we were watching Family Guy, and there, <laughs> Joe was sleep dragging. Joe is a cop. I think he was injured on the job, and he's a para. He can't. He's in a wheelchair. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And there are a lot of jokes about how he has no feeling in his legs, like cats. You know, there, there's one scene where a cat is just chewing on his leg and it's bleeding. He doesn't feel it. And I'm watching one night with my kids and Joe's wife is upset because he sleep drags and he gets out. He drags himself out of bed and they show him dragging through the streets. And I start, you know, I got small kids watching this and I completely lose it in front of them. And to me, I, 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 it reminds me of you being raised by your dad. I said to my kids, the reason I'm laughing so hard is this is absolutely wrong. But maybe it's not. I can't figure it out. Maybe it's not wrong. Maybe people who are in a wheelchair are watching this and they're perfectly fine with this and they think it's funny. I don't know. All I know is this is really funny you can't make these jokes. They were fine with it, and except for now that you brought it up. Now well, it's cat out of the back, and it's yeah. over. <laughs> but are, are you protective of your children? Do you uh, expose them to the... Would you expose them to the things your father exposed you to? Not quite that. It's not in my environment anyway, but, you know, they were watching... Uh, they were probably watching Walking Dead before they should have. They were eight or nine watching people get their heads chopped up and all that sort of stuff. Right. Right. Um, but no, we were protective of them, especially my wife, you know. Um, Let me ask you a question before you, will you come back? Uh, tonight or? Well, yeah, well, to, to keep plugging I this book. I, I, no, I definitely would love to come yeah, back. Yeah, before, I want to ask you one final question, but everybody should go, uh, unfortunately, to Amazon is it available anywhere else? I think Barnes and Noble, and I think at the publisher website at Bear Manor. So Bear give, Manor give us the uh, give us Bear Manor. How do you get to this? I think it's just BearManor.com. BearManor.com or the Barnes and Noble website. I'll give um, you a. I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. You get a special I, I, dispensation on Amazon for this. We make an exception. The name of the book is, and it's really fun to read. It's a funny thing how the professional comedy writing business made me fat and bald. It's if you want to laugh and have fun, some light reading that, you know, go buy this book, please, please buy this. And I, book. Really, and I really tried to make it inspirational and aspirational. And it's really about just chasing your wildest dreams. So in a way, it's kind of for everybody. You know, it's like when something seems impossible, like, why can't I be in the NBA or, you know, just for, for young kids to kind of like maybe finding that, you know, if you work hard enough, get your ass kicked along the way, you can you can get what you want in life. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I'm really enjoying the book. It, it, it's, uh, it's so much fun. Before you go, did you fix VCRs? Yes. Did you uh, fix a VCR? at a place that wasn't a place you wouldn't bring your kids. Well, uh, do we yes. want to tell this story? Which, which there's, there's this sort of a multi-tiered stories about that. Place, is this, but, does this involve um, Letterman? 
Well, not really. It, it, the the offices were in the uh, broad in the Ed, uh, Ed Sullivan Theater in the offices above, and those later became Letterman's offices. Well, well whose offices? This was called. It was called Avcom uh, Motion Pictures. So it was audio, visual, rental, repair stuff. Um, and you could fix a VCR. VCR projectors, because I went to a technical high school, I was deemed by, I don't know who, that I was not college material. <laughs> so I went to a technical high school and learned to fix shit, and I learned how to fix TVs and all that stuff. Right. Part of my job at this I place, could never do that. I mean, if you, I could never do that. I know, my wife, I make my wife crazy because I watch YouTube videos of a guy fixing an old TV for like an hour. <laughs> um, but part of my job, is this what you want me to tell? The, uh, yeah. Part of my job was once a month I had to go, and this was 1980, once a month I had to go to the porn district, 42nd Street, Broadway, and do maintenance on the projection equipment. <laughs> so it was these rickety 16-millimeter projectors showing whatever, you know, face dance one, face <laughs> dance two, you know. And uh, it was, and I'm 20 years old, and I'm, just off the bus pretty much and thrown into the underbelly of Manhattan. And I go into these places and they were once, you know, like really cool in the forties, probably through the sixties, like, you know, great movie houses, maybe vaudeville houses. But now I go in and it's like, I go in the projection booth and there's this middle Eastern guy with like a dead hand. And, you know, <laughs> and I'm like, uh, it, so I come in and he just shuts the projector off. There's, first of all, it's, it's it's 11 o'clock in the morning and the porn theater is up and running. And there's eight people in there. Just whoa, shuts it off and, and bends a light into so, so I can fix the projector. And he, there's a spotlight on this little shitty stage under the screen. And a stripper comes out, right, in a sequin bikini or whatever. And I'm kind of looking in the little projection window trying to fix the bell and hollow over there and so the woman comes out and she's, you know, dead in the eyes and the audience, you know, there's probably a couple guys from Jersey. There's always like a wall street guy, you know, suit briefcase. And there's always, and a couple junkies in the back or whatever. And the woman comes out and her eyes are just dead and she's kind of lethargically taking off her two piece one at a time. And she would hand it behind the curtain naked dance and then walk off then the second girl will come on wearing the bikini that the girl handed through the curtain. Mm, nice. It's like uh, two strippers, one bikini. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then in the middle of it, like she strips and walks off. And then I swear to God, an exterminator. Uh, <laughs> and just spraying the stage. Junkie comes up, gives him a dollar, you know, and, um, so I'm now I'm in the booth and this couple comes waltzing in and I turn around and like within two seconds they're just completely naked. This couple, I'm like, you know, so uh, they they leave and go to the stage and I'm like looking through and the girl was cute and young and like it's like wait a minute did, did she just get off the bus and make a quick wrong turn in her life maybe I can save her what the, you know because then she rolls out this mattress on the stage. Oh no, yeah. <laughs> It looked like it had been at least in the area of one murder. <laughs> and the 80 disco music is playing, and, and the guy comes out, and they're doing this sort of awful 
you know, reminding me of Solid Gold at the time, like this awful mm-hmm. dance to the music, but they're completely naked. He's completely hard. And I'm like, holy shit, what's going to happen? First thing that happens, he goes, he lays down on his back on the mattress. Yes. Looking up. And she kind of stands over him and gingerly places her stuff on his face. Hmm. As she bops up and down to the rhythm of the music, I'm sitting on top of the world. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, uh, Karen Carpenter. Yes. Or, uh, is it? Uh, nothing. I want to be. Spinners, I think. Whatever, but it was the... the I'm on the top of the... Uh, looking down on salvation and the only like inspiration. But, so that means there was some thought put into it. Yes. And, and, and you know, I, I, I did have a moment where I thought I could maybe save her, and she came back, and I almost got the courage to talk to her. Uh, but but you didn't have a quarter. Yeah. And then I found out they do this theater to theater as I do. So they're sort of like a traveling vaudeville team. So I finally did one day have the courage to kind of talk to her. And, and she said, you know, she's just doing this temporarily because she wants to get into a topless show, one of the classier shows in Atlantic City. Hmm. But she felt her boobs were not big enough and she was saving up for bigger ones. Ah. So she, she had a goal. And that's, I think, what's important. And that's kind of the moral of the story. And that's what your book is about. It's about big boobs. <laughs> you are. I, you are. I wish I was you. I do. I, 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 you, you're, you're, you're great. You really are. Pick up micro R-O-W-E. It's a funny thing is the name of the book. Please. There it is. Go uh, get it wherever fine books are sold. It's and in Braille. It's in Braille? Yeah. Only the pictures. <laughs> okay. Thank uh, you, Mike Rowe. I'm going to beg you to come back. I've been trying to get you on this show for 10 years. Uh, all right. So. I'll, have, I'll wait another 10 and we'll do it again. Okay. Thank you, Mike Rowe. All right. Thank Peace. You. Yes, peace to you, too. Thank you. Let's go to Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld. Mike Rowe is a brilliant comedy writer, one of the best who's ever done it. And he was talking about high school. And they said to him, uh, well, he just said they he took it. His career counselors told him he should learn how to fix things because and. You know that I am very critical of the overeducated. And there was a story in Newsweek that I read. These are um, 19 jobs that pay more than $70,000 a year, and they don't require a college degree. And I looked at them, and I thought, I could never, I'm not, you know, the idea that you don't need a college degree to do this, the intelligence required. Look at some of these jobs, a um, electrical power line installer or repairer. You, you repair the power lines, unless they're down in Texas where you leave them alone. You don't need a, uh, you don't need a high, you don't need a college de- degree to be a signal and track switch repairer, a petroleum pump system operator, an airline pilot it goes on and on these are 
these are difficult jobs that require a lot of intelligence. Uh, I'll start with Ethan. Good evening. Good evening. Do you think the the idea of when you see help wanted ads and you have to have a college degree to be to work in marketing for Facebook when you don't need a college degree to fly an airplane? Uh, isn't this confiscatory of trade, the idea that it's a racket, that, that, it, it, that you need a, a college degree to be a journalist now? I was an English major, which is the least employable thing you can study. Um, someone might have told me that. No one warned me. But um, so I, I, uh, I'm comfortable with the idea that the, uh, the more employable jobs are the ones that don't involve a college degree. But um, look how good you're talking. He does talk. He does in English. In English, he talks very good. Yeah. Um, yeah, but my spelling is still terrible. I never worked that out. And my penmanship. So those two things, those are important also. Dr. Hershenfeld, um, the, the pressure. Oh, but, but, oh, go he, ahead. I'm sorry. He, he, his father was a mechanic, basically. Uh, his father fixed the springs on trucks and, and buses. And then he did that summers. So you had a technical upbringing, didn't you? Yeah, I worked in the garage summers. And I loved it, and I learned a lot. And there were a lot of very smart people in there, including my father, who was an extremely smart guy. But uh, came the crash, and he dropped out of college. The car, not the car crash, the stock market crash. The stock market right. crash, 29, exactly, yeah. yeah. Do you think a lot of the unhappiness in this country comes from feeling uh, inadequate and that there there are it's systemic where people feel they're not smart enough they're not educated enough and it's all a racket unless you're a doctor well, you know i don't want to go to I, I understand dr phil for example is not a licensed clinical psychologist that he, he's not allowed to see patients i would like my my psychologist or psychiatrist to be licensed, but he has a, an honorary. Does he have honorary doctorate? He has. So he's some, able to. He has a the type of degree in psychology that lets you talk about the brain, but not treat one. So hmm. put him on TV. Yeah. Degrees are overrated in most fields, aren't they? Well, they say, for example. Somebody goes to law school and graduates. What that does is get him a job in a law firm. And that's when you learn how to be a lawyer, when you start working in a law firm. You don't know anything about that. Right. Before then, I think a lot of these degrees are, are sort of a way to, to figure out if the person has the drive, the ability, the intelligence to join that profession. And cover up for your fellow professional. I, I don't agree, however, that all the 
unhappiness and dissatisfaction, of which there is an awful lot. I'm not sure it's mostly because of uh, societal issues. Some of it is, but a lot of it is personal. There was an there's a new documentary. I think it's going to be on Netflix about varsity blues, about wealthy upper class white people trying to get their kids into these top colleges. And they, the parents who have spent a fortune sending their idiot kids to these private schools, mm-hmm. they're, they're white, they're rich, and they are terrified that their $80,000 a year investment in a prep school will not pay out getting them into these elite universities and they're being tortured by the admissions officers who are looking for the freakishly talented unicorn. They're looking for somebody who is a person of color, a a woman, uh, not a white man, and they have to be freakishly talented. It used to be you could be well-rounded and well-educated and a white male. They're not looking for that anymore. And these... these You know, I was... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was cast in a film about exactly this. They're doing a film about Varsity Blues one year ago, and it it got stopped because of the pandemic, the shooting of this film. And it was... uh, I had the role of... There was an Egyptian-American real estate magnate who, who paid... I think 300 grand to get his daughter into USC. But I think for legal reasons, they cut the character because that, that the case, the case against him hadn't been adjudicated yet. So they couldn't actually uh, put that into the story. But anyway. And, and to me, it's be, I, I hope this documentary that comes out of adversity blues is good. And, and it shines light on the insanity of forget paying half a million dollars to get your kid into the school and faking the application, you know, just the insanity that you, at the age of 18, you're admitted into this special club and then your life is set. Right. Well, that's the fantasy. And that's what these guys were trading on uh, with, with the corruption and the briberies. But it is sad. And it's sad for the kids, the amount of pressure. And I felt it in the mid 80s having to apply to colleges, but I know from kids today and my girlfriend tutors some kids, one kid who's applying to even get into a a special high school, which requires a portfolio and the pressure that like a 13 year old is under. And it it really is, it's all this status anxiety, this concern. Yes, status anxiety. If you don't make it into this thing, it's somehow a judgment on your entire worth as as a creature on the planet. It's a terrible system. And it really does tie into what you were talking about earlier about the degree thing, because there's that fantasy built in there that that degree is going to confer success upon you. When in fact, in the job market, it just ain't. It's just going to create arrogance, unearned arrogance, arrogance, and also obsolescence. There's tons of people. Yeah, there's tons of people graduating with those Ivy League degrees. They don't do it. The guy who learns how to be a pilot, that's a guy who's going to have a job. Right. So it is it is ass backwards. It's completely ass backwards. I agree. It's mostly for the parents' narcissism. A parent who really cares about their child 
in a million years would never pay for this kid to get into anything because you know that the kid is going to find this out at some point and feel like a total fraud. So this has nothing to do with the kid. That's to do with the parents. Don't you think all children of the wealthy should, I'm being serious, shouldn't all, culturally speaking, shouldn't all children of the wealthy feel like frauds? Shouldn't that be gnawing away at them? No, no, no. I, I, some, absolutely. But I've um, worked with people who were born into great wealth and they earned everything they got. They earned every degree they got. They, um, they, they went into fields and worked very hard, just like anybody else, and succeeded on their own merits. There are some people like that. But, but what, what, I'm being serious, doctor. Looking at our, the, the sickness of this country, don't you think if you're, you know, Howie, uh, what's his name? Uh, Mandel? No, somebody uh, even more talented. Howie Buffett, Warren Buffett's son, who is a, uh, a farmer and works the farm, but mm -hmm. he's been educated. You know, he got the best education. Or Bill Gates' daughter, who's in medical school. Don't you think, culturally speaking, they should be allowed to strive like Gates's daughter should you know, God bless her, go be a doctor and heal the world. But she should always be haunted by the the knowledge. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. I, no, I, it just sounds like you might be overstating it. Maybe they should have a little bit of guilt or awareness. Yes, of, absolutely. Yeah, but not haunted. And especially in the case of, I, you might find this objectionable, but Gates has given away, you know, 90% and he's become a philanthropic. But that's not his off. money to give away. That's... That's a tax dodge. If he had paid tax, he should be paying the taxes and we should vote on where he donates that money. But that's a different issue. OK, but um, no, I, I don't. Anyway, I, I just I think it's a personal thing. <clears throat> but I, I did read uh, uh, Snowball. There's this book, Snowball. It's the biography of Buffett and his relationship to his kids, as far as the money goes, was very interesting. And I think very healthy. Because he made he he was aware of how ruinous it could be to the kid to have unlimited wealth based on none of their own work. So he instilled in them a, an, an ethic in each of his kids. I think they, each one only gets a billion, right? Just to keep no, them no, no, it, no, no, no. It was, it was much less. It was a very small, <laughs> really, small amount, and they all worked. Yes, no, no, no. I'm not kidding. Read it. It's a good book. Wait, 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 wait. I hate the rich. Yeah, you do. Should somebody? Should somebody feel guilty about being born into poverty? That's, but, but they are, they do. That's the system. We in this system, I believe, people are trained to feel guilty for being poor. Well, that's also that pure that 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 uh, Puritan ethic. That's the idea that you're somehow damned. Your poverty is God's judgment upon your house. So I think that we have a cultural bent towards that. I don't think you should feel guilty about any of the circumstances of your birth, just like you shouldn't feel pride in it. 
That's okay. Well, that's for sure. I yeah. agree with that completely. People who yeah. are proud of their this or that, 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 that they just happened into. That's ludicrous. Yeah. yeah. This idea in this country that work, that your identity, your sense of self is your work. That, that we were talking about this. I don't know where we weren't talking about this last week. Were we about our sense of self in America is, what do you do for a living? You couldn't treat. Let me ask Ethan this. Yes. <laughs> you can't treat a patient. I can't. It's full stop. Well, but, because but between you and me, but between <laughs> you and me, you do okay, a little. Yeah. You do. A little, you have a bit of a side hustle. A it's a side gig. It's yeah. a side hustle. Yeah. yeah. Uh, could you treat a grown man and never know what he does for a living? No, it would be impossible. To right. Again, it depends upon your your uh, your your therapeutic modality. Like if you're a good dodge, if if, good. That's a if, good dodge. No, no, but if you <laughs> I do, like that. If you do what Dr. Philip Hershenfeld does, you have to get into their work because I think Freud said, it's all about the love and the work. It's, it really be, comes down to your, the people you love and your, your, your loving other humans and then your, your investment in your work. So the work becomes part of that thing. But if you're, for example, a Reiki master where all I have to do is, through through my hands or even through the phone lines or through zoom to send healing energy from the universe through the ether into your soul and body then i don't really it doesn't matter what you do so i guess some therapists it doesn't matter what you do dr hershenfeld freud said that love and work uh, that human beings find their happiness through love and work and, and that treatment frees people up to do both of those extremely important things. He did feel that they were very important. And I, I think I agree with him. On that. And if, you're a, if you're a hooker or a pimp, your love is your work. <laughs> also true. So that's a shorter treatment. It takes about uh -huh. half the time. Mm -hmm. However... I could certainly envision a psychoanalytic treatment where the focus is on the relationship with the app between the analyst and the patient, where it never has to come up. It's an irrelevant detail. It's so, that theoretically possible. So what what do you say to uh, Warren Buffett's kid or Bill Gates's kid or Jeff Bezos's kid who says, uh, I don't need to work. What would Freud's answer be? That you have to have something meaningful to do with your life because you're not going to feel good about yourself. And the meaningful thing could be going around and finding projects that need your financial support. That's meaningful. And Ethan, could somebody be happy being mm -hmm. the child, we were. Uh, Tom Weber does the uh, did a thing on. Uh, we're talking about spirituality, and uh, somebody was saying during the the session about fascism that there are fascists uh, and racists who ha who have a sense of their own spirituality and 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 goodness. Could you be the, you know a the son of a billionaire have a billion dollars in your your bank account and be racist and homophobic and hateful of of most people and 
see two types of people, the wealthy and the poor, and not want to pay taxes? And, and could you have a, a healthy emotional and in, in, internal life thinking that way? Seriously. Can, can a person cut themselves off? Can a person have a lot of money uh, and not believe in democracy, believe that there are two types of people, the servants and the people who need to be served, and, and have an emotionally rich and healthy life? I would say that a person could could find a way to insulate their personal life from their work life. Uh, like you, you hear, you read stories of these concentration camp overseers who then had a house nearby where they had this happy family. But of course, that's just a an illusion. That's, that's not a really not a complete full. <laughs> no, I'm being serious. No, I, I don't know. In a in a universal sense, a person. I mean, we're people all day. We are people walking in the house, and then we're people walking out of the house among among strangers. You're you're still a person, and the rules apply in your relationship to those people and how you treat them. It matters just the same how you treat the strangers to how you treat the people close to you, and how you treat the animals and how you treat the humans. It all matters. I think it should all be given equal weight. So no, that. Person person who who's a son of a bitch in their politics and in their uh, view of the world who then happens to be nice to a wife and a couple of kids no that's not a happy well-adjusted or spiritually uh in uh, elevated human absolutely not dr hershenfeld can can somebody can somebody live a life that you wouldn't approve of but have, uh, but still be psychologically balanced and fulfilled, even though you don't approve of what that person is doing? My approval or disapproval truly is irrelevant. It doesn't play a role here. What plays a role to be healthy, I think, is to have a, as much as you can, a, a realistic, non-delusional appreciation of what you're doing and how you're behaving in the world. And to use Ethan's example of the concentration camp commandant who has his, goes home and loves his children and um, plays Beethoven um, on the piano, uh, he's extremely unhealthy. He's managed to, to, to a psychotic degree, let's say, to deny a huge part of what's going on around him, what he's doing every day, what the effects are of what he's doing. So in no way could I call that healthy. Uh, we have limited time here. Uh, there was a guy named uh, Dr. Ronnie Jackson. He's now a, a congressman. He got elected. Yes, I couldn't believe that that guy won. He, I mean, he won that seat. Holy smokes. Yeah. Yeah. He was a rear admiral and he was Donald Trump's personal physician in the last couple of years of the White House. Right. And he had the managerial style of, of Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> yes. 
and drunk also. He, he and, was, and he's and a drinker, and he was also a doctor. Feel good. He was handing out uh, if you needed some Xanax or some uppers, downers, all arounders. He was the guy. This is according to an inspector general report. Yeah. And he was on Ambien, he was drinking, and when he traveled with the president, he's supposed to not touch anything when he's around the president. He was drinking and sexually harassing uh, White House staffers. The list of people who worked in the Trump administration of drug addicts, uh, 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 spousal abuse, it just goes on and on and on. That's not surprising, right? It, it should no longer surprise us that that Donald Trump's personal physician, the guy he entrusts his life with, that doctor can't even take care of himself is is yeah. is dangerous. That goes with the territory, right? Totally. They say in Italian, they say uh, il pesce puzza dalla testa. The fish stinks from the head. Right. So mm. the fish stinks from the head. That's and, it. And, That's and so it. somebody like you, Ethan, mm -hmm. what would happen to you? Well, I'll ask Dr. Hirschenfeld. What would happen if Ethan, who is a good person, right? He is. Actually. What would happen to him at the White House? So he, he gets hired to work in that White House. I would get harassed by all those guys. They would be grabbing my ass left and right, I can tell you. <laughs> He would be tested, right? They would they would try to figure out if he was demented. And what? It, oh, you know, I, I happen to be friends with a guy from college whose brother was the one guy in that White House who was wearing a mask. So he was the guy who was in charge of China and she was the expert on China and China policy. And he was a pariah. They treated him like a maniac. They treated him like a, a freak, like a member, someone who wouldn't join the cult. And he had to really stand his ground. He was one of, I think, maybe the only one who, who had the, the inner fortitude to do that. And what is at when, Go ahead, Doc. When Trump hires a doctor to take care of him, for the White House. He has no interest in the man's qualifications, where he went to medical school, whether or not he knows anything, whether he's a drunk or, or a pimp or whatever. He hires everybody on the basis of his allegiance to Donald Trump. So none of these other things would matter. He couldn't possibly hire anybody with any integrity or intelligence. The guy actually said something about his DNA. He said, he said, this guy's DNA, this is what that this 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 quack said about Trump. He said, this guy's DNA is so incredible. If it wasn't for such and such, he would live to a he would live to two hundred. Right. If he could stop eating fast food. Yeah, if he stopped eating fast food, he lived to just, an, just a, a numbskull. Right. And Dr. Borstein, the other doctor who just passed away, oh, yeah. said he's oh, the really? healthiest man I've ever treated. Right. Uh, you know, for oh. young people who are just starting out in in the in the work world, uh, I want to ask Dr. Hershenfeld about this, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Uh, I remember Serpico in the movie. He yeah. wouldn't. He was a cop. He wouldn't go on the take. Right. And the other cop said to him, take the money. 
He said, I don't want it. But just take it to prove that you're one of us. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't want the money. You know, give it to charity, but just take it so we can trust you. And he wouldn't take the money. And uh, some think he, you know, the, 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 the cops try to have him killed. Uh, when you're in a work situation and you're a good person and you're, you find yourself being abused by everyone around you, it is conceivable. As Ethan said, the fish is rotting from the head down and that there's a, is there a monkey brain at play here where they, they're not consciously deciding to attack you, but their monkey brain knows that if you're a good person, you have to be, you're a threat. You're a threat. Yeah. But they're not aware. They don't, they're not necessarily aware. that. I'm sorry. I don't think this is a conscious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's that whole, it's that club. You're on the team. You got the varsity letter. You're part of the click and it just feels it's then this, the next steps of, of becoming part of the abuse. I think it's just, it's, it's natural unless you have a really strong character, which these people right. don't. Fantastic. David, I'm going to test your character right now and criticize you. How's that? Let's okay. Take it. I disagree with what you said earlier about humor. There, there, there can be such a thing as humor without aggression. Even, even the example you used of sleep dragging, there's a lot. of. It's very funny. But there's a huge amount of aggression. Oh, yeah. yeah. You don't have to be like Don Rickles' aggression, but any degree of humor to have some kind of a bite but I think that he was just saying that I'm, that that Mike's that Mike's stand-up wasn't aggressive. Not yeah, that his yeah, writing I, for TV. Yeah, that, that his yeah. stand-up comedy wasn't aggressive, but his, that was writing for TV. Right. I think it's, it's different. I I would say that something about his stand-up had to have a. I agree with you. I, think, I I we'll wrap it up because I uh, okay. always pleasure. But uh, Doctor, I always think the great comics are the ones who sugarcoat their aggressive joke so much that you don't know how aggressive it is. Absolutely. That's why I don't like Rickles. I I just, at all. Right. Fantastic. Thank you, Dr. Hershenfeld. Really, really great. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you. Let us now go to, is it Malibu? The, The columnist for the Malibu Times, Bert Ross joins us. Look at that. Now, you're, you're a humor column. You're a humor columnist. I first of all want to wish everybody listening a happy inauguration day. Yes. Today is March 4th. Yes. I watched, I watched on television and the way, the manner in which Donald Trump held himself <laughs> as he was inaugurated made, made every cue in my body stand up. Every cue, yeah. Every, every cue. You know what's amazing? Earlier today, I said, you know, I have nothing to talk about. And then I made 17 notes. <laughs> and, and that doesn't seem to be the problem. The, 
We are, first of all, is that John Hayes in the middle? Yes, it is. I am such an idiot. It took me about 20 minutes to figure out that it wasn't John Hayes. I said, I think he's sitting there with his arms folded. and He's going to be on later. But but it it takes me, I am not keeping up with technology. This is true, by the way. If there were, God forbid, a bomb and everybody in the world were killed except me, Mm -hmm. we wouldn't even be back to the Stone Age. I agree. I don't think I, I don't think I could create a wheel. I have no idea how anything works. I don't know how electricity works. I know I plug something in. I don't know how a television works. Uh, to me, this Zoom technology—you got to be kidding me! Or, or I call it Mr. Shazam. You're you're walking by and you hear some music, and a guy holds up his cell phone and says, "Ah, that's the Beatles, 1960." Give me a break. And we we take all of this. In stride. By the way, I got two vac. I got my two shots. I am fully vaccinated. There were no side effects at all. That's another thing. I have no idea. I read about it. I have no idea how this happens. It's all. I call it. I put it all under the category of black magic. I mean, do you understand any of this technology? Really? I can. Uh, I can work Zoom. I can't invent That's it. What I'm talking about. I can't invent Zoom. I, I can't invent. If you, if we, if you and I were the only two people alive yes. in the world, yes. wouldn't we back? Wouldn't we be back back to square square zero? No. If you and I were the only people alive on the planet, Adam. Yes, Cain and Abel. You tell me. I got. Yeah, it. I know. Okay. We'd be dead. <laughs> Do you know? There's a, there's you know who Mandy Patinkin is, right? Good actor. Great actor. Pain in the ass. I saw, him, I saw him interviewed, and he was extraordinarily hyper. Yeah, he's a, he's a, a, a needy, uh, but he's a you know great actor. Uh, and his son is uh, quarantining with Mandy and his wife somewhere in the woods and is filming Mandy Patinkin each day. And you can see it on Twitter. And it's fantastic. It's probably Mandy Patinkin's greatest work. And one of the videos that he has up right now is Mandy Patinkin fixing, un, un, doing plumbing underneath the kitchen sink. And I let thought me, of... Uh, let, me, let me get this right. Yes, go ahead. I know this is why I thought of you. Go ahead. You are suggesting... Mandy P- Patinkin... I watch... Mandy Patinkin, or anybody else for that matter. Yes. Fixing, fixing his kitchen sink. Underneath, crawling underneath with a miner's lamp on his head. And yes, I, I, by the way, I'm not on Twitter. I'm not on Facebook. I am, I, I am, I am going to try to get through life without that. Okay, but you all, you know, Mandy Patinkin keeps Yiddish theater going. He is a, is it called a Jew? Is that what you are? Do, is, that, is it okay to say... That you are a Jew? I refer in my column always to a member of my tribe. Okay. And and, and you call yourself... You're of the Jewish persuasion, I believe, Mandy. The people who speak Yiddish would be of the... Is it Jew? My father, maybe rest in peace, tells me that he used to go to the Yiddish theater, which is, you know, what was prevalent in those days. And... 
people from the audience would yell out, watch her, watch her. She's dangerous from the from the from the balcony. Right. They would contribute to the. Now, you and I, you, you recently have said who, you know, I'm a Jew. We're a people of the book. We, you know, we. I said that. Yeah, that you were raised. What, 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 what book? I don't know. I, I'm not. Okay. By the way, I referred to a book the other day yes. that I'm reading. I want to say that Keep Death Near to Me is one of the worst books I've ever read. read. Really? Because the title sounds so intriguing and, and light. It is, um, it is a lengthy book about a girl young woman who was killed at Harvard. And, oh, yeah, again, uh, Harvard. Can we well, forget, have one? Uh, at college. She was, a, a young woman was killed at college. And Which college? And, Which college was college, she killed? At college. It doesn't matter. But I, I need to know what college. No. <laughs> what college? Okay. It's important to me to know where, what college she was killed the at. point, I have a friend who wrote a book, which I cannot mention, but a, a critic referred to it as no index card was left behind. Mm -hmm. And so after plotting through this, I not only didn't care who killed this young woman, <laughs> but that she had been killed. I mean, it was, I, I was just <laughs> to God. I mean, as she goes through and spends 20 years of her life interviewing every person who possibly could have been involved in the murder and what they had for breakfast and what they were wearing. Yes. Anyway, books so, are too long. I've been saying that for years and there should be uh, no poetry. We need to get rid of poetry. Uh, do you want, do you want poetry? You I'm want so poetry, you know, play, read Plato's Republic, get rid of poetry. That's your mission. Yes. You're that's not a your, poet. That's your new cause. Think clearly. Poetry. poetry is for people who can't express themselves clearly. Just say it. What's on your mind? Don't be, well, I have to spend four hours trying to untangle E.E. E. Cummings and, and the punctuation. It's just a, a string of sentences without punctuation. Oh, I wrote a run-on sentence. I must be a poet. Do you realize, John... John Hayes is not laughing at anything you say. Which I, I don't care. We need to get rid of poetry. I agree with Plato. Plato excuse me. Plato Nobody said, likes poetry. Plato, Plato said, let's get rid of poetry. He, yes, he said poetry. It, it's deceptive. Why would you celebrate something that isn't clear? Something that clouds the mind. Nobody likes Poetry. The only reason you like poetry is because you know what this is about and I don't. Nobody goes, oh, gee, I can't wait to, wait to read T.S. Eliot. Do the people, do the people who are watching this. All poetry sucks they, is what I'm saying. Do they, do they understand the brilliance with which they are being met? <laughs> the depths, the depths of what you just shared with us all. Well, I'm just sick of people. Now, do you remember Ogden Nash? I, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I wrote a poem to celebrate his death. There once was a man named Ferlinghetti who used to eat a lot of spaghetti. I don't know. He opened a store called City Lights. I don't know. Something. Which, by the way, 
is my favorite movie of all time. City Lights. Out there, City Lights by my, by uh, Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin. I like. I, I love the great uh, modern times. City Lights but is the best. I think it's as good a movie as was ever made, and it's and and it's a silent movie. I laughed and cried. That last scene is. I have. I have a photograph of him holding the flower. Oh, my God. Where he realizes. Oh, no. I have that photo. Yes, I'm getting the chills. By the way, did you ever see the documentary made in the 80s? It's narrated by James Mason about the making of City Lights. How many takes he did. It's all been captured on film. He would shoot and shoot and shoot and then where, re- I see, where can i see that look up it's probably on uh, sorry youtube he okay. it was a british documentary about chaplin that came out in the 80s oh, yeah. seriously everybody who's listening to this if you haven't seen city lights it is genius and you realize the power of emotions that there isn't a single word spoken and I think uh, talkies had already come into being, and he's still. May, you may so. be correct, but it was still very early on. What, what's remarkable is that many, many film stars lost their career when they went into talkies because they had terrible voices. Right. That was not true of Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin had a beautiful voice. I think he was in a film called Mr. Uh, Mr. Ver- Verdue. Um, Monsieur Verdue, the uh, serial killer, the man who would marry and then kill their wives. I don't know. I don't remember. Have you seen the kid? Have you seen the kid recently? No. Go see the kid. It was right after his baby. He had a uh, a baby mm. that died. Mm. And then he made the kid. Have you been watching the um the Allen and Farrow or Farrow and Allen a documentary on HBO about Woody Allen and Mia Farrow? Yes. I read his book and now I'm watching that. Um yes. Any thoughts? Yes. What are yours? No, I'm asking you. I, I want to know what you think. Well, how can you say that? You, <laughs> you're. How okay. can I say well? Or, or yeah, I mean, I mean, how dare you? Your view. I. I the thing that gets me. He, in his book, he talks about how. She was a terrible mother. And when she noticed, since they were supposed to still be together to some extent, they lived separately, but there was still an item. Uh, she found in his, in, uh, his apartment n- photos of a naked Sunni, his, her daughter. Very graphic, uh, like hustler type. Happened, everything that's happened he says, is her revenge based on that. But what I say is, I don't care if she was, there's some argument as to whether he says she was a first year in college or she was a senior in high school. To be taking photos of your girlfriend's daughter and having sex with her is enough to say fet. That doesn't mean, by the way, he's he's an absolute genius. There's no question he's a comic genius. But that, that's, that's sick. If that isn't sick, then we might as well 
hang up right now and go to see the rest of today's inauguration. So, uh, but do you think, by the way, I uh, once won a a prize. It wasn't a raffle or something. I I guess I bid on it when he used to perform every Monday night at Michael's pub. He would play the clarinet with a group. And uh, I was going to meet Woody Allen during one of the breaks between the sets. So I'm there and and the set breaks and and, um, somebody comes up to me and says, you can now meet Mr. Allen. And we're walking up the aisle and all of a sudden I see he is talking to an extraordinarily gorgeous young woman. And I said, no, no, thank you. I'm not interrupting that. Goodbye. And I've never met him, which is fine by me. Do you want me to read you? I just want to say something in in relation to that, Uh, because... I find the the HBO uh, documentary, uh, it's disturbing to me because I don't like the way I'm feeling watching it and and what I'm thinking. Um, And the real issue is Soon Yi and the the, the daughter Dylan. That, you know, you know, she was. Did he do something to her? And I'm going to confess to something that that I think a lot of people are guilty of. There's a there's a comic named Chris D'Elia. You don't know who he is, and you shouldn't. I might if I saw if I saw his face, I might. You know, he's and when I was living in L.A., still doing stand-up, he would come in and. You know, I'd watch him, and he's like a cover band. He's he's one of those actors who learned, like, just grew up watching stand-up specials and just picked up the chord progressions, but it's uninspired, but it's it's mm-hmm. a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing. He's everything that's wrong with stand-up comedy. And uh, not a bad actor. But he's everything that's wrong with stand-up comedy. And, you know, as somebody who struggles as a stand-up comic, you, you go, this is not, this is, this is garbage. And when he was busted for what now looks like child pornography, uh, my reaction, because I don't like his stand-up, was not uh, was not good uh, because there may or may not have been there probably was a high school student who was violated. Uh, there's something very disturbing about all this and what what it brings out in terms of Schadenfreude and what what people like me find satisfying or disturbing. And I, and I don't like these stories. Um, I don't like the, I don't like what it brings out in me. What, what does it bring out in you? I, I'm, um, you don't have to be a poet to be unclear. David. I, I think sometimes, uh, we don't, I don't think enough about the victims. 
I think more about uh, the. Uh, I'm going to be careful what I'm saying here. I, it, these are disturbing stories. Okay, I, you're trying to say something, but I'm. But you're holding back, and so I don't really know. Well, let me not trying to be too cryptic, but yeah. when Bill Clinton. Uh, violated Monica Lewinsky, even though Absolutely. she, even though she was twenty-two uh, or twenty-three. But it was a position of power, and but, uh, but most people really didn't care about Monica Lewinsky. Ken Starr didn't care about Monica Lewinsky. Not at all. Right. Not at all. And so I think, uh, do we really care about Dylan Farrow? Does HBO really care about Dylan Farrow? The the no, no. well look the and, and with Chris D'Elia, do we really care reason, about the reason, the reason this is agenda. on HBO is because the subject matter is Woody Allen. In the case of Bill Clinton, who was impeached, it was because it was Bill Clinton. Now, had Monica Lewinsky been Sophia Loren and, and somebody famous who, as a girl, was molested, you could do a documentary and it would be because of the victim in that case. Right. It's it has to do with celebrity. Where where? Yeah, I mean, do you when you watch the Woody? I mean, I'm ashamed to tell you that I, there's a part of me that wants to rewatch uh, the Woody Allen documentary. Because it's a glimpse into his life. Like, I'm watching it because he's so secretive and I've been so fascinated by him. Yeah, but I wouldn't, feel, I wouldn't feel guilty about it. I, um, well, then, should it have been made then? What is the, to what end is this documentary? To, to do what? It's, it is giving you some insight about somebody very famous and a lot of our entertainment has to do with famous people and, we, and i guess this helps dylan right she she well she i i cannot i cannot imagine that that a number of the people uh are getting paid for it i wouldn't be surprised if in order to make the documentary mia or her daughter i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that but they also have a sense that he has gotten away with this, uh, his reputation fairly intact, and um, their son, who has who has become a great crusader crusader in, in these kinds of matters, certainly doesn't want his uh, stepfather or whatever he was. I uh, I don't know. I, I think adopted father. I think um, supposedly that uh, 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 Satchel Ronan. Mm -hmm. Is supposed to be the birth father, though some people say Sinatra may be the father. That, but the adopted Moses, uh, a, a well, still, I think is still friendly with Woody. Moses says he, you know, didn't do it's it. A, Does it, it belong out in so the open, or is this a, shouldn't this it's be so extraordinarily unusual in every way? I mean, imagine. What's also remarkable is he has 
despite this extraordinary beginning where he is fucking his girlfriend's daughter either in high school or the beginning of college, which is beyond the beyond, they have been married. They weren't married. Something for 35 years. Oh, he's married to Soon Yi for- Yes. Right. So in every way, it is extraordinarily different. Well, he's not going to, he can't, he he can't, he can't divorce her. She can divorce him. But yeah, but they're, they. It doesn't matter. I'm not sure they're not happy together. It's just a, it's something that's very hard to get your arms around. It's, it's, it's quite unique. I don't think they're, my English teacher would be very angry with me. It's either unique or it's not unique. Right. There are not deg- degrees of uniqueness. Yeah. You sound good, David. I sound good? Yes. In what way? A lo- there have been times on this show where you're, you're droopy. You, you feel like, uh, you know, I listen to you and it seems like you've had a long, a long day. Sometimes you sound like me at the end, like, like me at the end of yesterday, I, I was with my bride and we spent four hours picking fabric. <laughs> I would, I would rather, I'm being literal. I would rather get root canal work. I, this month will turn 78 and I real I like to do things with numbers. And I realized that I got married when I was 39 I divided 78 by two into 78 and got 39. And I realized that starting in a few weeks, I will have spent half my life with the same person. And what's remarkable is that every day thereafter, that percentage will grow. And because she's 14 and a half years younger, she has for a long time- I'm glad you said years younger. What? I'm glad you said younger because she's yeah. 14 years well, younger. And I have been accused by one of my friends of marrying a child bride. And I make it very clear to him that even though there's 14 and a half years difference, I was not dating her when she was born and I was a teenager, nor was I dating her when she was in high school and I was mayor. She was a respectable 25 when we got married, and I 39. And I think she was old enough to know what she meant when she said yes at our wedding, hopefully. And you do love her. She needs to mature more in order to get vaccinated. Right. You do love her. Are you kidding? No, I'm saying you do. I mean, I my love of my life. Yes, it's very apparent. So half half of my life has been great. Um, so let me. You got a minute for a quick column? Yes, please. This is your most recent column in the Malibu this, this Times. Came out of the Malibu Times. It's a. If you go online to the Malibu Times and you go to the section opinion or put my name in uh, under blogs, there it will be with hundreds of others. It's called a rough night. My bride and I have been together for over 38 years and we have shared the same bed during that time. We hold each other throughout the night and every now and then in a magnificently choreographed motion 
we rotate from one side to the other. <laughs> we uncouple, turn 100 degrees as 180 degrees as one, and then hold each other once again. Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers would envy our coordinated <laughs> movement. You might think that this marital bliss is without a hiccup, but of course you would be wrong. Occasionally, one of us pulls the sheet and comforter with greater strength than the other one does. The result is one of us monopolizes the covering. The results of this tug of war are sometimes not known until we awaken. <laughs> one morning I woke up chilled to find that I was completely uncovered. My bride was also without sheet or comforter, but that did not stop me from accusing her. Honey, why did you pull everything off of me? I did no such thing was her quick response. I should have quit while I may not have been ahead, but at least I was not behind. <laughs> you pulled everything your way and I am cold. There was a pause and then more silence. Silence is most often not good for the home team. Finally, the response came, honey, where are the sheets and comforter? I initially felt this was a fair and pertinent question. I looked around and sure enough, right on the floor by my side of the bed was a heap containing said sheets and comforter. I reported my findings to my bride for some reason, not understanding this was evidence, but again, not for the home team. <laughs> Honey, if the pile is on the floor on your side of the bed, then how could I have been the one who did all the pulling? <laughs> Sherlock Holmes has nothing on my bride. All I could say in response was, hmm. And once again, the home team lost. So Kind of uh, hang on, you're stepping on your applause there. Yeah, I, uh, it's amazing. Do you have booze too? You have like a booze? booze like James Corden? I'm sorry? Do you have a booze button too, like James Corden? He has a boo yeah. booze oh, as in applause. He has a boo. He has all kinds of things. Nobody would boo you. Do you ever watch him? He's quite uh, entertaining, I find. James Corden. Yes. Yes, he's fantastic. I used to like Stephen Colbert, and I think he is extraordinarily talented. But for reasons I'm not quite sure of, uh, ever since he's been confined, uh, it's been terrible. It's, it's almost painful to listen to. Well, uh, when, the tide, when the tide pulls out, you can see who's wearing a bathing suit or not. What's that expression? <laughs> Something like when you remove the audience, the you can actually listen. I'm not saying anything. I, I love Stephen Colbert, but when no, I, I, I'm very fond of him, and yet I don't watch this stuff because I don't want to be influenced by it. And uh, you know what that reminds me of? My ex sister in law, the mother of my nieces, who's a Holocaust survivor who was raised in, in Stockholm, Sweden, had an uncle who was head of the Swedish Opera House. Uh, and I remember his last name was Bendix. And I remember uh, noting that he had in his home no albums at all. And I, I, it struck me as quite odd. 
since he was not only a lover of music, but a, a major conductor. He says, I, I don't want to uh, be influenced by the others. So yeah. that's, that's the connection. It was not dementia that you were hearing. Right. We'll talk to you next week, sir. Yes, sir. Same time, same station. Thank you. Bert Ross, read him over at the map. I just want to just want to remind you the uh, the bribe. What was it? A half a million dollars? Yeah. Yes. How many years ago you turned down a, a bribe from the mafia? How many years ago? 1974. You know, this. Let me just uh, let me just say just yeah. to remind you, had you taken the bribe and, and bought a couple of shares of Apple? That five, the $500,000 today would be worth, I bet, 700. I can't do the math. But <laughs> 700,000. It, it would be at least 700,000. <laughs> I'll talk to you next be week. Well. Thank well, you. Well. We have Bye, uh, Bye. The, Reverend nice. Barry, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is about to join us, but I do want to remind everybody that we're doing something really big. Really big, huge Friday night starting at eight o'clock. It's office hours and hours. Now it's eight starts at eight p.m. Eastern Friday night. Office hours always starts eight p.m. Eastern Friday night, but we are going till ten p.m. Eastern on Saturday night. Ten p.m. It ends. Lectures, music, comedy, and conversation. Office hours. Join us for like 26 hours. It's going to be a marathon. To sign up, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the attend office hours menu. If you've already been attending office hours, I think that link, I think that link will, uh, I think it will work. Well, one of the people who will be uh, joining us for office hours is our next guest, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn for nearly a quarter of a century, ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And he's not just a lawyer. He's not just a member of the Supreme Court bar. He is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. And he will be at office hours. You will be doing a lecture on pornography. Please welcome the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Well, I have to give you a compliment. You have to give me a what? A co- you look great. You have a haircut? Yes, I did. I got my third haircut in the last year. And the guy who cut my hair looked at this at the end and said, I, you, not you, me, look 10 years younger. You do. You do absolutely. Really? Yeah. That's why I started shaving again. Yeah. There, there, there comes a point where what was once cute is uh, decrepit. <laughs> you never know when it, like there was a time when I would walk around unshaven and people go, Ooh, I, I, that's a cool look. And now they go, are you depressed? Yes. And grooming, grooming becomes, you reach a certain age where it's time to, uh, to groom. So you'll be talking about the Meese Commission. Right. Ed Meese, who was the attorney general, second attorney general under Ronald Reagan, uh, inherited something that his predecessor had set up, a commission to study pornography. 
but in, and it had 11 members, and I'll talk a little bit about each one of them. And uh, the exciting time I had. I bet. I was constantly excited. Mm-hmm. And uh, Were you I, married at the time? Yes, I was. In fact, this I probably won't say in, in office hours, but I'll reveal it here. Uh, I used to get calls from fairly f- famous adult film actresses of that era, and uh, so I get a couple, and I said to Joanne once, you know, so-and-so called me, and uh, she didn't never forget, Barry, that these people would not speak a word to you if you weren't defending their interest, because I was at the ACLU mightily defending their interest. Right, right. And I maintain my marriage. And defending and their interest and uh, your interest as well. <laughs> <It> was... <laughs> I had very little interest. I, I only developed a kind of interest in pornography after spending all this time with, with this stuff and learning that people who don't like pornography in general, not all of them, but in general, what they really don't like is the fact that there are people who are engaging in things they don't do and they don't like. So that's why they're against gay pornography more because it's gay than the fact that it's explicit. Let me let me push back on sure. that a little, okay? Okay. People who know me and you know uh, pornography I have no problem with pornography. Uh but I do think, uh, and, I, and I think there's a time and a place for pornography. And, you know, sometimes you, I can't tell the difference between art and pornography. People should be allowed to watch pornography. Okay. Am I wrong for saying, and I kind of believe this, that... You know, what do you tell your kids? What do you tell yourself? Uh, You know, my father told me there's no shame in masturbation. And, you know, you'll think a lot clearer if you do it. You know, and that's what I told my, at least my sons. Uh, um, But... People should, there should be something about pornography that, like, you don't want your son or daughter to go into that. Right. Uh, right? And you don't want your son or daughter to direct it, produce it. You don't want to pass judgment on them for watching it and they should be allowed to watch anything within, you know, that's legal. Sure. Uh, but it's not something to be, it's not something that's shameful, but it's also not something uh, if you're unable to be in a, you know, a lot of people can't be in a relationship. Right. And this is, uh, you know, uh, but if you're, able-bodied and and you're somewhat your brain is functioning properly and uh you'd be better off 
not watching it. Is that a fair statement? Why would you be better off not watching it? Can't you just be neutral about it? You know, I was on Good Morning America. Well, look, could you put a put a put a pin in that? I, I I don't mean to be uh, okay. disrespectful, but I can't help myself. Uh, <laughs> we may, I want to hear about Good Morning in America in a second. Um, again, there's nothing wrong with this, but if I were somebody's trainer, right. I would, you know. You live on the third floor, take the stairs, don't take the elevator. And, mm-hmm. you know, you're a young man. Yeah. Uh, put yourself out there, son. Don't don't take the don't get don't take. The, <laughs> what are you going to put? Where are you going to put this? This uh, son who's supposed to go out there, what is he supposed to do when he's out there? In, in the pandemic or in no, at any time forget now that the pandemic is over according to the governor of texas uh <laughs> what do you what where do you go what do you want him to do well I, to when he's out there to not retreat to a, a porn hub to to be in a real to try you know again i'm sure. i watch porn i'm not a, you know i'm not I'm not proud to say that I watch pornography. It's not something. Hey, come on in, come <laughs> on in. I'm just finishing up on yeah. this. Uh, I would prefer uh, the message to all of us be: you're better off if you can to meet another person. Yes. That's better. Isn't that better? I'm sorry. Well, why is it? No, I don't disagree with you. It would be wonderful if everybody found somebody and then that's the only interest they ever felt they needed. But that's a very, very small percentage of people in, in this country and even smaller in a lot of other countries. But but see, I think what what, people, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean that in general, we have a terrible divorce rate in this country. So most people who think they find somebody to spend their life with end up not spending their life with them. So they're looking for someone else. And and what is the role that pornography plays in that? I think um, there's, I've never seen any evidence except anecdotal evidence. And I know people who have been in relationships with, like this, where a woman, for example, is so gets so ticked off at the amount of time her husband is spending looking looking at pornography that she just gives up on him. Well, but wouldn't but in all seriousness somebody somebody reverend somebody in this country has to stand in judgment of others. Now as a reverend if you're not going to do that not about this somebody has to say there's a vast number of people and they're not all religious zealots some of them have a particular feminist ideology that says this stuff is so bad (laughs) that you shouldn't even allow it to be made so you say allow it to be made but i wish people didn't look at it 
Well, I'm being serious here. Again, I know you. Are. I have nothing against pornography. I, I, I don't. I don't. Uh, and it gets you through, you know, and blah blah blah. Let me just pour some water here. Right. But there is at least stuff. Maybe it's propaganda. You were on the Mies Commission. Maybe, mm-hmm. the, maybe, or you helped the um, Mies Commission. I, I watched them. I, I was at the ACLU, and uh, they okay. didn't have any civil libertarians when they first. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. But what I've read is that a lot of young men yep. spend five years watching porn before they're with a partner, and they, they're jumping ahead to things that even Caligula couldn't imagine. Is that true, that, that a lot of young men are supposedly suffering from impotence because porn has rewired their brains? Have you heard that? I've heard it. I, I mean, there's a lot of controversy about that, whether it has that kind of physiological effect. But I don't doubt that it does. The question really well, comes down to this. Let's say you find some of these harms. Let's say you say people's attitudes become horrible because they they watch this. And the question is, what do you do about it? Since everybody who uses this stuff doesn't have the same condition. They, the, the same bad things don't happen to them. Do we de- regulate things in America on the basis of its effect on the most suggestible, most vulnerable person who comes in contact with it? Well, you know as well as I do that it all starts with dancing. But oh, when- yeah. Of course it does. That's why as, as so many Baptists uh, uh, don't uh, they don't believe in having sex in public because they're afraid that people will see it and think they're dancing. <laughs> but um, I'm not saying, don't misunderstand me, I'm not saying that the government, I'm saying culturally, yeah. that there should be people in our culture who, who say it should be legal, mm-hmm. but... Is this really the best use of your time? That's all. You know, parents, for example. Parents should be telling their kids, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, unless you're watching something that's, you know. Terrible. uh, But but is this the best use of your... The same thing with video games. Is this this the best... You know, if you're watching this... And the problem, the problem is men. Hang on for one second, Reverend. Ice cream. I'm sorry? It's the same thing with ice cream. Should people eat so much ice cream? No. And there are people, there are plenty of people in the scientific world, the advocacy world, who say don't, I mean, don't eat meat. But but I also believe when it comes to ice cream, there they're societally speaking we have we're lousy with ice cream because of the agriculture bill and the lobbyists from the dairy industry and ice cream now is everywhere because they don't know what to do with the fat that they take out of the skim milk and the fat free cheese so culturally and politically 
the policy is to give milk subsidies and ice cream subsidies. So it's everywhere. Uh, I think that there's nothing wrong with ice cream, but it shouldn't be everywhere. And there's nothing wrong with pornography. The same way there's nothing wrong with gambling, but it shouldn't be everywhere. I shouldn't be watching Rachel Maddow and see James Good, uh, what, uh, Goodman the guy, uh, from Roseanne. What's his name? John, John Goodman. Adver- How much money does John Goodman need that he would whore himself to the working class who watch the Connors and Roseanne and tell them, you know what? What little money you have left? You can now gamble online. How much money does this man need that he would whore himself to endorse online gambling? It shouldn't. I don't think you should be allowed to advertise gambling on TV. I don't think casinos should be everywhere. Do you? The casinos aren't everywhere. And pornography isn't everywhere. I mean, you can walk down. It is in my house. Oh, <laughs> your house, maybe. You can walk down 99.8% of the streets in America and never see a pornographic image. But in those same blocks, you will see all kinds of other images on advertising, on billboards that make the same despicable, have the same despicable views of women that pornography is accused of promoting. It's the same thing. It's we live in such a patriarchal, misfit society that the contribution of pornography to the degradation of women is literally dwarfed by the images that you see in conventional television, regularly in the movies, and all the way down to cartoons. I mean, when I was on the watching the Porn Commission, you know, my my daughter was young, and she was. <laughs> She would watch these things called the Smurfs. There was a whole country somewhere of blue people. All of them were men except one little girl. They called her the Smurfette. And she giggled all the time and had no function in that society. That was one of the most popular children's cartoons. I would happily get rid of that before I get rid of Playboy, Penthouse, and 65 porno films that somebody might rent over the course of their lifetime. Right. I I agree with you. And I'm not talking about the government. I'm just talking about parenting. Yeah. And the the idea of a Smurfette where a a woman has to hide her intelligence is odious to me. Uh, I also think Gambling, I think gambling is wrong. I, of all of all the vices out there, yeah, I think gambling should s- certainly not be uh, endorsed by the state or run by the state. The idea of a lottery. Well, I hate the lottery. I hate the lottery. I hate casinos. That doesn't mean I never set foot in a casino, but. I I get bored in casinos very, very quickly because what is the point of sticking 75 cents in a slot machine and, uh, you know, hoping you'll win $75? But it it preys on people's 
psychological weaknesses and and their stupidity. They they brand they my problem, you know, I'm from New Jersey and I remember Atlantic City was supposed to be saved. I think it was in the late 70s when they introduced gambling. Sure. It was supposed to bring revenue and jobs. Well, but it didn't. And no, there's there's a DMZ. It's in, it's incredible if you yeah. go to Atlantic City. There's the boardwalk, the casinos, and then you yeah. cross the street, and it's empty homes and pawn shops. You got it. One pawn shop after another, and nobody can make the connection and say, why do they have pawn shops no. across the street from a casino? No. And nobody's smiling. Nobody's happy. Gambling, yeah. it should yeah. not be... The state should not be encouraging gambling. No, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, but there is there's no constitutional right to set up a place where people can think falsely that they're going to become wealthy if they just throw a dollar. And in these these advertisements you're talking about that are all over television about uh, internet gambling also are really disgusting because they make they suck you in. One of the ones that runs here in Washington, even though uh, I think with the exception of the Commonwealth of Virginia, there's no, the District of Columbia does not allow internet gambling. Neither does the state of Maryland. But the ad comes on. Here's a woman standing there and saying, sign up, get my app, spend $1.00. And if your team, basketball, your basketball team gets one three-point shot, you win $100. A hundred to one. A lot of people are going to win because a lot of games have three-point shots. And they're going to say, it's so easy. And then they're going to try it again and again. And That's again. how you deal heroin, isn't it? That's how you I don't know. Yeah, the first one's free with heroin. First one's free. Yeah. And so uh, you get them hooked. Yeah, but so you don't have a constitutional argument about gambling. You have vast amounts of economic data about how dangerous and how big a lie gambling is. There's an excellent book written about the development of Atlantic City called The Green Felt Jungle. I forget who wrote it, but it's still in print. And it's a wonderful look at what you just described. The casinos go up. There's poverty as soon as you get two blocks off the boardwalk. And there's enormous organized crime interest in the development. Of course, there was in Vegas, and there is in Atlantic City. And as there well. still is. Of course, there is. It's they're not. They're just not. The, the the mafia learned that it's not. The money's not in owning the casino. The money is in building the casino. Of course. Which is. Of which the government, the, the Justice Department doesn't keep track of. That's why the minute the Mirage went up and the minute the Venetian went up, they were adding on to it. Like, this is the world's biggest casino and we're adding on, like MGM Grand, we're adding. Why? Because it's the building. You know how, like, the medium is the message? The sure. building. The building is what this is all about. And the same applies to organized religion and mm. colleges and hospitals. That's, sure. that's the racketeering that goes on. 
I live near a hospital. They will never stop building. Of course not. And the names on these buildings near, near this hospital, they're all racketeers, Wall Street racketeers. Uh, Sandy Weil, Sandy Wheel from mm-hmm. Travelers, this thief. And he's donating all this money to this hospital for the Sandy Wheel wing. Wing. Yeah, and he, and and there isn't money laundering going on here, but it's for a good cause, right? He's a mixed bag. That's what my rabbi told me about Eli Brode. Yeah, he's a mixed bag. Why? Because he gives you money. Yeah, it's it's very tough. We we live in a very difficult world to maneuver. We we are constantly being. Uh, we're being lured by all kinds of false promises and to cut deals that we shouldn't be dealing. And, you know, uh, one of the things I'm delighted we ended up last week talking about Mira Tandon and I'm really glad she didn't get the job, but I'm not glad she didn't get it because she said nasty things about members of the Senate because I was frankly shocked when she tried to back away from that when she was asked constantly by Senator Kennedy of Louisiana. John Kennedy of Louisiana. John John Kennedy of Louisiana, which is really horrifying. But um, and he keeps asking her, did you mean it when you said it? And she wouldn't even say, um, yeah, I probably did. Or she had 200 people working for her at the Center for American Progress. She couldn't have said to somebody, you know, when this comes up, I'd like to be able to say, you know, I did mean it. And I also meant it when and then throw back something that he said, which he's done all the time about somebody else, one of his colleagues or somebody else in public life. And she just she couldn't bring herself to do that. And I know that feeling because Anybody who runs a charity of any kind, a nonprofit of any kind, you're always walking this line. And the line is, do I say to politicians what I really think about them or do I hedge my bets? Because who knows, maybe a month, maybe a year, maybe a decade from now, I'm going to need this person's help on some project where we can agree. But she obviously uh, had a lot of... uh, a lot of people she didn't say anything negative about that she should have. And that's why I think I'm happy she's gone. Yes. But my point here, these are the choices every person makes. And to the extent that you have a position in life, you're an elected official, you run an organization, you run a company, you run a department store, you have to make these choices more frequently. There's an old hymn. I used to love it. I used to have it sung every time I preach somewhere called Once to Every Man and Nation. This was uh, written uh, by a poet, actually. It was a poem before it was a hymn. Uh, The guy was an abolitionist. Uh, James Russell Lowell was his name. And he also was trying to prevent the entry of the United States into the war with Mexico in 1852. And I love the idea, once to every man and nation. And gradually, as I got into my 30s, I thought, you know, there's a fundamental lie about that line. Because countries and people don't get to just make one good choice 
and then pat themselves on the back and say, it came to me and I prevailed. Because every day you have those choices. Every year a country, including the United States, has questions, where does it go to war? How often does it use violent tactics? You don't get to do one good thing and then say, damn, I'm good, because it's just not enough. Well, let's talk about the Democrats and democracy. All right. Earlier, I was trying to give the Democrats some credit for H.R. 1 and trying to expand the or protect the right to vote in this country, the Republicans uh, on a granular level, state by state, are making it harder. Where they have the trifectas, they are making it harder for African-Americans to vote. They are in Georgia. There's a proposal to get rid of the Sunday voting that seems to be big with african-americans they go to go to the church and then they get on the bus and they vote i think georgia now wants to make it illegal for uh, uh philanthropists to donate money to help people get to the polls that's right the republicans are uh, making it impossible for poor people and African-Americans to vote. And that's why they cannot let go of the stolen election trope. That's right. It's not about Trump. It's about no. perpetuating the myth of voter fraud. Something Karl Rove started <laughs> When George W. Bush was president, that was what the original, if I recall, the original scandal in, involving the uh, attorneys, the, the, uh, the there was a, a scandal around 2004, 2005, where Karl Rove was firing Justice Department lawyers because they wouldn't prosecute right. voter fraud. Correct. And this was a big scandal. The, people was. were saying, why is Karl Rove firing lawyers in the Justice Department, and they all said, because we wouldn't prosecute voter fraud, because voter fraud doesn't exist. Exactly. This is something the Republicans have known for the past 20 years, that if you allow people to vote, then they won't get, they won't win. And Lindsey Graham last year and Donald Trump said, if we allow people to vote by mailing in their ballots, the Republicans will never get elected. They literally said that because it's true. The only way they can win is by suppressing the vote. But you yeah, can't suppress the vote without claiming voter fraud. Yeah, and that's pretty much what was admitted by the lawyer representing the state of Arizona. Just this week. Just this week. Yeah who was basically asked, I think, by uh, Justice Barrett, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, uh, well, well, kind of what's the bottom line? And what I don't understand what it is you're concerned about. And he said, 
because we, meaning Republicans, we won't win if we don't change these rules. He admitted it right before the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, I suspect, I'm not as positive as before I, I watched some of the, listened to some of the oral argument yesterday, but he, um, I think he's going to win. I think he's going to win. They're going to got even more of the Voting Rights Act. They don't believe, I earlier on the show I was talking about, I was watching Mark Green in 1993 debating William F. Buckley, the soul of the conservative movement, 93. And Buckley is saying there should be literacy tests that that not everybody should be allowed to vote, that we should make it harder, that some people are too stupid to vote. There are people in this country who don't believe in democracy. That's right. Now, are you going to tell me, though, that you never had a thought in the last couple of years, particularly in the last few months, when you look at the people who committed the acts of violence, I call them an insurrection, I know you don't, that you don't look at those people and listen to them be interviewed and go, how the hell do they even have the right to vote? And then you have to kind of slap yourself on the face and go, you can't go there. But that's an impulse. I doubt they even vote. I doubt they even vote. Well, we we now know that a lot of them that were in the Capitol on the 6th of January did not, in fact, vote. They just admitted it. But what you don't, you look at them and you say, how can people be this stupid? And then you look at these elected officials, Republican elected officials, like Governor Abbott of Texas. And you listen to him just one day after he announces that there'll be no mask mandate in the entire state and that there will be opening businesses at 100 percent capacity. And when he's asked about it, he looks into the camera and says, I believe those of us in Texas understand what we should do and we're going to do it even if there is no mandate. Look at the videos for the last eight months in Austin. I have a singer-songwriter friend I talked to on the phone a couple weeks ago. She was singing at a bar in Austin, Texas. The guy who owned the bar asked, she was wearing a mask. He said, why are you wearing a mask? She explained, it's to be healthy. He threw her out. He was, she was the performer. He wouldn't even let her in the bar. And that guy apparently became a national celebrity when a few days later he put up signs on the bar that said, no one will be allowed to enter if wearing a mask. It's right. a good thing you stay in a bank. Not so good if you're trying to make a public health. <laughs> Where I worked in Washington for a long time, there was a bank next to our building. And it literally said, it had a big sign that said, if you are wearing a mask, do not come in here because there were so many bank robberies at that time here in Washington. But I think the polls that I'm saying coming out of Texas is a majority of Texans want to wear masks. They do. And I suspect that a majority of Americans would have voted for Biden by a landslide if they could vote, if there weren't voter suppression, 
when people say to me, can you believe how close the election was? It was, you know, 70,000 votes in three states or something like that that made the difference. Well, if you allowed everybody to vote, if we believed in democracy, the good would good would win out. It is the the bullies, the moneyed interest that are using the the physical bullies, the ignoramuses, to keep us from voting. Stacey Abrams, who I'm not, you know, absolutely thrilled about, but she she should be governor of Georgia, not Kemp. Kemp was the Secretary of State. He stole the election. He literally stole the election. He scrubbed the voting rolls of African Americans. That's yep. how the Republicans win. That's correct, and that's what they intend to do. I, I did make the mistake of uh, watching too much of the CPAC convention, the Conservative Political Action Committee, a conference held in Orlando, Florida, over the weekend. Where yeah, I try to watch it. I, I, I thought it would be fun, and yeah. I looked at them, and, and I, you know, I looked at the guy. I know assholes like this. It, like, there's no difference between these people and, you know, people I know. They're, they're, they're not bright. No. They're, they're just loud and they have no stage fright. It, it really is. There's no difference no. between the piece of human excrement that I'll run into because I went to school with them. Mm. But these people just happen to have, uh, they're shameless. Well, they are, and they repeat the same thing. I mean, that's the other thing that happens. On Sunday, for example, almost every other uh, seminar that they were putting on was about voter fraud with the same kinds of characters, kind of the, the people who spent, you know, 10 months in the Trump administration, or people who were kind of low-rent uh, people I used to debate 20 years ago on television or radio. but And they all repeat the same thing, and they all get the applause, and everyone is so engaged. And if you happen to be African-American and that of that background, they love you even more. Right. They're the only African-Americans that they would ever talk to would be the people who say Trump is right, Trump has helped us as well as you, white people sitting in the audience. Yeah. It's despicable. It is, it is a despicable thing. But again, you can't ban it. You can't stop people who believe what the members of CPAC believe from ever having a meeting. You can't suppress them, but there have to be ways that you find to deal with them, to overcome them, to argue with them, and to try to make some. Can you argue? Can you argue with yes, them? Yes, you can. You can argue. Um, but here's the thing. How? how? How can you argue with them? Because you have to find, you have to find the one or two things that give an opening to having that beginning conversation. And then you, too, can start to lure some of these people into the light, into the good side. And I, I don't know, I told this story recently on maybe this show or something else. And um, 
But I was sitting in an airplane once with a guy coming back from St. Louis to Washington. And the guy was, I could, he was, he was very upset. I could tell he, he was riching around and he, and I said, are you okay? And he said, yeah. He said, I just, I, I just hate what's going on in this country. And then he started, you know, traditional right-wing nonsense about Bill Obama was president at the time. And um, I happened to mention that I occasionally would represent Vietnam veterans to get their military discharges upgraded. And then he started to be very interested in that. And I said, you know, the military, I know you probably like it, but sometimes they really shaft people. And I told him one particular story. And he said, he said, I, I, I never even heard of this. And I said, yeah, it's a very big issue and affects hundreds of thousands of veterans. And then he, he started talking about some theory. And I said, are you a, a listener to, um, to, uh, <laughs> what's that crackpot? Glenn Beck, Rush no, Limbaugh, no, Bill O'Reilly, Michael no, Savage, worse, Hannity. Deeper, lower, lower. Eleven? Oh, God. No. You, he's on Alex a, Jones. Alex Jones. And I said, you know, I, I said, it sounds like maybe you listen to Alex Jones. He goes, um, well, sometimes. And I said, you know, I used to be on a radio network with Alex Jones. He said, really? And I explained what we did. And I said, you know, Alex Jones, in my judge, is wrong about almost everything. But he's out there. He's expressing himself. And he says, so you're on the same network as Alex Jones. And then, and then he gave me his telephone number. And he said, if you're ever back in St. Louis, I'd really like to continue this conversation. And I didn't get the impression that the guy was full of BS, that he actually thought, I could, I could have a conversation with this guy because he's obviously a liberal or a progressive or something, but he has these connections that I'm interested in pursuing. And I've, I've had this happen so many times with relatives with people I run into when I was traveling all the time. There are things you can do. What you can't do, though, is expect to change people's minds because you put out a clever advertisement. Or a tweet. Or a tweet. It doesn't make any difference. You have to really connect, and it takes time. You have to really be willing to say, this is why I believe it. Why do you believe this? And airplanes, I used to... I used to hate flying for many reasons, including the fact that people would want to have conversations. I got to the point where I would, if someone would sit down next to me, because all the planes were crowded at the time, full, I wouldn't even say hello, because it would only encourage people to go, hello, what do you do? Right. You know, that kind of thing. For plenty of days, I had to write a speech or I had to do something, and I, I didn't have time to just chat. But when you have the opportunity to do so, I love talking to people on airplanes when I had a chance, when I could. And when, I, when you see somebody who's distraught, that was my sin. Maybe it's the pastor in me, but to say, is there something wrong with you? Are right. you having a day? I, you know, I want to circle back to something we we're talking about, voter fraud versus voter suppression. To most of my listeners... This is going to feel redundant, but it, 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 I'm ashamed to say for me, it took me about 20 years to understand this. And I just, I'd like to make this clear to uh, 
the listeners so that they can understand what they're up against. Vice President Mike Pence, if you remember, things happen yeah. so fast we forget, but uh, Trump sicked his followers on Mike Pence because he wouldn't uh, decertify Biden's election. That's right. And there was a noose hanging outside the Capitol, and they were screaming, hang Mike Pence. And he had to be furiously ushered into a secure location because Trump's people were going to kill Trump's vice president. Yeah. I'm against that. I, I don't think it would be appropriate to see Mike Pence hanging from outside. Right. The capital. No one would take take him down. The birds would eat him and it would smell bad to go visit the capital. Yeah. I mean, it would be a horrible thing to have seen Mike Pence. Thank you. Thank you. Mike Pence hanging. (laughs) I'm against it. Yeah. And and if it had it been done, I would have been uh, I would have. I'm pretty sure I would have been against it. Now he, two months after this, he is embracing the the Trump's claim that Biden is an illegitimate president. He wrote an op-ed for, I guess, the Heritage Foundation and said that uh, we have to have an honest discussion about election integrity in America. Why is he getting on board that? Because it isn't about Trump. It is about the Republicans being against democracy. The the lifeblood of the Republicans is keeping us from voting. And it dates back to George W. Bush, Karl Rove, and that scandal in the Justice Department, and I even think Seligman, the I, I think the governor of, I want to say Alabama, who went to Alabama. prison, yeah. we, we should talk about that later. The Republicans want to use the full force of the federal government. They have the Supreme Court, Shelby versus mm-hmm. Holder, They're stripping the Civil Rights Acts, the 64 and 65, and it looks like they're going to do more this term. They do not want black people to vote, specifically black people to vote. That's right. Jeb Bush, Jeb Bush, governor of Florida, scrubbed black people from the voting rolls in 2000. That's why his brother barely squeaked out a victory in Florida. They do not want black people to vote, but they can't say that. Right. So they have to insist on voter fraud. They have to insist that that people are voting twice, illegal immigrants. There's no such thing as an illegal immigrant. Undocumented workers are voting 100 times Sure. But there isn't a shred of evidence. None. Chris Kobach from Kansas, the governor of Kansas, (laughs) was in charge of a commission set up by 
Donald Trump. Trump to prove voter fraud. Chris Kobach, he, he couldn't prove it. No. And he wanted to because he, like Kemp, was a secretary of state who was fixing his local election so he could get elected governor. And he did get elected governor <laughs> by suppressing the black vote. Absolutely. But he could not prove that voter fraud exists. Nope. The entire Republican Party for 20 some odd years wants the American people to believe in voter fraud. That's why Mike Pence, this piece of human excrement, who had he been hanged, I would have been against that. He wants back in, and the only way he can get back in is if he insists that there's such a thing as voter fraud. There is no such thing as voter fraud. It's voter suppression. It is voter suppression. And they use the lie of voter fraud to suppress the vote, and it's genius. They are so good at what they do. They're so brilliant. Really good at it. And And, you know, Mike Pence, see, I think Mike Pence, uh, at least several hours during any given day, believes he could be the next Republican nominee for the presidency because Donald Trump is not going, he's not well. He's not going to be, in my judgment, in any kind of medical condition, health condition, to run again in four years. And then he looks at the people that are running And he looks at Ted Cruz, who made such, I mean, as you know, I mean, I just detest Ted Cruz and his entire family. But but he made such a jerk out of himself over the water issue and the heat issue and the floods in Texas that he seems to be wounded. People are really angry at him in Texas. He needs Texas support and Texas money to be the next presidential candidate. And then you look around at the other people that show up marginally, but in those uh, voter straw polls at CPAC, the governor of South Dakota, the woman who said proudly a few days ago, uh, I have, I am the only governor that I never closed a single business and I never closed a single church in South Dakota. They, she has something like the 47th largest infection rate for COVID and the 45th highest death rate per capita of any state. And that that's going to eventually, that's that lie about how good she was at defending the health of South Dakotans, that's going to come back to haunt her. And then Mike Pence thinks if Trump's out and she's out, and Ted Cruz is out, and Mario Ru- Marco Rubio, I, I've never understood why anybody votes for him. But he can look at it and say, I could beat Marco Rubio because little Marco is a short little guy. And I look like not only a senator, I have great white hair. Mm-hmm. I could be president. I look presidential to many people. He wants to get back in. He's not going to go and you know, start a, a school of government somewhere in Indiana. He wants something more than that. He's tasted the power. He likes it. He liked it as governor. 
He has all of this evangelical support behind him. He wants to be the next president. He's not giving up. And you're absolutely right. But you have to make sure that H.R. 1 or nothing like it ever passes. At CPAC, everybody, John Jr., uh, Matt Gitz, all of the creeps on the right, all said the single most important thing to stop in Congress this term is H.R. 1. And thanks to the fact that neither Joe Manchin nor Kristen Sinema in Arizona will abolish the filibuster, we are going to see what happened just yesterday. Constant efforts to get at least a tie vote in the Senate so that Kamala Harris can come in and break the tie. But you can't break the tie. You can't do that unless you have 50 Democrats all convinced to do something like end the filibuster. No Republican wants to end the filibuster that I can that I've ever heard say anything that's currently in office. That's what we're doomed with for the next two years. Politically speaking, getting rid of the filibuster would ignite a passion in the electorate that would sweep more Democrats into office in two years. Yeah. We respond to action. Get action. That that's I think that was a phrase that Teddy Roosevelt used to use. Get action. We I remember my father who told me if Ronald Reagan ever becomes president, there'll be curfews. In America. I remember that. Mm-hmm. He said to me, if this guy gets elected president, we're going to be off the streets at sundown. But I remember when Reagan first took office, my father said to me, I, I know this sounds terrible, but uh, he's doing something. You know, people, no. even my father responded, yeah. he didn't vote for him. Yeah. But uh, and but, you know, he said something's getting done here it's kind of nice uh well, i tr- want that you're right people want something to actually we love get. war that's why we love war we love war even if we don't win or even if it takes us a while to figure out if we won or not or why we're fighting it we like look at that my tax look at that shock and awe my tax dollars are you know blowing up baghdad i'm not trying to be funny here people no, respond absolutely. People respond to action. Yes, they do. And Franklin Roosevelt understood that, too. And Harry Truman started to understand it when veterans started to come to Washington and demand that stuff be done. We do like people who get something done. That, I think, is why Joe Biden's numbers are so high now. Not because everybody likes everything he did, but because he seems to be doing something. He said we're going to get 100 million people vaccinated with 100 million doses in 100 days, and he's 50% ahead of that schedule. And people look at him and go, whether we like him or whether, you don't, whether we think he's not far enough to the left or whatever, he's doing something and it's working. That's what people respond to. Any politician who comes out with a position and says, I'm going to do something and doesn't do it is in trouble. But somebody who says, I'm going to do it, give me a chance. And when you think about the things that this guy could do, that this Senate could do, if they didn't have to deal with the filibuster, we'd be seeing 
gun regulations. We'd be seeing environmental justice. We would be seeing racial equality. Bills that could we see Puerto Rico and Washington D.C. become states if they got rid yes, of the Philip? Oh, absolutely. I think there's no question. In there. Really, I mean, is it is it is it conceivable that if they got rid of the Philip? I mean, so think yes. about this for one. Let me. We have to wrap it up. Sure. That's a game changer. You make Puerto Rico and Washington D.C. states. Yep. It, it's that simple to make them states. Pretty much. So then you have four Democratic senators. Yes. And then you don't have to worry about, about a filibuster. And you don't have to worry about Kristen Sinema in the unlikely event that she gets reelected. So so really the 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 answer to all this is get rid of the filibuster, make Washington, DC and Puerto Rico states. Right. You don't have a filibuster-proof majority, but you have four permanent Democratic. That's right. So theoretically, then, then McConnell, when they're in charge, they divide Alaska up into five separate states, yeah. right? But they're never going to have the votes to do that. See, that's the, that's the glory of what you just talked about. Once you get those extra four people, you get a cushion that allows you to do anything. And if you don't, if you find some Democrat who doesn't want to do what you want to do, you don't have to care. And it's very difficult to change those rules back because you would have to get, again, a supermajority this time of Republicans and you'd have to look and say, uh, well, we, we really need that filibuster back so that we can stop anything from happening. That's going to be a hard sell. Give any Democratic president, including Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, four years without a filibuster with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House, and you will never have to worry about Republicans again. That's what I think. Wow. Wow. Get rid of the filibuster. Yep. Are you absolutely certain that Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. could become states that quickly? Well, Washington, D.C. could because I live here and I. You know, but is, know. is that in the Constitution? Isn't no, Washington, D.C. No, no, but there are way you can add states according to the Constitution. But isn't D.C., isn't the compromise, which isn't, I thought that great dinner. You know, that Washington, Washington, D.C. is not in the Constitution, that it's not a state. No, it's not. No, it was set up so as not to be a state, but there's nothing that in the Constitution that requires it to stay that way. Now, there are arguments. I mean, it's not completely frivolous to argue that that's not true, and it's not completely frivolous to say, but the people in Puerto Rico aren't as clear as the people here in the district that they actually want to be a state. And 20 years ago, you might have elected two Republicans. That, when he's 20 years ago, he, you know, meetings with Ted Kennedy, who was a big advocate of, of statehood for the District of Columbia. But he would say, you know, we can't be sure because there was so much pharmaceutical money that was being moved into Puerto Rico and so much business, many business interests there, that there was a concern that the two people who would be elected to the Senate from Puerto Rico might both be Republicans. I remember when... when, when wait past that. 
Yeah, I, during the hurricane, though, I think the governor was the governor general was a Republican. But to be discussed, this was great. Right. I'll talk to you. Well, what, by the way, before we go to John Hayes and his guest down in down in Los Angeles or wherever you're uh, listening to us, before we say goodbye to you, Reverend, I want to remind everybody that this Friday night. Now, we always do office hours. We always have office hours, and office hours now starts at 8 p.m. But this Friday night, starting at 8 p.m., we have office hours and hours. We do this once a month. It's office hours and hours. It starts at 8 p.m. Eastern, and we call that the fast lane. That's for our European Listeners, we start at 8 p.m. and Lane hopefully will help us out. And we go all the way till 10 p.m. It says on the screen 9 p.m., but we're going to go to 10 p.m. Eastern on Saturday night. Lectures, music, comedy, conversation. Join us for office hours and hours. Sign up by going to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend office hours. There's a menu and that will uh, give you a link. If you've already been attending office hours, I'm pretty sure your link is you don't need to sign up. But if you have any problems getting in, we'll, we'll send you a link. And the Reverend Barry W. Lynn will be talking about the Mies Commission and pornography, a, a subject very dear to his heart. And uh, what time are you going to be? I think uh, it's, um, I believe it's 8 o'clock Saturday night. 8 o'clock yeah. Saturday night. Yeah. So office yeah. hours and hours. It's really a lot of fun. You'll meet, new fun. Fr- you'll meet new friends. It's an intimate group of very special individuals, one of whom is John Hayes, who interviewed our, our next guest. John Hayes is a friend of our shows, and tell us who you're going to introduce us to, sir. Um, this is Molly Blazer. She's an L.A. activist uh, in various capacities. I, I met her through vegan animal rights protests and demonstrations and events that we've uh, participated in. And she also rides a bicycle, as I do as much as possible. And she's running for office for the L.A. City Council for Paul Caret's seat, which is, I guess he's being termed out next year. And she was on office hours once, kind of a warm up for this. And now we're going to take it to the next step. So say hello to Molly and we'll take it from there. Hot crowd. <laughs> in, in a preview. Hello, thank you for doing this. I'll let John ask all the questions, I, I, but I, I have a couple of, just so I can set the stage here. In a previous life, I lived in Los Angeles. In a previous life, I was married to somebody who uh, uh, I don't think liked Corrette's. Now, are we in the mid, are we talking about the mid-Wilshire district? Is this a, an at-large seat or is it a specific area? It's a specific area. Can you hear me okay? Yes, thank you. John, okay. do you mind yeah. if I just set the stage here before? No, go, please do. Okay. Yeah, so, so there's 15 districts, 
And the fifth district consists of Mid Wilshire, up Beverly Boulevard, a little bit of Fairfax. Uh, then it goes, it bends around uh, Beverly Hills, goes up Wilshire Corridor to Westwood, over to Century City, goes back up Westwood to Bel Air, and then it goes over Mulholland into Encino. Okay. And so do you, is your district going to be LACMA? Uh, yes. Park La Brea? Uh, some of it. Like the border is right. It sort of splits the Park La Brea. The Grove? But, uh, yes. The Grove, the farmer's market. Yeah. So yes. this is to my international listeners. You need to understand. Thank you for doing this, John. What you, what you need to understand that this area is the most heavily trafficked <laughs> area in America. More, more people. It is that. It is so condensed, that yes. area. We always think New York City is the most condensed, but this area is the most condensed part of America. There are more people living in your district than any other place in America, correct? Uh, I, I believe so. I don't know exactly that uh, fact, but it might be so. I mean, that's part of the problem is the congestion, the gridlock, and it's been overdeveloped. Okay, and I'm going to I'm, I'm being being serious. Here. John, this is my only question. Okay, and then it's yours. Okay. There is a stink on the corner of Fairfax and Sixth Street in front of the 99 cent store that I would call city. Cause it was, I, and yeah. everybody plays stupid. I call it's, it's across the street from the LA County museum yes. of art. I know that Yeah, it's across the street from park La Brea. There is this methane stink. It, yes. it, it smells like a flatulent corpse and it no, wafts, it wafts down Sixth Street. Now, I don't live there anymore. Uh, unfortunately, the person I was married to no longer lives there because I would have been <laughs> perfectly happy. I'd say, is there any way you can increase the stench? But <laughs> the thing that I found so infuriating is I I would go and I'd walk up to Mayor Villa Grossa and, I'd, and, and Garcia, hey, what about this stink? Tell me more. And I go, knock it off. You know about this stink. And I'd walk over to LACMA, the L.A. County Museum of Art, billions of dollars. I go, what are you going to do about the stink? And they'd yeah. go, we don't know anything about the stink. And, and the, 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 tele, the movie academy now is across the street from the stink. Your guild, the writer's guild is right there. <laughs> well, no, you know, it's so funny. And they pretend they don't smell anything. Well, and this know. is America. It's like, I know. I'm going to shut up. This is what America is, Molly. And then I'm done. America is we get into an elevator and somebody stunk it up and we're all pretending we don't smell it. Of course, I, I totally. Yes, I. And when I am at that light on 6th Street and it wafts over, I definitely. Yes. And I'm glad you brought that up because I'm going to write it down. I'm going to bring that up because it's obviously coming from some sewer sewer that could probably blow up at any time. And it's happened, John. It, it, I was going to say the, Kmart. The, there was a big blow up at Kmart. Yeah. There, there was the, the subway was halted because of that during the Henry Waxman's 
term, one of his terms, I believe he put the kibosh on the subway, which is now has been going on for, they finally lifted that moratorium or wherever it was. And they've been adding that purple line, they call it since then. So I don't know what they did to mitigate it, but I guess they didn't mitigate the smell. Go ahead. But uh, I, I assume there's a connection between this. No, the but tar I like, pits. I, 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 to, I completely agree with the fact too, that we in America completely overlook things. We gloss it over. It's sort of this Hollywood smoke and mirrors. Nobody gets at the truth. I mean, there's even people, um, there's a council member who won't even say that, uh, I think it was David Rue, who honestly didn't think that we had a homeless issue. And uh, which, you know, there's homeless everywhere uh, in every district now. So it's this, and it's all through America, this pervasive, it's a Hallmark card. Everyone's, everyone wants something picture perfect and it's never looking at the truth. And that's why I, you know, we keep accepting the unacceptable from, Everything, how we're treated, how the government is, our big corporations who are destroying us and the planet. And, you know, we all just continue on. So it's it's infuriating. So that's why I am running to try to bring some semblance of truth, not a semblance, but to bring the truth and to bring a grassroots candidate and activist uh, to say, hey, guys, <laughs> wake up here and you know, I'm going up against the political machine though. So uh, we'll see what happens. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be an interesting run. We've just started. Uh, I've been out uh, raised already, but that's okay. Cause they have, you know, the big guns, but. Well, well, who, well are, huh? who are you competing against? Who's gotten the. Well, the, uh, Paul Koretz has a staff member, Jeff Ebenstein. Uh, there's another staff member from Sheila Kuehl, uh, an attorney who's a, a you know, in Westwood, there's another woman who's just signed on. She's an attorney. I'm not really concerned about her. She's a right wing <laughs> Trump crazy person. But um, Trump, so, was Sheila Cool an actress at one time? She was a she was a child actress in some. Really Dobie Gillis? Sitcom. Was she in Dobie Gillis? I think it was after that. But she was a uh, yeah, she was a, a child actress, member of Screen Actors Guild. I met her like say 22 or so years ago when she kind of got the gears moving on challenging the Canadian Canadian subsidies for the film and television industry, which was um, out, causing a lot of our jobs to be outsourced to Canada because of the various tax rebates and other incentives that the Canadian provinces were offering to uh, American slash Hollywood productions to go up there instead of shooting here. So a lot of work was disappearing and, she arranged this kind of gathering at the Screen Actors Guild on Wilshire in that same district that has the smell. And a whole bunch of us met for the first time there. And for a few years, we were um, trying to fight the Canadian subsidy structure. But it ended up, what ultimately ended up happening is that it basically moved to the States. It also had gone to other countries. So now you've got subsidies everywhere for the movie and television industry. All these uh, multi, multi, multi-million dollar productions getting taxpayer funds to uh, move them around wherever the best offer is given, or as I call it, the best bribe. But that's another matter. And she, that Sheila Kiel's still in office too. I'm not sure what her position is. She LA County, I think. She's a supervisor. Than. Yes. Do you know her, Molly? No. You... I've met her a couple times. She doesn't interest me. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, she, she takes oil and gas money. I think all those guys, they're dinosaurs. They, it, we need a new progressive completely overhaul in local government. She's been there forever. Also, I think she's retiring in a year. Um, you know, we need new blood in every area, the supervisors, the council, the mayor, they are, yes, they don't smell the stink. They sit there and they make a lot of money. Um, Lots of corruption, which is being, you know, it's being, the spotlight is on this corruption now. I mean, they've been um, investigating the city council, FBI has since 2018. Two of them have already been hauled off to prison and one is being under investigation uh, and the mayor's office. So there's just a lot of things wrong because if you look at the city of LA, you can see exactly what the local government is doing. Nothing. There's homelessness, there's crime, there's uh, trash. The climate emergency is skyrocketing. Our air is dirtier than ever. So we just need, and it's in the well, one of the wealthiest cities in the world. We should be able to do these things very easily, be sustainable, animal welfare program on board where and homelessness people are housed or mentally ill or taken care of you know we have a recycling center that works <laughs> i mean it's like we live in a, a a city that you know supposedly is progressive i think because hollywood is here that's the only thing it's like oh we have celebrities so we're progressive and we're cool when we're not doing we're not doing we're not like we need to be doing so much more. Did, did you, um, do you think that the more conservative side of the other side of the spectrum are going to give you a big challenge? So like we see on a national scale with uh, blaming the lefties for all the problems. Or um, you have to deal with that. Yeah. In fact, I was talking to a friend last night, John Winfield, a very wealthy guy lives up in Bel Air. I've known him forever. And he, was ranting about the left. And then, he, you know, I thought he would donate to my campaign. <laughs> and he's like, I want to see what you're going to do. And you might be too liberal for me. And I mean, and he's a dear friend of mine. So, um, but I don't think District 5, I'm not too far left. I mean, I, so, but I am, I am for a working government. I'm for power for the people. I'm for here to protect the animals, the planet, you know, and, um, and people. And I, I don't think that's far left at all. I mean, I think my veganism may freak some people out, but I'm not forcing that on anyone, but I'm going to be an example. And I run a vegan campaign. Are there any other politicians in, in LA that are vegan that you know of? Adam Schiff. Adam Schiff, but I mean, on a local scale. no. Yeah, I just found out that Adam Chip was vegan not that long ago. I, but, I he never, but he never yeah. talks about it. So yeah, we need, yeah, we need political, we need our leaders now to be talking about, you know, so we, they can be examples. You know, it's like Joe Biden brought, I mean, a simple thing as getting a rescue dog and bringing that to the White House was a big thing, showing people that, oh, yeah, I can adopt a dog. I can take a dog from the shelter and oh and our president does it i mean i mean it's and that's that's a big deal to show that because it gives people Are you talking about ron klein what it was a joke i was making a ron klein oh, joke ron klein 
Okay. <laughs> um, do you have, oh yeah. How'd you find, you have a campaign manager, I believe. Yes. Oh yeah. I have a whole team, all women. Um, are they, had they done this before? How did you find them basically? I asked out of Vasquez who had ran, run. She's a big environmentalist activist here in LA. She ran for district four. She got very close. She was, uh, you know, going up against the political machine also. Um, so she gave me some names. I also called another guy, Lee Fink, who actually worked uh, on the Obama administration and he gave me suggestions. So I just asked people who had run, had been involved in politics. And then I started calling, uh, seeing, you know, the right fit. And I, I did, um, and there's some other people I'm, you know, getting on board. We just hired two other women to fundraise, uh, because we need to up our ante. So, and she, and Kat, who is my campaign manager, she found the other two women and they worked uh, on Nithia's, you know, they helped Nithia get elected. And then we may hire, a, we may hire a male consultant who works for Bernie. So, um, and, and climate people, of course, and, and people who have high standards, like these two women we just hired, they won't use companies that, you know, you know, take oil and gas money. Those are the kind of things that we need to start creating. Like I won't take any oil and gas money. I won't take developer money. Um, I won't take tobacco. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Anything that is not healthy and good for all things. And that's what we need leaders to be doing because it will set a precedent and then we will make changes. If leaders are doing it, you know, I always love this people run, and then they're like, you know, using plastic and paper and they're, uh, you know, like, and they're driving these big, you know, fossil fuel buses all over the country. And yet they're yet, you know, promoting climate change. It's like. Yeah. And they're eating meat and dairy right. products and all that too. Yeah. With their barbecues. I mean, it's yeah. like, which barbecuing itself is, is carbon, you know, intensive. So it's just, I just think we need to start really being an example, walking the walk of what we're doing. And then it shows people, oh yeah, if they can do it, I can do it. Also to be available for the people, you know? So did you, have you had to basically give up a lot of your free time in order to do this? Do you have, do you have any kind of a personal life anymore other than no. taking care of your dogs? <laughs> no, I wake up early. I do my meditation and my, you know, I work out, I run them at Runyon. I then am, I mean, I teach a couple classes still and then I'm on call time uh, events. And then as we open too from COVID, it will, but I think that's going to be fun. I want to go out and meet the people and have events and well, that's another question. What's it like campaigning during a pandemic? That's a well, unique situation for any of us who are alive. These I days. call people on the phone. Um, we Facebook, Instagram, and then we do Zoom stuff. I've had three Zoom events. It's not as fun, but, you know, we make do. And then we should, we're going to have our first live event in May. Okay. Now, what about getting some celebrity support. Are you into that? Um, well, I'm trying to get, you know, I'm trying to get the vegans, the animal activists, Joaquin Phoenix, Moby, Alicia Silverstone. They always come out for the, you know, vegan candidate. Also the, the green candidate um, they did for Lorraine Lundquist. I mean, at least the, the Alicia Silverstone did, but I'm going to, I'm trying to get Moby and uh, Joaquin and, um, Although Gene Fonda isn't a vegan. 
<laughs> right, but she is an environmentalist. Well, she so so she, she says. says. Yes, yeah, I remember um, at an extinction was it extinction rebellion event. I don't know if you were there about a year and a half ago, and Jane Fonda was speaking along with a bunch of other people. And uh, Jane Velez Mitchell was shouting. Oh, right. I was there. Going vegan. And Jane said something like, shut up or whatever. On the stage. <laughs> what about the time then there were, you know, she does these fire drill Fridays. Yeah, that was. So Joaquin showed up and yeah. he got up and started talking about veganism. And she's like sitting there <laughs> staring at him like, because I mean, I think if you're an environmentalist, one of the best things you can do is go vegan. And, um, a lot of a lot of them still haven't. So it's interesting because that's one of the leading causes of the climate crisis. Right. Can I ask you a couple of tough questions? Sure. <laughs> hey, that's fine with me. <laughs> uh, George Gascon is the uh, I believe he's the district attorney. Yes. He just got elected and he wants to eliminate cash bail. Is that something you support you know what it's so funny we were talking about george gascon last night and john winfield is you know this guy he's pissed off that he got elected he's in there he's this is your rich friend yes okay so i'm gonna ask you tough questions just quickly should we eliminate cash bail i don't think so you're for cash bail. I mean, I don't really know why they would eliminate it. What is what? I mean, I'm, I don't know enough about that to. Um, so what 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 would the what are the pros and cons for it, actually? Well, I know a little bit about that, I would say, uh, because people can't afford to pay cash and they tend to be people who are under underserved and not privileged. And so, yeah. And, and they're stuck in the LA incomes. County jail, so stuck getting, in jail instead. And, and so with, what would and so so. They can't get cash. So what do they do? They get it from the bail bondsmen. What do they yeah, they, do? they have to. Well, they end up in jail until they can uh, find a way to pay, pay their ways out or just do whatever amount of time they have. to. No, do. then I would not. I, I, I would always want to help the people. So I wouldn't want to do anything that makes it more difficult for people if they're in jail to get out. Yeah, because rich people can buy their way out of just by putting up whatever amount of bail practically, you know. What about the public defender's office? This is just, this is never going to happen. This is an unfair question to ask you. I'm kind of uh, going off topic here. So shouldn't the public defender's office be funded as equally as the district attorney's office? Why, when you're accused of a crime by the state, uh, should your defense be... Uh, predicated upon how much money you have. I know. I totally agree with that. Shouldn't we get the money out of our justice system? Wouldn't it be, shouldn't the district attorney's office be funded the same, get the same amount of money as a public defender? And it should be, it doesn't seem fair that a, a, a rich person. It's it's why rich people don't end up in our prisons. Right. Where do you stand on eliminating ICE? I told you I was going to ask you tough questions. <laughs> or cooperating with ICE. Because Los Angeles is, Garcetti's been, I think Garcetti's been pretty good about not cooperating with ICE, right? Right. Well, I don't know. You know, Garcetti to me is weak. Um, 
I think, I just think there needs to be reform in all areas. So if ICE is doing things that, you know, it's, it's about protecting the people. It's about empowering the people. That's what it all should be about. Nothing, you know, and like when you said the public defender's office, they should get money and the attorneys should be good that are the public defenders. You know, some are, some aren't so good. So, um, what about uh, outlawing no. private schools? I've been an <laughs> advocate of outlawing private schools. And if you send your child to a charter school, uh, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts on charter schools? You know what? Charter schools, I think, are fine. I think private schools are fine, too. Oh, OK. I mean, I, I, I don't think that... Um, so on this show, I advocate uh, for the <laughs> for the elimination for the elimination of, of private and charter. Yes, and not and only that, uh, arresting the parents. <laughs> so it should only be public schools. And not only that, the parents uh, should be. Race. The parents of anybody who wants to send their kid to a private school should be rounded up and placed in a re-education. But this is what I think. I think <laughs> if we got our educational system really up to par, which it should be, and teachers should be paid more. And I mean, the fact that we we pay our sports figures millions of dollars and our teachers get nothing and our educational system is the same. If the public schools were funded, the teachers were paid, it was all good. And they had, you know, uh, their supply. And I think, yes, eliminating private, they wouldn't have to have I mean, the Mar Mar Marlboro school for girls. Are you familiar with this? Yeah, I taught there. I was, I taught drama. Okay. And, 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 what is tuition there? Like five million a year to go to Marble? No, I don't know. Ten million? How much does it cost to send? I don't know that, but, but I know. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, let's say it costs fifty thousand dollars a year to to send your daughter to Marlboro. Is that right? That you would spend somebody would spend fifty thousand dollars to send your little princess to this private school while the public school a quarter mile away what they could do with fifty thousand dollars i mean it's you have the teachers buying glue i know i know well that's what i meant so if the public schools why is there such a disparity of that i just i don't and well i'll tell you why the parents have to be rounded up and placed in re-education. It's the parents that we have. A, I mean, I Los Angeles. There's there's some. It's it's a problem with the Democrats, Hollywood liberals, who and racist to some degree because a lot of and, people and left, racist. They left uh, public schools when I was growing up. At some point between my teens and twenties. You'd see more and more people moving to Orange County, white people moving to Orange County and taking their kids out of the public schools in L.A. and going to Orange County where there are a lot more white people. And Yeah, I mean, we need a cultural revolution. There instead. People should be ashamed that they sent their kids. 
people should be ashamed. I don't mean to be difficult because uh, no, that I, I, it's interesting. I, I, I mean, there's people should be ashamed I, that they went to a school that charges fifty thousand dollars a year. That's that's shameful. Like you shouldn't be ashamed that you went to Fairfax High or Hollywood High. You should be ashamed that you come from a family that spent fifty thousand dollars to keep you in a bubble where where the only Latinos and African Americans you meet are the unicorns who excel. You know, we have somebody from South Central. Yes, she, this person is a unicorn who has high test scores, and that's you're only exposed to blacks and Hispanics who are unicorns. That's no way to raise your kids. And I stand in judgment to to parents who send their kids to these schools and say, you are disgraceful and you must wear a dunce cap and we're gonna march you through the streets and and, and pelt you with, <laughs> I'm sort of serious, why, unfortunately. But why, is our, but why is our public school system so broken? I just then? said, I just explained why. No, wow. no, but even if the rich parents weren't sending, it's the city isn't funding them properly. It's also the, the rich parents mm-hmm. are funding. You know what? I'm having a low blood sugar attack. Talk for three minutes. Let me go get some candy. Okay. 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 Are it's you also, a vegan? Uh, yeah, when David comes back. Yes, he is vegan. Um, and I'd like to ask him more about that myself. But yeah. um, Proposition second. 13 is also a problem. What is that? Well, you remember Proposition 13, maybe? I don't know. Was, well, no, you weren't around here then in L.A. It was 1978. It was a uh, statewide initiative that allowed uh, homeowners to keep their uh, property taxes low. And those property taxes are also used for funding schools. So for the last oh, right. 40 plus I, years, we tried to they tried to uh, reverse some of that by instituting taxes on commercial properties last November. And that was on the that was on the ballot, right, but, it, right, but it, right, right. it didn't pass, unfortunately. So that would have helped no, a bit. So yeah, but you know, okay. I, I just think it all goes down to I, I I just think it's all about the corruption in our states and our local gov- government. Excuse me. Everybody makes so much money. The political leaders make so much money, and then they hide out. They don't do anything. We pay for their things while the people suffer. I just think there it's everything has to be reworked. Our system doesn't work anymore. And it's so obvious by looking at what's going on. Do you think you'd ever be tempted? Like so often we have a, I don't think we could call them our political heroes, but we find hope in somebody coming up like AOC, for example. And yeah, she's on our side. She's going to work for us. And then in a lot of t- cases, they end they up more and more compromised over the I years. Know. Do you ever think about that happening to you? Or? No. <laughs> No, because I, I live, I, I mean, I mean, I've had, I've had a lot of money. I've had none. I've, I've, I, I live uh, on spiritual principles. So I, I don't see that happening and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I, I'm not seduced by that. We have to wrap it up. This Will you come back? Yeah, I would love to. I'm a, David's, I'm, David's a good uh, way to uh, a good way to get you somewhat nicely initiated into the battlefield you're about to enter into. I think. Yeah. So let, let me. Here's good. my. Here's I have a complaint, John. And what is that? Vegan okay. food? Are those soy uh, curls? This is Molly. Uh, this is as a, 
a fellow vegan. The Nutribullet. Okay, we have, I'm keeping people waiting, but this is, a, I have a bone to pick. So a bone, <laughs> not with the vegan. Right, you're right. So yeah. I made chickpeas, right? Oh. And I have a Nutribullet yeah. and the chickpeas, I put them in the Nutribullet. I don't even know what that is. I guess it's a machine of some kind. Yeah, it's a, it's, a it's really not cool a food bullet. processor. I thought I was going to be able to make hummus and I bought tahini dressing <laughs> and pepper. And it, it's just it's just chunky chickpeas. Oh. And we need to do something about that, well, Molly. I, do, I, made hummus, I make hummus every few weeks and I just hummus. use a, the basic blender. Yeah. Hummus, hummus. No, the, the, I, I can't make is, hummus in my Nutribullet. What kind of country is this? <laughs> so, yeah, I would love to come back. Uh, so my name is Molly Basler. I'm running for LA City Council District 5. You should put up a, I'll put up a link of some kind to yeah, your we'll put uh, up a link. page. Yeah. To my website. What is yes, your website again? MollyLA2022.com. You're, you're, it was great. Thank you. And I hope you come Thank back. You. You're yes, great. I'd love to. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Great job. Thanks, Molly. Thank you, Thank John. You. Thanks, John. A lot of fun. Thank you. Do we, do we get to stay on and listen to the other one or no? I've been here the whole time. So yeah, you can just, stay. <laughs> I'll listen to the next one. Okay. Yeah, there's some good professors coming. Yeah, up. we have we have the professors coming up. Uh, let me in, let me ask Professor Adnan Hussein. Let me Professor Faluna, Professor Marianne Cummings. Professor Jonathan Bick, uh, if you have, let me just go very quickly to Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Give us three minutes. Dan, are you there? Yes, sir. I'm having a low blood sugar attack. So, so why don't you tell us what, do community billboard while I load up on my hummus and uh, then we'll take on the rest of the show. Do you mind? Sounds good to me. Okay, I'm just going to sit here very quietly. I got a different pretentious douchebag outfit on today. I did get a scarf, though, so we're good. All right, I have to eat my hummus. All right. Um, did you happen to grab the pictures I sent, or should I skip those ones? Um, do it last. Okay. Um, Jim and Martha have been dishing out some uh, excellent segments for quite a while, so I wanted to throw out their social media accounts real quick for everyone. So go check out Martha Previtt at, um, on Twitter, Twitter at Diabetic Fury and also at Martha Previtt. And she has a Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Martha Previtt. And then Jim Earl has a, at Jim Earl 666 for Twitter. And uh, his website is jimearl.com. We also have, as always, Tom and Barb Weber. Their Facebook concerts are uh, back up and running again on Tuesdays at 8. Those are half hour long every week. And they've also begun doing their 90-minute concerts on uh, certain Saturdays. And those ones are 90 minutes long. And Tom's art is being sold on his website at tomweberart.com. And this week there was the inaugural meeting of his uh, new group that he's created on spirituality and activism. It was fantastic. I was there. It was the best. Yep. In fact, Pro Professor Hussein, Professor Bick, Professor Faluna, we're all there. Professor Hussein, Bick. I don't think Professor Marianne Cummings was there, but it it was. That's fascinating. He, Tom Weber. We have to have him on the show. Yeah, as a, a podcast guest. 
But uh, the group took place this week, the the inaugural group, where uh, a lot of discussion between everyone about what what they uh, hope to achieve in the group and what the, the idea of the group might actually turn into and look like. Um, and those are going to be happening on Wednesdays uh, from 8 to 9.30 Eastern. And the Zoom links are available, available on Discord. Again, the infrastructure for, for releasing it, aside from Discord, isn't really set up, so you can always email me at dentfeldman at gmail.com, and I'll get it to you if you have a hard time. Um, this week I picked a, another Goodfellas quote, which is, uh, fuck you, pay me. So we got that. Is uh, that, fr- who, who's that from? The Henry was explaining, uh, what it's like to have Polly as a business partner. And he goes, when, after you hook, if you hook up with Polly and become partners with him, he says, any problems? He goes to Polly. trouble with a bill. He goes okay. to Polly. And then, uh, but when things go bad. It's business is bad. Fuck you, pay me. Mm. Oh, you had a fire. Fuck you, pay me. So right. <laughs> that was the gist of that. Um, earlier on this show, Bert Ross once again mentioned someone named Bendix, and this time around, David was able to refrain from making a joke about Peroni's disease. Very good. Yes. Yeah, it was towards the end of the segment, so I figured you're kind of running out on time. Otherwise, I'm sure you would have went for no, it. No, it didn't occur to me. I promise you. Really? Last That's time a- you bombed, maybe last time you bombed with it, and I sent I sent you a clip of that. So maybe you learned from that, mm-hmm. or maybe your low blood sugar actually started an hour and a half ago. It's 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 getting there. I'm I'm, I'm getting better. <laughs> Good. Um, you could send all your messages uh, that you want read on the community billboard to dentfeldman at gmail dot com, and someone will eventually read them. And uh, do you want to go do uh, the two picture ones real quick? Mm-hmm. Okay, Glenn Class. This is the two. most important news. This is. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I may ask the professors to to, uh, to comment on, on this. this. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, very important. Okay. So Glenn Costick made some homemade pickled onions, which David is, is going to pull up here. Yes. Send her in a jar. He made so this. He made that in rice vinegar. And then a day or two later, he showed us a dish that he made with them, which was herring and cream sauce on, with uh, homemade pickled onions. What is that? Bam. Fish and onions. Mm. And then lastly uh, for this week, we have Joseph Brinton pictures. Uh, yep. I sent David a couple pictures. The... Uh, Joe Britton makes jewelry and has a website, josephbrintonjewelry.com. He's a longtime listener from all the way back from the first year. And uh, we have two of them here. One of them is uh, Martha Stewart. Uh, nope, this one is Senator Sue Collins. I can show you the Martha Stewart one. Yep, we'll do that one. We'll just do that one last. And there's uh, Martha Stewart. And those are Joe Britton's designs. And the, the and, ladies are wearing them. Yeah, and they're all uh, characters that... Martha Previtt plays. Yep. Go to josephbrintonjewelry.com. Great. So are, are you good? You want me to run through office hours I'm good. for another minute? Uh, remind okay. everybody about office hours, please. Uh, it's, it's on uh, Friday, which is tonight, if you're listening to the podcast, at 8 p.m. Eastern. It's looking like we're going to be running for like 26 hours this time around. Yes. So uh, get there early. And uh, I'm not sure if you're going to kick that one off with Ken Man's song again that we heard earlier in the show. Oh, I want to play it for the professor. Here we go. Good. Um, hang on. Hey there, Feldo. Fellow listeners, non-academics, 
Feldel parishioners, here we are at office hours. And I can see that only three of you've had showers. I'd like to bring up a frequent complaint. Your podcast's boring. It lacks all restraint. It requires perseverance. And at best, I'd say it is an inconvenience. Longtime listeners are frustrated when we ask questions. We get berated. David's controlling the conversation. He's always seeking sycophantic adulation. You see, from way back, he's been a lefty, the lead speech writer for Hubert Humphrey. He's always ready to fight the good fight, just as long as you buy tickets on Eventbrite. Cancel this show, we all know that it needs to go. We all should take the time to find a better waste of time. Cancel this show, there's better places we could go. The C-SPAN weekend feed, or watching a car crash on the street. Wait a minute. There's a Discord, oh, wow. so there are others uh, hi guys. feeling this bored. I know Liam is such a... Also friendly. That's a great pie. Far left of center. <laughs> workers control Mr. Me. Feldman, We're kindly disregard this letter. Yeah, fuck him. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the insanity, the insanity. Thank you for that, Dan Frankenberger, in the newsroom. You are the best. You're the absolute best. Nothing can get done here without Dan Frankenberger. Let us now, we have some time here, sorry to keep you waiting, atmospheric scientist, Professor Ian Faluna, you're an expert on climate change. You join us. I see Professor Marianne Cummings. She is a phys- physicist as well as Parks Commissioner, a Parks Commissioner of Aurora, Illinois. Professor Jonathan Bick is a political scientist and batting cleanup is Professor Adnan Hussein. He co-hosts the Mudgeless podcast and uh, Guerrilla History. And you are chairman of the religion department for Queens University in Kingston, Ontario. Hello, everybody. Hi, good to be here. Let us well, let's start with Professor Jonathan Bick. What is on your mind today, sir? Well, today I thought I would advocate for a shorter work week. Um, Here on this show or just in general? Uh, well, <laughs> starting with the show. Oh, yeah, no. Starting with the show, especially office hours. 24 hours is a long work day, David, I must say. It's but, 27 uh, hours this time. Oh, yeah. See, it's getting longer, Uh, which um, also seems to be happening with uh, the American uh, work week. So, um, you know, 1940, Congress made the five day, 40 hour work week, the law uh, by amending the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, However, uh, according to a recent Gallup poll, American full-time employees now average 47 hours per week of work. That's almost an additional day 
on top of uh, what should be a 40 hour work week. Wow. Say that uh, again. So we're, and are we, I guess your next issue is whether or not we get overtime for that seven hours, right? Well, yes. So, and, and the 40 hour work week is only a reality for a portion of working people. Uh, if you uh, get salary, you know, the 40 hour work week doesn't necessarily apply to you. Uh, I mean, it's supposed to, but, you know, there's a reason why the average is now 47 hours uh, a week. Um, and only uh, certain people making uh, uh, under a certain amount of money qualify to uh, make overtime. And they have to be in non-supervisory positions. So... Uh, President Obama had uh, wanted to include more people in that category, you know, so they could qualify for time and a half for working more than 40 hours. Uh, but he waited until his last year in office to do that. And when Trump was elected, he reversed that. So uh, it's, I forget what the exact cutoff is, but uh, not a lot of people uh, qualify for that. Uh, but my my argument is to reduce the work week from 40 hours uh, to 30. And this is something to, they do in like Germany, right? When there's a recession, they. Yes. In France, it's uh, 35 hours uh, a week. Um, and if you look at different studies and, and different. Uh, but during a recession, what they do is they cut back everybody's work schedule so there's plenty of work for everybody. so you can spread the work around yeah, yeah right right and uh you know that's i think that's a good idea um in addition to that people will not be spending so many hours at work because a lot, a lot of people aspire to make their work uh you know their passion but uh, that's not a reality for most people most people find it to be work uh to be uh, drudgery and to be highly stressful particularly when you are adding in additional hours uh every week so i i think uh lowering the work week would be beneficial in many different ways lowering stress um people would have more time to spend with their families have hobbies uh to um and as well as spreading the work around. So there would be uh, more openings for people that are looking for work. Um, the work-life balance, we are a very sick nation. You look at a country, I was reading about, is it Denmark, where McDonald's workers are making $24, $24 an hour in, in, in Denmark, and they get five weeks of paid leave every year the price yeah, and the price of a big mac is pretty much the same there as it is here in the united states oh i mean even if it's a little more that sounds like a good uh <laughs> a good uh trade-off right i mean uh yeah everyone in denmark has five weeks vacation paid vacation 
Um, There's something rotten in America. Yes, exactly. And I got news for you. The thing that that's rotten in Denmark is McDonald's. Why were they allowing that crap in in there? Hmm. Well, at least they're paid well, right? Yeah, but you shouldn't be eating McDonald's. I agree. Um, Yeah. you know, and there are many examples of this working. I mean, for example, Microsoft uh, in Japan, they saw their worker productivity go up 40% when it introduced the four-day work week in, uh, in 2018. What, 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 in what, Zealand, what does that tell you? It tells you that people don't need eight hours a day um, to do their work, to be in the office, uh, you know, six hours, people would focus more. There'd be, you know, less surfing the internet and, and, you know, kind of goofing off, you know, get what you have to get done in those six hours and get out of there. And you work smart if you have something to look forward to, like getting out of there. Right. But, 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 but I'm mid-level management professor and I like meetings and I (laughs) want people to sit around. I I like to hold people in a room and, and they don't get to go until I decide they get to go. That's my job. So you're, you're taking that away from me. Yes. Well, I, I, I would say there's more time in a 30 hour work week to get treatment for that problem. <laughs> uh, anybody have any questions for Professor Vic? Anybody? Well, yeah. Uh, you know, I have heard that been brought up ever, you know, for the last 20 or 30 years. So what's the big political um, impediment to doing that, to implementing that over here? Is it just the, uh, I mean, which department in the government would, uh, we'd have to work on? Uh, I mean, it would be, you know, the department of labor. Um, the, I mean, the problem is that working people in the United States have less power relative to their peers in European countries, for example, or even in Japan. So, uh, I mean, that's the biggest problem is that uh, employers have all the power and employees don't have any power. So most of the states in the country, you know, they are employees at will, so they can be discharged for anything. Um, even their political views in some states, uh, it, it just, you know, it, they have no protections whatsoever, uh, other than for certain specific protected categories, you know, age discrimination, uh, sex discrimination, um, in some states, uh, LGBT, um, discrimination, but, um, I mean, that's really the, I think the crux of it, that the union movement in this country has been so weakened that they can't even advocate for something uh, as grand as reducing uh, the work week, 
which has been stuck at 40 hours for, you know, at least 80 years now. Well, yeah, I mean, that 40 hour work week was considered humane, but that was when, you know, one person was working typically. And if you were raising a family, one person was at home. Certainly my parents were like that. And that's just it's just insane when both people are working and having to deal with kids. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely impacts a family life in a seriously negative way. And we don't even have, you know, uh, affordable child care in this country. Um, so this would help to to mitigate that to some degree. How do you justify? Oh, go ahead, Professor Hussein. Well, I was just going to ask if um, the studies on productivity are well known, and I assume business leaders and managers um at least not the middle managers who are really invested in keeping people in meetings because that's their job, but their bosses who are supposedly interested in increasing productivity and decreasing the costs um, aren't interested in this. I mean, it seems that there maybe there's something more at stake in extending the workday in keeping people stressed and busy that isn't about actual productivity in a precise way, but has something more to do um, with the way capitalism seems to benefit from fragmenting workers, from uh, disciplining the workforce. And as we know, those of us who uh, are in the weekly marks and have been reading Capital Volume 1, keeping a reserve army of labor, if you actually reduced hours and increased the number of people who were working and earning, um, you don't create the kind of desperation where people really feel they need this job and they have to listen to whatever their bosses are requiring of them, even if it means extending the work week a little further and so on. So I'm wondering if you have other thoughts on what's politically at stake and um, you know why you know all the research that shows that it's good for productivity doesn't mean that corporations are eager to um, you know change their policies and reduce the work week right well i think you've hit on uh, a number of them um and, and it's related you know it's the same reason why uh, employers don't favor on the whole uh something like medicare for all in this country right i mean it would be enormously beneficial to uh, to companies to get that off their plate. It would be a corporate subsidy. Right. Yes, because they, the companies would not have to pay for medical coverage, which is going up much faster than inflation. Uh, but as Professor Hussein just said, you know, they want to maintain that discipline over the workforce, that uh, that power to say, you know, if you're going to, for example, withhold your labor and strike, uh, it, let's say if you're in your, actually in a union, um, we're going to cut off your your health care immediately. That's an enormous And your families. And your families, right. That's an enormously powerful lever uh, that companies have if they are providing your health care. I think GM did that. Two years ago during the UAW, they, they started to and then that seemed unseemly. So they they changed their mind, right? 
I know they did do it. I don't remember if they then revoked that. I think it. it I think it was. It was bad for the brand. So they mm. they got to keep their health care. Yeah. We had Dr. Hershenfeld on, psychiatrist, Freudian psychiatrist, psychoanalyst earlier, and he was talking about how Freud said human beings in their core want love and work, a work that fulfills them. Is it fair to say that this country with the help of somebody like Bernays, has figured out a way to strip us of both, of love and a, a sense of purpose through our work. I mean, it's very rare to meet somebody. I think you four are exceptions, but I think a vast majority of Americans have been stripped of the dignity that comes from work. Well, part of it is because workers have so little power uh, to shape the conditions of their work, to have an impact on the way it's organized, on how decisions are made, whether or not they're consulted. Um, you know, it, when you take those things away, the dignity of work disappears. Right. And, and the fulfillment and uh, what the, the positive aspects of working are diminished. Right. Professor, thank you for that, uh, Professor Bick. Great. So great. Thank uh, you. Can I jump in really yeah. quick, David? I just wanted to, this is maybe an academic question, but is the productivity number is normalized by the hours worked, right? So productivity is increased even though the total number of work hours is increased. Is, is that right? Right. Yes. Yeah. So the bosses actually don't care about productivity directly. What they care about is the sum total of productivity. Right. So it's, if they can get you to work more, they don't care about necessarily what the productivity is. They just want the output to be greater. Well, the, the total output would be the same if you got an increase in productivity uh, that was large enough to offset the reduction in hours. Well, right, sure, but they don't care about that. They don't care about that ratio. They care about the top, the total amount of product you produce, right? I mean, I see this happening at the university all the time. It's like, well, the salary people, the faculty members, as, they, as middle management desires more and more things to get done, and cut services by staff, they just expect you to do it because you work all the time anyway. I mean, it's like, it's, it doesn't matter that you divide it by, if I divide it by my 80 hours per week or something, that number doesn't, doesn't matter. What matters, I mean, it matters to me, but it doesn't matter to the, to the endeavor, right? the, the bosses. So I think, anyways, I think just that's part of the problem is that you just find more, you just find ways to coerce people into working longer <laughs> to increase your output, you know? Yeah, they, they call that graduate school. I mean, uh, <laughs> 30 yeah, exactly. years, seriously, 30 years ago, it was about three or four years to get a PhD in particle experimental physics. By the time I had graduated, I mean, there were people on that experiment I joined after getting a PhD 
they were in their eighth or ninth year of graduate school because they wanted to get a PhD that was on actual data rather than just on uh, on calibration runs. And, you know, they were, and these were serious. I mean, these were people who were like 30. These were like seasoned scientists. And they had yet to get a PhD. Putting and, their entire yeah. life into this. Yeah, they're putting their, well, they're, they're grinding up all of our best young adult years, you know, just being on shift. Now that was fun. There were aspects of that that it's that are fun, right. but uh, you know the, the the reality is is that there was just no constraint on the, especially as bigger and bigger projects mean more and more money concentrated into you know it are controlled by fewer and fewer people at uh, you know at prestigious universities. There is just no incentive to to end that 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 trend. I mean, there, there is no protection. The only thing that they do, I was at University of Hawaii. Rather, I was getting my paychecks from University of Hawaii as I was living in Aurora and working at Fermilab. And they had to promote me after four years. I didn't realize that. I just thought, hey, cool, I got a little more money. But I didn't realize that I was promoted from postdoc to research scientist because University of, of Hawaii requires that. You can't have somebody in a postdoc position. You either have to let them go or you have to promote them. And I was running the show for University of Hawaii out at Fermilab. So, but apart from that, there is literally no constraint on, and, and it, again, it's a monopoly. I mean, you can't just go to another particle physics laboratory, like in the next state, and, get, and work on your experiment. I mean, there's, it's really only, um, it's, it's, it's pretty much one big pond and there are a few people controlling what happens. Right. So, yeah. Uh, the universities don't mind when they take their 70, 80% overheads on your grant money. Professor Hussein, yeah. what would Marx say? <clears throat> you know, I, I keep saying on the, on the show, we need like a, cultural revolution where parents have to tell their kids your job is not you your identity you have to disentangle your identity from your job isn't it wouldn't it be healthy if americans could learn to say work is work and just go in there and do your job take the money take the satisfaction where you can find it but don't expect any Get your satisfaction elsewhere. A more mature, uh, have a more mature look at work to understand it as just a, this is what you do to make money. It's not your family. The the, the ambition. Yeah. I mean, well, this is uh, what, for example, my parents who as good immigrants to this country uh, were very concerned about um, security for us, advised, go into science, it's objectives, there's less bias, you know, you'll be fine there. Um, maybe not true, but this is how they thought about it. And they also thought if you're interested in all these things, history, philosophy, literature, great, do it on your own time, you know, have them as interests. You don't need to do that professionally. Work is work. Do your work and then pursue life, family outside. And in fact, actually, in some ways, that might have been a healthier uh, attitude. And maybe I'd be a happier person today because, uh, as people are saying, 
work week expands. We're convinced that we're following our passion and that that's why we're doing all this extra work. A lot of it, however, you know, increasingly in the university that is modeling itself more and more on corporations with hierarchical structures, less about faculty governance, less about your relationship with your students as they expand the classrooms, cut the number of professors in ratio. And there's so much busy work and administrative work. And I have actually, in becoming chairman or director of the School of Religion at Queen's University, uh, you know, really had to give up uh, the pleasures of uh, being a petty tyrant and holding people together in these meetings because everything's remote. And so I don't even get the satisfaction of, you know, of the sadism you know, of the middle manager now. I have to perform all of the functions with none of the sort of, you know, benefits of that. Um, so maybe we should just rediscover, particularly under capitalism, you have to discover that work is work. You're, that's when you're exploited. So you try and fight your position um, as much as possible. And part of that is psychologically not investing your passion, your life energy, you know, into something that is really just extracted from you. Right, right. And the solidarity comes from recognizing that you can be replaced so that this is no matter what you're doing, even if you're Anthony Fauci, even if you're Steve, jo you know, uh, I think Apple is doing just as well under Tim Cook as it did under Steve Jobs. I think Microsoft is doing just as good as it with this new guy as it did under Bill Gates. Uh, life goes on. You know, de Gaulle said the cemeteries are filled with indispensable soldiers and generals. Once, once we no longer succumb to the flattery, which is, you know, show business, if somebody says to me, God, that was what you just wrote is absolutely brilliant, I'll you know, put in an extra 48 hours in one day to have my ego massaged and fall prey to the idea I'm better than everybody. No, you're not. Because then the next day you're, you're, they either, their monkey brain, I don't think they consciously decide to do this. There's an old, what, what's the expression? I think it's a Japanese, the, the largest, the tallest nail gets hammered first. And, that's that's what they do. You 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 start rising in a corporation, and the as you say, the petty tyrant up oh, better hammer him down, her down, so she doesn't get. Uh, I think a more mature, and I and I owe this to my son, who's who said to me, "Had you been a had you gone into your career, understanding Marxism, they would have been terrified of you." Mm. You would have, you would, you know, you wouldn't have stayed till eleven o'clock at night. You'd say, "I'm going home. I'm done," and they'd go, "Wow!" But you were so afraid. Anyway, well, let's. Uh, you needed to be. A, you needed to be a student of the two great Marxists, Groucho and Karl. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's uh, let's Professor Faluna. What's on your mind? Oh, I didn't ask well, Professor I, Hussein what's on his mind. 
Oh, you know, the usual things, foreign policy, uh, the similarity between Democrats and Republicans, uh, the Iran nuclear deal, which I've talked about a few times in the past and is really stalling. So in a nutshell, just to be abbreviated, since uh, others should uh, present what they're we're, we're, we have about. We have some time here. Well, I mean, the, the story is in a way simple. I mean, the, the reporting tries to make it extremely complex with every little nuance of, um, you know, Iran's position and what they're trying. They're shutting down some of the inspections and the IAEA is demanding, you know, greater access. And you get involved in this, tit, uh, you know, tit for tat and the nitty gritties when fundamentally the way in which they framed it is so false because... Every article you read is about the pressure that is being put brought to bear on Iran to bring it back into compliance without reckoning with the fact that Iran's position was clear. They wanted to remain in the deal. It was the United States under Trump that decided to tear it up. And now Biden, despite running on making return to the Iran nuclear deal a priority uh, in his campaign and said that he would do this uh, early on, has delayed, has consulted, has refused to put a proposal uh, you know, to the Iranians and is trying to make new conditions that essentially either renegotiate the deal, add new provisions, add Iran's role in the region, which was not part of the deal itself, um, and it's all presented as if Iran is recalcitrant, is hiding its actual nuclear weapons program, um, and so we need good faith measures from Iran before any negotiations or progress can be made, instead of just following what Iran had suggested, which is that they were willing to return to the previous agreement and open everything up as long as the United States returned and eliminated the devastating and terrible sanctions regime that Trump imposed. And these continue under Biden, and he has not indicated that he's ready and willing to dispense with these. It's the U.S. that really needs to be making the good faith effort because they walked out of the, uh, the agreement. So um, what I would like to ask people to think about when they read these articles about um, the progress of trying to recover this deal is when is there going to be pressure? So the Europeans are putting pressure on Iran to do various things. The IAEA is putting pressure on Iran to do various things. The when, deal still, we're not part of it, but France, aren't other countries? Yeah, they, they made they continue to operate within an IAEA framework of continuing to negotiate and not necessarily to uh, abide by the sanctions to try and be a third party to maintain some restraint upon Iran going completely forward in an aggressive way with developing a nuclear weapon or enriching your, you know, uranium to the levels that would allow it and enable it. So they've been still involved. But they're always all the news reporting is about the pressure that they are putting on the Iranian government to return to the deal. And what I wonder is, why is there never a single remark in any of these articles or in any of the public statements of foreign ministers, of heads of state in France and Germany and UK 
about putting pressure on Biden to return to the nuclear deal by getting rid of the sanctions and just saying, yes, we will do that. That's never part of the story. And so I think it's up to us to express that we think it's very important. And I would say for everybody who's on the left domestically, on domestic policy, but that doesn't care that much about foreign policy, that these things are completely linked. U.S. militarism and the way it's sapping the economy of this country and the ill will that it breeds in devastating other parts of the world is not something that we can immunize ourselves from. We are a world connected. And if the pandemic has taught us anything is that we have to see these links, whether it's supply chains that get disrupted or whether it's disease that travels because of people traveling and moving, that you cannot isolate yourself from the consequences of the harm that you're causing abroad through imperialism and through a terrible foreign policy. Um, and so we have to connect these issues and be concerned about both justice and, and um, you know, freedom domestically and also abroad. Professor Filoni, you agree? Uh, how much of this is uh, striking a balance between the needs of Saudi Arabia and Israel? And does America need to placate Saudi Arabia the way it did, I don't know, two years ago, three years ago? Is Saudi Arabia necessary? I think not. I mean, uh, what's in it for states. what's in it for America? We, we don't have yeah, well, that's the, that's the question. I mean, that's we don't have question. a Saudi Arabian. I don't think we have a Saudi uh, voting bloc in the United States. No, but what we do have is a military industrial complex that is so tied up with Saudi uh, purchases uh, of security services, military equipment, intelligence uh, cooperation, technical transfers. And of course, we have an interest in maintaining them as a swing producer in oil and all, all these kinds but politically of speaking, we have Palestinians. We have an Arab population. We, we, uh, we have Jews who identify with Israel. Uh, but I don't think of Saudi immigrants who come to this country and identify. We have Iranians. We have, I don't, I, if, you know, I don't know what the number is, but there's certainly an Iranian voting bloc in the United States. Are, are yeah, you saying yeah, that we aren't a democracy? Well, yeah. I'm just trying to figure out what, you know, we have Cuban, we have Cuban, Cubans, people who identify as Cuban. We, we have people in this country who identify as Iranians, who are refugees from, who you know, who came here because they had some relationship to the Shah. Uh, but they don't want us going to war with their relatives in Iran. And yet Saudi Arabia where we don't have any citizens, I, maybe I'm wrong, we don't have any votes. There are no, no votes to be had. Is there for, cash? 
Washington is awash with Saudi cash. It has, you remember Abscam? I mean, that they bought that, they bought and sold that city <laughs> several times in the last 50 years. It's the cash and the lobbying power they have. It's not about a few people, a few immigrants making a voting block. Right. It's just worth noting. I don't think anybody's ever pointed that out before. <laughs> there are no, there are no, uh, I don't, I've never gone to Saudi town and had some good Saudi food. <laughs> um, what's also astonishing to me is the fact that we know now uh, that the, the power in Saudi Arabia, Prince um, MBS, MBS, uh, is, is responsible for the murder, the gruesome murder of a uh, Saudi journalist who was a permanent resident of the United States by luring him to a, uh, a Saudi uh, diplomatic, I think it was, a, was it an embassy or a consulate, I think. Consulate, in yeah. yes. And chopping him up with a bone saw. Uh, we know that MBS is responsible for that. And yet Biden is saying, oh, I don't think we need to punish him or hold him accountable for that. Really? I mean, it's just. Yeah. And, and, you know, and there is the other. Uh, I'm not defending Israel. They, uh, they in terms of the, the pandemic, because. They are not allowing, uh, they're shipping, the va they're very well vaccinated so far in Israel, but the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza are not getting their vaccines. Uh, that might even be worse than Khashoggi, killing Khashoggi. But, but there are people in America who identify with Israel. There are people in America who identify with the Palestinians Again, it speaks to what Professor Faluna just said. The only thing that's keeping us from turning on the Saudis is their their money, but the uh, their their money and their role in the region um, as a client state of the U.S. pursuing and enforcing U.S. interests in the region. But we do we now that we are. Even if we don't go into alter alternative energy, we are the largest producer now of gas and oil. We're the so. I guess we still need Saudi Arabia, though. We need permanent war. It's the basis of our economy. Yes, go on. Explain, explain that to me. Our single biggest export for years now, years, has been weaponry. Back even in graduate school, there used to be the, uh, I don't know if they uh, publish it anymore, but I would go to the Borders bookstore and pick up, you know, Arsenal Democracy and, you know, see what all cool stuff we're selling to everyone. We are selling it to everyone all over the world. I was shocked way back in the day when I found out that, yeah, we, you know, the single biggest recipient at the time was Israel. The second biggest was uh, Egypt. You're talking about you're talking about uh, foreign aid. Well, foreign aid and but it, but 
sales of actual weaponry and not just weaponry. You know, we're talking about surveillance systems and other types of national security type, you know, well, high tech. Exactly. And I mean, most of that aid is, is, is the foreign aid is in military aid where the government gives money for the Egyptians or the Israelis, but particularly the Egyptians, to purchase right. yes. military it's a subsidy. equipment, services, it's technology. Our yeah. foreign aid to Egypt and Israel, that's our biggest Is fight. to Raytheon and yes. Boeing and, and so on. Yeah. And, you know, what we get out of uh, these uh, uh, primitive states like Saudi Arabia, and for that matter, you know, like, Israel right now, just about an outlaw state, you know, as far as most of the rest of the world is concerned, is we get permanent tension and permanent war. That's what we buy. We don't want peace. <laughs> We've never have wanted peace. I mean, that's the last thing we want out there. Uh, we, we keep the tension up. We will always have an excuse. There will always be a threat. There will always be an external threat. You know, now that the Soviet Union is, is disintegrated, although we're trying to, like, you know, ramp that up, we need outside threats for the kind of, you know, capitalism that is, uh, you know, late-stage capitalism going on. If you read anything by, uh, was it uh, Andrew Basovich? He's, yeah. He's a universe, Boston University guy. I we had him on the show. Really? Yeah. Oh, I missed that. It was uh, about six years ago, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you can check out a new movie that should be coming out—a documentary by David Schiskel based on his book *America's War for the Greater Middle East*. And the documentary is called uh, *Oil War*. And you had him on your podcast. Yeah, I had him on the Mudgeless podcast. Well, right. you know, but but getting back to your comments, uh, Professor Hussein, about uh, our dealing with uh, with Iran, there are a lot of top Democrats that had no interest in this Iran deal. By the way, Chuck Schumer being the you know the principal among them, and I don't think that there. I didn't have much hope for the Biden administration since he's named uh, Victoria Newland as uh, the undersecretary of state who would be setting a lot of this kind of foreign policy. And she's just now a straight up neocon. I mean, she's really a big promoter of America, uh, American empire and America exerting its power physically on the world. So, uh, you know, that's the kind of people that we have to deal with. But they're the adults, right? They're not the out of control like Trumpists. <laughs> How many people did Biden kill uh, f during that Syrian airstrike? Was it was over 20. Over 20. 22. 22 is the official number. I'm old enough to remember when that would have been a banner headline in the New York Times. We've become so acclimated. Yeah, well, you know, when... when um when Obama started droning, I mean, people were shocked, I think, at first, especially when he killed the kid who was the uh, the son of one of our uh, uh, targeted people. Well, you're not supposed to just kill people without due process, but that was a little And shocking. wasn't he an American citizen as well? Yeah, he was an American citizen. And they just ramped it up and they kept quiet. I mean, they were suppressing the number. I mean, they kind of... Of course, they're lying about this. And then we find out that it's one and two orders of magnitude greater than the original number. So by the time Trump does the same thing, you know, several years later, he kills the other kid. 
of the same. He's, he's like targeting the same family, kills the little girl. By that time, people were just kind of jaded to this. You know, right. it's just that we've, we've been accustomed and acclimated to the state of permanent warfare. 20. Uh, Marianne, he, he really wanted to educate them. That's what he wanted to do. He, he wanted to get them a good job and get them a good law degree. That's what he said in his autobiography. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that would be Obama, not Trump. <laughs> You know, it, it, it seems like we're up against, it's almost a fatalism where we have a trillion dollars every year that has to go into the military. That's just taken off the plate for the rest of us. And coupled with close to 400 million guns in this country, I don't worry about the guns, my God, like, you know, as I'm, I'm arguing with my gun nut friends, you know, I'm, I kind of am with them somewhat or used to be, except that, like, fine, have your pop guns, uh, you know, one white phosphorus bomb will just wipe out all of Kendall County. It doesn't matter. The, I mean, the, the U.S. government has a monopoly on the weapons that matter. Uh, but, you know, what about the other, like, nine rights in the bill of rights you know we're not getting we're losing all of those rights even if we have our guns they're not protecting right. us from losing all these rights so it's just crazy i don't worry about that but okay. uh you know but we don't but what is a little more distressing was i was reading about a week ago where uh somebody i think it was some one of these respectable outlets were polling people on political attitudes and the number one fear, they were pulling on people's fears. And the number one fears of the Trump supporters and the Republicans in general were the Democrats. The number one fear of the Democrats in general were the Trump supporters. I mean, they've got us hating each other. Which may be good. Well, good for the oligarchs wanting to take over. I mean, they've been having us at each other's throats for 40 years, arguing gun rights and abortions. In the meantime, they're robbing us blind and the same donors. Right. Are but, both parties. But do you think Biden could take us to war? Given how divided we are, do you think? It doesn't matter what we think. I mean, the war powers, I mean, because we have allowed presidents unconstitutional use of military power for decades now. It doesn't matter what we think, besides which, there's no draft. So, you know, the the upscale liberals are at brunch talking about their kids in graduate school. And, you know, it's somebody, somebody else is fighting their war. Yeah. I, I just wonder if we hate each other, we can't all get on the same page to hate a foreign country. Did, but that's my point, David. The country doesn't go to war. The owners of the country decide what happens. They don't need our input. And we've allowed we've allowed our presidents to just have just about unilateral uh, decision making over the use of force, which is so unconstitutional. I mean, it is just one of the most fundamentally constitutional things we have is that the president doesn't declare war. It's the Congress. And, right. and the Congress, to be fair, has just abdicated that. They, they have just literally, they don't want that on their plate. They're afraid of making the wrong decisions. And unfortunately, 
we get Democrats that are so afraid, even some of our progressives are so afraid to just, you know, understand what power is all about. And you're just going to have to start. And, and you're not, it's not going to be pleasant. And any exercise anybody does from any party that grabs onto power is going to be met ferociously with a backlash, but you're just going to have to figure out how right. to weather it. Very quickly, uh, Professor Faluna, what's on your mind? Because uh, I think Professor Harvey J.K. is going to be here shortly with Alan Minsky. Good. No, I just wanted to, I just wanted to second what Adan said. Is that I just wanted to say right on, brother, because that this the triplet of foreign war, poverty, and racial discrimination. That's what MLK was talking about 50 years ago. And we still haven't it still hasn't penetrated our thick heads. And, and I love that thing, like you should pay for, we should have to make the US pay for leaving the Iran arms deal. Just make us pay for that. And we should also pay for having to, having left the Paris climate accord. Oh, you wanna come back in? Well, you said you were gonna bring your greenhouse gas emissions down below 2005 levels. No, 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 you can't come in until you promise to do it below 1990 levels like California has. Like, it's like we just, I don't know. That's frustrating. But now there's a new study out. There's a new study out, Professor Faluna, that the the shutting down of the economy has done nothing for the environment. You you had said that. And I told you that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a new study out. It was a brief blip. Yeah. Bill, you're you're breaking up, Professor Jonathan. Oh, sorry. I ventured into Professor Jonathan's field and I came across a paper in global environmental politics called Silver Lining to Extreme Weather Events, Democracy and Climate Change Mitigation. And it's not that groundbreaking, but the study basically studied 53 countries across the globe and ranked them in terms of their, their like vibrancy of their democracy. And sure enough, the ones who had a more vibrant democracy had more uh, you know, stringent response to climate change. So that there's this correlation. I mean, it's not it's not groundbreaking, but it makes sense. But you know, a lot of my colleagues are like still fighting the front from 15 years ago, and it's like we have to convince people that climate change is real. No, two out of three Americans know that it's real and something should be done. The 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 battle now is about democracy. We need to expand. We need to make a much more robust democracy worldwide, right? So that the worldwide response is more robust to climate change. Right. So that was that was what. Great. Uh, we're going to wrap it up. Thank you. This is great. I, I abs- This is uh, such thank you for your generosity. And uh, I will see all of you, I hope, for office hours and hours, which is starting at 8 p.m. this Friday. And it goes till 10 p.m. on Saturday. Coming up, Alan Minsky and Professor Harvey J.K. Okay, all flight controllers, go, no, go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Ecom. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. Harvey J.K. He's got a lot to say About Thomas Paine And FDR St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. 
Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. JK wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical, won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey JK is on the show today. Harvey JK. Thank you, Professor. Thank you, Professor Mike Steinell, who will be left standing this Friday at 8 p.m. We go 26 hours for office hours and hours starting at 8 p.m. Eastern. What has Professor K wrought? What hath he wrought? It was under a year ago that Professor Harvey J.K. taught me how to use Zoom and Look what you have done. Also joining us is Alan Minsky, executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. We're, we're not even a year into Zoom, Professor K, and we've now turned office hours into a uh, <laughs> once a week and once a month that goes 24 hours. It brings to mind the Great Depression of the 1930s and those dance marathons, were they? Mm -hmm. They shoot horses, don't they? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, right. It's, uh, I say it's like Chautauqua. It's like an X-rated Chautauqua. <laughs> There's religion. And uh, Alan Minsky, you have to unmute yourself. I'm pretty muted tonight, David. A lot of or every month at, at PDA, we do these organizing meetings around our big uh, congressional liaison program. And this month, it's we're going to be building support and asking Congress people to support Pramila Jayapal and Bernie Sanders, Medicare for all. But once a month, I, I'm on the show on Thursday evening, having had back to back meetings, organizing national meetings in regions, two on Wednesday, two on Thursday. And so don't mind if I drift away into muteness. 
<laughs> you're, because you're disappointed or brain dead? Tired. No, just tired. Oh, you're tired. Just... Well, this is the place to come. <laughs> Professor K, we are celebrating Donald Trump's inauguration today. It's uh, March 4th. That's yes. when uh, Q, Q says he was going to be sworn in today. And we also have an anniversary, don't we? Yeah. Today is the anniversary of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's first inauguration. In fact, March 4th, 1933, 88 years ago. And there was the last one held on March 4th until today's uh, very special Donald Trump uh, ascendance. <laughs> so how did you how do you compare Trump's second inauguration tonight to uh, FDR's? What, what did FDR say that was uh, different than from what Trump outlined? Let's see. We have nothing to fear but fear itself. And in Donald Trump's case is uh, everything to fear. Everything to fear, right? Yeah. What? what uh, but I want, can I, I? But I do want to go on record as a. I want everyone to know if they haven't seen this on Twitter or Facebook or somewhere else that something occurred this week that I've been working twenty years to see happen. I twenty one, in fact, you might say you're dating Angie Dickinson. <laughs> Does your good. wife know about this? <laughs> That's a very good one. <laughs> Yeah, you know, 20, I haven't really talked about this, but 20 years ago, there was a state senator elected here in Wisconsin from my state senate district na named Dave Hansen, who was a really good guy and a, and a pretty liberal, indeed progressive uh, state senator. And I had been talking to him on the night that he, I guess it was the night he won the election. And I said to him, you know, you know, that in years to come, the Democrats will not be in power in this state. You might, might be a governor here or one of the houses of the legislature. And it strikes me that when you're out of power is a good time to start cultivating a vision and cultivating an agenda. And I was urging him to take up FDR's Economic Bill of Rights and, and compose, I would have been glad to help him, a Wisconsin Economic Bill of Rights. And... Every time he and I would run into each other, he would say, wow, he said, uh, got to get you down to talk to the Senate caucus, you know, to the Democratic caucus. I said, yeah, anytime, anytime. And it went on and on. It was kind of after a while, I just gave up on, the, on that. But my uh, young colleague, uh, John Shelton, his, uh, his wife, Christina, yes. ran for school board here in Green Bay and then decided that she was going to make a run for the state assembly in the district that I live in. And she went up against an incumbent Democrat on a very progressive uh, platform. And we, we'd known each other since they arrived. And I had told her this story many times about my hope that somebody in the state legislature would develop this Wisconsin Economic Bill of Rights. And she and another brand new state rep Francesca Hong from from Madison, possibly the most progressive uh, assembly district in the state. But the two of them got together and put together with, you know, a bit of mentoring from John Nichols of The Nation magazine and myself, a Wisconsin uh, Economic Justice Bill of Rights that they launched this week. And, you know, I, and it, it seems to be catching on around the state, at least among um progressives. And I, it's possible that it may well actually kick off a, a new kind of Democratic Party up here in the upper Midwest. She, she I, won. Know, I, she won. Way. Oh, yeah. she won. You bet. And uh, the two of them, as I said, composed this uh, 
Wisconsin Economic Justice Bill of Rights. And it's it's very, very progressive statement. It can really, I think, bolster Democrats in any debate, in any contest with Republicans. You know, I think uh, I think Wisconsinites and I think a lot of Americans have been waiting for a truly and not just a futz around kind of thing, but a really truly progressive projection and vision uh, to mobilize around. And I'd love to see it really take off. And I'd like to see other state legislators, not just in Wisconsin, but across the country, pick up on this, too. It's astounding to me how full of crap uh, the, 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 the system is and, and how indefensible it is. You cannot defend yep. anything that's emanating from both parties. I mean, Gavin Newsom indefensible. Andrew Cuomo, indefensible. Obviously, the Republicans, indefensible. And there is a path forward that Professor Kay has talked about, and that is more democracy. And, you know, more voting means more empowerment of the 99%. Uh, Alan Minsky from the Progressive Democrats of America you know, we talk about solidarity and bringing the 99 cent, 99 cent, 99 percent together. It can't happen without a media. And I'm ashamed to tell you that I didn't know what the Port Huron statement was uh, until you told me and then set up an interview with Tom Hayden my first year doing the radio show, I, inter I had uh, the glorious opportunity to meet and interview Tom Hayden. And, uh, you know, I was skimming the Port Huron statement recently, and he said, mm -hmm. uh, this can't be done without providing us with a media that recognizes the masses. Uh, what was the Port Huron statement? And then, then we'll talk about uh, the the lack of media. It was, it, was it, was, it was a reference in the Big Lebowski. Oh, so okay. It's the most famous claim to fame. Well, that, that answers yeah, the question. That, that's what was the, yeah. the Port yeah, Huron? The dude, the, dude, the dude says, uh, I, I co-authored the Port Huron statement before they took all the radical stuff out. Um, the Port Huron Statement was a foundational document for the Students for Democratic Society, written, I believe, in 1962, while Tom Hayden yeah. was, I suppose, still an undergraduate at the University of Michigan. I think so. And yeah. uh, it pretty much was a, a, just a vision for uh, a society in which people could be more free. You'd have uh, economic and social and racial justice in the United States of America. And um, I can't quote a chapter and verse. But Arthur but, uh, Schlesinger, who was an advisor to President Kennedy, brought Tom Hayden to the White House. And yeah. the uh, he knew, Tom Hayden knew back then, that without a, a media that isn't owned by the oligarchs, this message cannot get through. If... If the American people were fed a, a diet that is the antithesis of what they're fed every day on AM talk radio or the networks, if, if there were a labor beat 
and there was a, a conversation every night on MSNBC about the illegal evictions that are going on now, even though there's supposedly a moratorium. If there were reports about the plight of the homeless and the desperate, uh, it would be a different political scene right now, wouldn't it? Well, as you know, I, you know, with what I used to do, um, that was sort of my understanding of when I was involved in trying to, you know, uh, work in, in, in independent media, which is what I did the balance of my adulthood. It was a, it was in political action because I thought I completely agree with what Hayden was saying at the time. It's amazing that that was a big focus of his thinking in 1962. Cause of course we look back, of course, in 1962, what they're fighting against too is a lot of uh, cultural uh, homogeneity and, and rigidity. So uh, obviously there was an explosion of both political and cultural resistance in the 1960s. Uh, and then what you, you have uh, opening up in terms of so much uh, social and political discourse for the baby boomers as they come of age. Uh, but then it sort of all gets packed back in and we have a real reaction and consolidation around corporate control of the media. So, you know, there once were all these independent FM radio stations, not just, you know, Pacifica Radio out there at the end of the 1960s, early 1970s, and seemed like uh, Hayden's wish was coming true. But, you know, capital being capital and uh, consolidation of wealth operating within our society, and it all got swallowed up very quickly. Professor K, the the Daily News is uh, owned by Alden Capital now. It's a venture capital firm that's buying up all the newspapers in America, then stripping their assets, burdening them with debt, laying off the staff. Have you ever seen it this bad in terms of? No, I haven't. And um, in fact, if I could use the example, I was just citing of my young friends who authored that Wisconsin Economic Bill of Rights. so this this launched on Monday, today's Thursday, and it's a significant statement by two state representatives. And I don't believe that even the state media have picked it up yet. And it's going to be presented as a bill. It may not go anywhere in a decidedly, overwhelmingly Republican-controlled legislature. But somehow the idea that two young women new to the game of politics almost – Uh, author an economic bill of rights that harkens back to FDR's economic bill of rights. Um, It's, it's, it's astounding just how much even it's just astounding how much the media can ignore any kind of progressive impulses. But, you know, I mean, we saw this over many years, this, this, this assault on newspapers, the, the purging of radio of liberal and left voices, the the denial of labor's place in American life, which has accompanied the you know the busting of unions ever since the 1970s. No, I don't think I have. Now, on the other hand, there is a lot of grassroots progressive media, as you know, even this this show. You're you're probably the elder statesman of the uh, YouTube generation of media of left media. But it is the case that a lot of young people are are really sort of creating these podcast shows, the YouTube shows. And there are still some progressive radio people around the country. I guess the question is how to boost these people in the absence of, of the kinds of 
you know, economic corporate dollar resources that, uh, you know, that not even mainstream media, just literally the capitalist media possesses. Yeah. Uh, hey, you know, critical thinking, it, it starts with critical thinking. Let me tell you a story that's getting a lot of coverage here in Manhattan. And I want to ask you the question that should be asked. OK, we are hearing yeah. about a 32 year old woman. Her name is Sadiqa Abdul Salam. She's from the Bronx and she's been arrested because she let her four-year-old daughter wander the streets alone in the Bronx while the, she, the mother, uh, went into a homeless shelter to sleep for the night. And uh, this 32-year-old woman, Sadiq Abdul Salam, is uh, being uh, investigated by Child Protective Services and being demonized. They may prosecute her for abandoning her daughter, and she's being demonized for letting her four-year-old daughter wander the streets while she slept in a homeless shelter. What's the first question that should be asked that's not being asked? Well, um, my first question would be, you're telling me the homeless shelter had no place for mother and child? I mean, that's my first thought. May not be a political one, but it's a the first thought that comes to my mind. Because she's being demonized right now as an example of a, a bad mother. Alan, what's your first question that you ask? Oh, of course. I mean, you know, housing is a human right is a slogan that uh, too many politicians are willing but, but to get, say. Get, get, the headline. What's the headline here that we're not getting? I'm I'm not sure where you're driving at, but the, the question is: it's absolutely absolutely insane that American society allows there to be homelessness. And exactly, homelessness it's in- you have a 32 year old woman who has a four year old daughter who went mm-hmm. into a homeless shelter and left her uh, daughter to wander the streets. In what world would mm-hmm. a, a a in what normal world would a mother abandon her daughter to get some sleep in a homeless shelter? How could that be the mother's fault? How could the mother at all have any responsibility? That is that is that speaks volumes to the how oppressive our system is that it would do that to a mother. What kind of system would would turn a mother into somebody who can't think straight that that she abandons her daughter? But that's not the headline. The headline is to demonize this mother. My understanding is there are a lot of available beds in New York City currently. Right? I mean, there are hotels that have available rooms. There are apartments on the Upper East Side which are not occupied because their occupants have moved out of town. There's also COVID in the homeless shelters. And there's also, uh, we just found out, one of the guys who was running the homeless shelter uh, shelters in New York was raping the women. He was in charge of the homeless shelters. And uh, so anyway, uh, I don't want to get too far away from the thing in Wisconsin too. Harvey, yes. please send me all the information you can about that. That sounds absolutely brilliant. And um, uh, yeah, actually I'm, I'm very close to somebody who works with uh, homeless shelters in New York city. When did this story break, David? It uh, it's this week and it's being used as red meat for the uh, people who believe in austerity and want to demonize uh, the poor. That's, that's, that's some really inverted logic they're using. 
Well, that's what so, that's what our media does. You know, crime is supposedly up now. That's the new story that as we as we're about to watch Chauvin go on trial in Minneapolis, they're spending a million dollars on barricades because they're terrified that people are going to protest and not like the jury's decision. We're being told that murder is up and crime is up. Very convenient. Aut- automobile deaths are up. Which is, you know, and people have been driving much less. But, you know, you, you know, you put, you put a society that's so imbalanced, has so much wealth inequality, so much human desperation under the pressure of a COVID pandemic. I don't think anybody can be surprised by the statistics you're citing, and even the one I just cited. Right. And we're coming up on the anniversary of FDR's uh, inaugural speech. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Those first 100 days... Uh, has there ever been anything like that since? No. No, only the closest Nothing thing like would be the inversion, the going in the wrong direction. A lot was achieved by Ronald Reagan when he first was inaugurated in 1981. That's the only thing that even comes close. What are you reading, Professor Kay? I'm actually reading a lot about, I'm reading a lot of stuff about Lincoln. I, uh, you know, I've worked on the revolution period and I've worked on the, on FDR in th- th- those years. And I think it's about time that I learn more about, I know about Lincoln to some extent, but I, I really want to, I want to know more. So I've been, <clears throat> excuse me, some biographies, some civil war history, because I think I've mentioned it before. I'll tell you that um, I actually think that those three figures for all of their faults and failings, Washington, Lincoln and FDR were, um, were great, but the question is what made them great? And I think it re- involved generations that that we just can't even comprehend because of our utterly messed up uh, state of affairs in this country right now. And I say that because I'm not so sure that Americans wouldn't, uh, that working people wouldn't be up to it so much as we're, we're led by folks who have absolute, who fear working people basically. And so we hear no we hear no voices talking about mobilizing people or organizing people. I mean, you know, as we were talking a little while ago about the, the nightmare of that woman and her child, um, I was thinking about the fact that there is no way, no way that Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer can say that they are incapable of killing the filibuster enacting the $15 minimum wage, um, and blame it on Mansion. They obviously don't want to do it. There's just no way. There's, it, you can buy him off. You can, you know, you can, you can go after him. There's so many ways to make his life hell, Mansion and cinema, or at least threaten to do so. And it's just no way that that they can. Cl- I'm, I, to me, it's a cover that they're that they're he Mansion is a cover for Biden's. I don't know. Exactly. Look, I mean, I don't know seriously if Biden is all there to begin with, but if he is there to begin with, there's absolutely no excuse for failing at this point to secure $15 minimum wage, which in itself is an utterly inadequate figure for uh, for working people to uh, to receive his wages. Not and one I, press conference. Now, he has not had one press that? conference. He's not had one press conference? Not, not an official press conference. Yeah. Well, you know, for a while I thought, okay, let's hear at least some kind of, uh, you know, message to Congress, joint session. And now they're waiting for the pandemic relief to 
pass before they can do that kind of thing. It, it could turn out to be at least mid-March before they before he goes before a joint session of Congress. And in the meantime, this is, you know, uh, uh, essentially uh, it, it's wasted period. They're so awful in their messaging and maybe they're awful in their messaging because they just really do not intend to do the kinds of things that we need doing. But it's also the case. It's also the case that we're not we're not hearing about the the mobilizations on the ground to go to, to wrap this all together. Um, there's an article a day, maybe in the Times. I, I I'm not counting about what's going on in Alabama, but this could be a major breakthrough. And by the way, it's quite possible, even if it fails, given the what did I hear? Did I hear twenty five million dollars being spent to try to prevent workers from voting in favor? Uh, something to that? Oh, Amazon spending? The, like yeah, sure. I mean, I heard some figure today, and I, I I don't know if I was hearing it for the, in terms of a national anti labor thing or specifically. In this, this is case. Bezos is Vietnam. That, it's the domino. Theory. You know, it, it really is the case. It really is the case that even if it doesn't happen in the in Alabama, it's now set the course. It will happen soon. It's going to happen around the country. Because losing doesn't mean it can't happen as a victory elsewhere. So it, even as I say, we're, we're very much adrift and all of that, there, there are so many things still percolating. Right. And the question is where the voices will come that can, you know, that, that, that can raise up the, that kind of energy into a serious movement and bring diverse forces together. I mean, that, that's, it's just from waiting. Green Bay, that's Wisconsin. Why this Wisconsin <laughs> What's that? From Green no, Bay, Wisconsin. Yeah, I, I think that this this Wisconsin Economic Bill of Rights could really be, you know, I, I have hope for it. And isn't yeah, it true that so. labor movements, great big sweeping labor movements, were never sparked by a president? It was always sparked by a union that captured the imagination of the rank and file. Well, there were uh, unions in the early. Th First of all, the labor movement was very weak in 1932, really weak. When people talk about marches that were occurring, they actually were marches of unemployed workers organized by respectively communists, socialists, and the Mustyites, A.J. Musty's group. Um, la labor was weak as an organized force in 1932, but both John L. Lewis and the likes of Sidney Hillman saw that FDR could be a vehicle for the labor movement, and they were right. And in fact, in the National Industrial Recovery Act in 1933, in those first 100 days, there was the enactment of workers' rights to organize. It later had to be um, bettered by the National Labor Relations Act. So it, it's the, a labor movement in itself is there percolating. Imagine, imagine someone stepping forward out of politics who could then link those, that kind of percolation together with what's going on in DC. Look, there are certain things that must happen this year, okay? Including, as I said, the $15 minimum wage, the pandemic relief, which will happen in some fashion, okay? Some kind of infrastructure plan, but also the PRO Act. But I, I, this administration may not be it, but I, I wonder at what point, you know, at what point uh, some younger figures in politics will step forward to try to mobilize. And I hope it's not Josh Hawley. <laughs> Yeah, no, the, the number of issues that can't go through because of, of the filibuster block, which, again, is in place by 
cinema and mansion, but we see no pressure coming from the administration to exert that's, on that. That's my point. Right. 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 We have the pro act. We have the pro democracy HR one bill, which both. And HR one is, is fundamental right now. God, given what's gone on in Georgia and other States, even here in Wisconsin. I mean, I saw figures about, you know, the, I mean, it's hundreds of not thousands of, of legislators around the country, you know, instant, you know, issuing possible bills to basically reduce people's capacities to vote. Now, I mean, not- the Republicans know they cannot win unless they suppress the vote. Mm-hmm. And Democrats, mm-hmm. as far as they're concerned, they'd like to basically let people vote and then, <laughs> and then let them suffer. Right, right. At least five major issues, the democracy thing, the PRO Act, uh, the H.R. 1 PRO Act, the Equality Act, immigration reform, which is obviously massive, and um, any gun rights legislation, all of it requires the reversal of the filibuster. There's no way that any of that gets even close to going through reconciliation. So basically, the entire social agenda of the Democratic Party is going nowhere. Right. And we were taught, we, I was talking. It is inconceivable that the Democratic Party would allow the parliamentarian. Nobody even knew there was a parliamentarian until the Democrats started bowing to the parliamentarian, you know, sort of as, as if we have to bow to this person. We don't know what they're going to do yet, but we have to bow to this person. And Kamala Harris, if, if she doesn't override, well, then fuck the Democrats right now. Jesus Christ, they're, they're Amen. worthless. Amen. I agree with you. It's, uh, you know, and I, apparently I was talking to Reverend Barry W. Lynn earlier. You just need a simple majority to make Washington, D.C. and Puerto Rico states. Yeah, well, let's say D.C. Puerto Rico is not, you know, if if, if in Congress, if they act to to uh, turn Puerto Rico into a state without popular yeah, support right. of Puerto Rico, that would be a new version of American yeah. imperialism. Right. Right. But, but that would change the before you go. I, I, I know you're tired. Thank you. Uh, please come back. I, I saw this and I just this will make Professor K very happy. The New York Times is investigating columnist David Brooks. Turns out uh, he had a, a side hustle working for our friends over at the Aspen, Aspen Institute's Weave Project. Uh, What's that? It's uh, David Brooks, if you suffer through any of his columns, has written about weaving people together. It's not about the government. It's about weaving all types of people together. And he wrote a lot of columns for The New York Times about weaving what he failed to disclose to his readers (laughs) and The New York Times is that. He's on salary with the Aspen Institute's Weave Project, which takes about $250,000 from Facebook. And uh, Brooks has been doing private columns and videos <coughs> for Facebook. He didn't tell uh, the New York Times or his readers that he's taking money from Facebook and the Aspen Institute, and they should all rot in hell. Gee, I, I, I wonder if he ever reported that he slept in my house. Yes, I know. You know? Um, anyway. Downstairs. Uh, Next time I'll take the, the laptop down, I'll show you the bed that David Brooks slept in. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> thank you so much. Let us now go thank you. to, thank you, Alan Minsky, Progressive Democrats of America, thank Professor you. Harvey J.K. Pickup, FDR on Democracy. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Well, 
let us now go to California, where Emil Guillermo is standing by. He is a columnist for the Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and he hosts the PETA podcast, and he's had one vaccine. We'll find out. He, you've had two. You've had two vaccines. It's so good to, to share my vaccination moments with your with your audience. Thank you. Right. I, I got the second shot today. Today. It hurts. I, I hear the second shot is I hear it's. It, it was I was. Did just, you have Moderna arm? I hear there's a thing called Moderna arm. I, I got I have Moderna because I thought, you know, Moderna sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds like some kind of Italian fashion plate kind of vaccine. Right. So I thought, I'm getting that. You know, I, I, I love Italian fashion. Uh, but the second one was like, maybe it could be the application by the by the uh, administrator. You know, she, she might have poked me a little harder, but I did feel it. It wasn't like a, you know, I... It wasn't like a, you know, like a, a quick poke and it, it, it sort of hurt and I'm okay. They, they asked you to wait 15 minutes to see if you're, you know, have some kind of reaction, but I, I, I was okay. But now here's the thing, David, uh, I don't feel like Superman yet, you know, and, and because of the policies of your program, we're not allowed to talk about what little scientific knowledge we have about the actual vaccine. But I understand in time, the antibodies build up. But I'm I was told by uh, people I know that, you know, this is the test to see if you're if the first vaccine, the first administration has built up your immune system. And so maybe you feel a little odd for the first day, but you should recover. It's expected right. that you're going to, it means it's working. Right. And then in time, and I, I, I know there are two conflicting studies. There's, well, not really conflicting, but one was done in Israel that said that, that the Pfizer vaccine after one shot, it builds up immunity and it's in the nineties. And then the, then the Mayo clinic did another study that didn't do just one uh, group of recipients. They did the the Moderna and Pfizer recipients, and that was close to about ninety two. So, you know, that's a I I feel good. I don't feel like Superman yet, but isn't it funny that Gavin Newsom, who's sort of in some trouble uh, from uh, the right, you know, in terms of the recall, he's doing all he can to get Californians vaccinated now, and after waiting. And not knowing for a good what month or two, finally, they called me, the, the county that I live in, called me and said, hey, in your community, they're going to have a vaccine. You know, do you want a vaccine? Because now we're giving them out. Now we're like opening up the, you know, the gates and letting, you know, more people in. And, uh, but, you know, I is it true that it, they're letting, is it true that the San Diego Zoo is giving the COVID I don't know about the San Diego Zoo, but two, two, two chimps or, or gorillas. I no? I have not heard that. I have not heard that. But I I just know. Do that. I have to wait until after the chimps get it before? Well, uh, you're you're a young man, David. Young, and this yeah. is one. This is one of the things about your. You know, and New York is not doing well. 
It isn't. They're not doing well on the vaccinations. Cuomo. He's trying to vaccinate his his uh, his career. Yeah, yeah. From, uh, he's trying to jab people someplace else other than the arm. And uh, we can't get vaccinated. You have to be is, over. Is still, you, you can't even claim that you're going to be a food service worker for a day or anything like that. Or you're in the front lines. Look at people. Me. Do I look like I'm essential? Uh, no. You know, you, no. You look pretty not essential. Yeah. I'm, I, I have never. You, you look like you have more hair. Well, thank you. You look like you have more hair, though. I have never yeah. felt more. It was bad enough that I was feeling culturally irrelevant. And then the pandemic hit. And then I just realized, I realized personally how unessential I was. And then officially, I've been told by the government, you're not, you can die. We don't, you're not getting a vaccine. We can, we can live without you living. That's, are you frozen? Emil is frozen. Okay. It's amazing that doesn't happen more often. Are you there, Emil? Yeah, the great apes at the San Diego Zoo uh, are being vaccinated against COVID-19. Nine great apes at the San Diego Zoo are the first non-human primates to receive uh, an experimental COVID-19 vaccine. I think it's a different vaccine than the one uh, that we're being given, and they should get the vaccines. I, you know, I'm glad they're vaccinating the great apes. Uh, wish I got the vaccine too. I think I'm going to be the last guy on earth to get the vaccine. I think there's a anyway. Are you back, Emil? There you are. Okay, look, I am so sorry. I live That's in this okay. part of California where they, they're not really sure if it's part of California. But uh, are you seceding? Uh, no, no, it be, it's because there's, you know, I'm in this flyover part of California, you know, and we got lousy internet and it's going to be the digital divide. Okay, now I was going to get to the, I'm going to be a downer here now. I got okay. my shot. Yes. And then I got home. And I found out that my father-in-law had passed away. And that and that is the truth. He's like 88. He's on the East Coast. And, and is this related to the shot? Well, it's not related to the shot. He couldn't get the shot. They, you know, his, he just, he, it, it, it's just that. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that. The coincidence. But I will, I just want to pay homage to my, yes. my father-in-law because he was from Appalachia. And you know me, I'm a big race guy, right? Race over class all the time. Really? But when you have a father-in-law from Appalachia who was dumped on, treated poorly, grew up in the Daniel Boone forest, you know, he's the grandfather of my Filipino hillbilly kids. You know that he lived a tough, I mean, he lived a tough life and he convinced me that there are certain times when class is more important than race. And, you know, you see it now. You, you're talking with Harvey J.K. and you're talking with Alan. Class is a very important thing. And, um, you know, I say this as the son of a, a union cook, you know, who, uh, you know, wasn't handed anything as a kid. Uh, you know, I, 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 
I learned a lot from my my father-in-law. And it what was his be, name? What was his name? His name was Charlie Sorrell. Charlie Sorrell from from Kentucky, and served uh, in the in the army. And he went to work for the government. He he wrote the Golden Guides to uh, Rocks and Minerals. If you any, I remember um, that as a kid. Yeah, yeah. He he wrote the Golden Guides. He was a he was a, a geologist, a ceramicist. Um, he became he lifted himself up from his humble beginnings as a a kid who grew up in the Daniel Boone Forest. And you say Appalachia? Are we talking West Virginia? Are we talking Kentucky? Kentucky? Kentucky. 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 And yeah, one of the things that I wish I had gone to when I lived in uh, Maryland, uh, my wife went to it alone, but they had like a little, like a little hootenanny of the family Hmm. and they went out into the country and was all his, his relatives. Nope. You're freezing. Hello. Hello, Emil. Hello, my darling. Hello, my honey. Hello, my... You're not going to, you're frozen. Okay. Not good. All right. Well, this is what we're going to do because he's freezing up and it's probably time to say hello to Dan Frankenberger and wrap this up. And if you're still here, Dan, we'll wrap it up. Did we leave? Why, look, it's a pretentious douchebag. Please say hello to our pretentious douchebag, Dan Frankenberger. So are you excited about office hours? Yeah, it's going to be great. Eight o'clock. I can't see your pipe. There you go. I got it. Starts at 8 p.m. Eastern. We start with the Europeans. Hopefully, Professor Ian Faluna or somebody will do an invocation. And then I'll do the complaint department. And then we go. And we go all the way till 10 10 p.m. 10 p.m. Now, how much are you going to get into trouble with your loved ones? How much of this can you see? Bear. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, how great I'm... is Tom Weber? Yeah, he's super awesome. There's Emil. Hey, sorry again. Like I said, I got this uh, sketchy system. Uh, Do you know Dan... pretentious douchebag Dan Frankenberger? I only know him by by his uh, by his handle there, and I've seen his emails. Hello, Dan. Hello. He's hey, a- here, here's the other thing. Uh, you know, I I t- a friend of mine asked me if I felt really like Supermanish after getting the vaccine. I said, No, I don't. I don't fear the vaccine now. I just fear all those anti Asian American racists out there who seem to be everywhere now. They're, what are the know. numbers? It seems like it's just, is it, is it worse? Let me ask you a question, because I'm reading yeah. a lot about attacks on Asian Americans. Is it, sti- yeah. is it statistically worse now than it was a year ago, or is this something that's finally being reported? And you're frozen. Okay. Why don't we do this? Why don't we? <laughs> it's a serious question. And uh, why don't you quiz me? On, right. uh, let's see if I can get this right. I think this is going to be easy for me. I got, the, I got the list in front of me. Okay. 
We started with Martha Previtt as Nancy Pelosi. Then we went to Grace Jackson and Henry. Then we went to uh, Ben Burgess, Professor Ben Burgess. Then that would be 630. I'm having trouble with the 630. Ben Burgess, who would be? It wasn't on the schedule. That's why you're having trouble. Uh, 630. Oh, Mike Rowe. Yep. How funny was he? Yeah, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, then we fast. Had, he's fast. Yeah, he's a great right. Yeah, he's a, and sweet, fast and sweet. Uh, then Doctor Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld, and then the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, then Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Ian Faluna, Professor Adnan Hussein. Then Alan Minsky from the Progressive Democrats of America and Professor Harvey J.K. And then Emil Guillermo. And we, we started with we started with Dan, Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. I think you skipped one segment. I, I missed did. a segment. I think you skipped something. My voice is a hint. Oh, my God. You're right. You and Molly, Dan, John Hayes. I apologize. That was a great job. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Oh, okay. Thanks. Yeah, I'm not a, I'm not an interviewer, so <laughs> as long as I could. Neither am I. A, a half hour. That's okay. Yeah, you were great. Bring her hey, back, hey, David. Yes, sir. You guys are. You guys should be winding down by now, right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I, I, I've got my phone here. If you want, if you want, that might be more stable. Yeah, this is like the sloppy part of the show. Oh, thanks. Well, no, I'm saying like you're freezing, and uh, are you going to participate in off? We're doing 27 hours of office hours. If you're interested, you are. yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I could. Let me see if I can uh, do it. Hey, okay. look, I'm doing two things now. See, I muted my my bad camera. This is great. Now I'm on the phone. You look good. And, well, thanks, thanks. Hey, hey, David, really, seriously, um, as far as the stop AAPI hate thing, to answer your question, I think people have become aware and are covering it more. And because the number 3,000 is... 3,000? What, what do you mean 3,000? Yeah, it's near, it's near 3,000. But it's just what I don't understand what that uh, 3000 attacks in the past. What? Since March 2020. Oh, since COVID. And it, so you're saying 3000 Asian Americans have been attacked. Right. Instances. Hate crimes. Probably being blamed for a when you have a president calling it the Chinese virus. Yeah. What a piece of shit Donald Trump is. Well, yeah, he's scapegoating Asians. And here's the thing. What a piece of shit he, Donald Trump to, is. He's trying to scapegoat Chinese, right? But it, it ends up hurting all Asians. And a good number of the 3,000 have been Filipino, uh, Thai. In fact, the, the man who died in San Francisco a month ago was Thai. And, and that's one of the things. We actually have a death now, this guy in San Francisco. In, in New York, the guy who got uh, slashed in the subway, Filipino. 
And I, in my one man show, I, I do a story about a nurse who go, who finishes his shift and then gets, you know, uh, called out for being Asian by people in the subway. So, so this is a real thing. And the Washington posted a story tomorrow. It's going to appear. I think it's on there now on the website. It says that as, as students are going back to school, parents are pulling Asian American kids because they fear their for their kids safety not from COVID right not from the virus but from anti-Asian bullying in school so this is a real thing it's happening during Lunar New Year so it's kind of like uh, you know people are are kind of upset because this should be a time of family and joy and it's just a reminder that Asian Americans who have experienced this kind of xenophobic treatment for decades, right? You can go back to the Chinese Exclusion Act to the time when my father was came in 19, the 1920s and 30s, the anti-intermarriage laws, the anti-alien act, the anti, you know, they couldn't own, they couldn't own land. Uh, the discrimination that Asian Americans felt all throughout. And, and imagine the 1964 Civil Rights Act. America was still dealing with the black-white situation. Do you think Asian Americans were included, really, really, in the Civil Rights Act? I mean, they might have been an afterthought, but it was still a black-and-white world. And it wasn't until post-1965 with the Immigration Act that more Asian Americans or more Asians were allowed to immigrate to America. So you don't really have an Asian America to, to think about until the 1980s, really, in truth, right? And so that's why this current immigration bill, I mean, Minsky and uh, Harvey, JK, were talking about all the stuff that's coming up. The immigration, the new immigration bill is also going to be a real key because we'll see how the Republicans will use it as a, a way to revive uh, Trump's xenophobic ways, right? You, I've heard what you said about Trump there a minute ago. My sentiments exactly, but we'll see how that gets to be a, a rallying call for for the Republicans. Um, and so, yeah, this is a, a, an interesting time to be Asian American. And yet, I'm sure you saw the Golden Globes, right? No, okay. lowest rated lowest rated Golden Globes in the history of the Golden Globes. That's because it seemed like a Zoom meeting, right? I mean, a Zoom meeting with better clothes, I guess. Or but, maybe people have caught on. Well, I hope, but but here's the thing: you know, from an Asian American perspective, what was the best movie? The best movie was maybe the most Asian American movie um, of the bunch that didn't have an Asian American, but it did have an Asian American, Chloe Zhao, directing Nomadland which really, when you think about it, is probably the most Asian-American movie when you consider the whole nomadic, you know, diasporic kind of, you know, vision or feelings of an immigrant. And Chloe Zhao, born in Beijing, educated here in America. I'm not sure about her status, but to me, she's an Asian in America, an Asian-American, and her vision was Nomadland. And I, you know, which I, a movie I loved, I'm glad it won. But then you look at, have you seen Minari yet? No, not yet. Yeah, that's that's another movie that's interesting because 
Minari won for best foreign film when it was written by an Asian American from Denver, right? And the director's from Denver. It's about his family story going from South Korea to Arkansas. But, uh, you know, we still have a very skewed sense of what is Asian American and what is modern Asian America, which is really Chloe Zhao. But we're stuck with this xenophobic idea and notion of Asian America. And wouldn't you know, this is what we get. You know, we, we, we get all this. Uh, Let me show you something. These killings or these uh, beatings. Yeah. In your state of California, mm. there's a Spanish teacher at Sacramento's Grant Union High School. Mm. Her name is Nicole Burkett, and she's teaching high school on mm. Zoom. And this is what she taught her kids. Is this going to work? No, nope, it didn't work. Okay, uh, let me try it again. I see a little bit. Yeah. Huh? He's like, she's like slamming her eyes. She's saying if your eyes go up, you're Chinese. If they go down, you're Japanese. And uh, if they're straight, you don't know. Let me you know, let me play it because it, it's so outrageous, and yeah. I usually uh, I, I'm very protective of teachers, as you know. Let me see if I can uh, play this because it's just so unbelievably stupid. Nope, I can't. Okay, but, yeah, and you're breaking up. I'm getting it. It's time to. Okay. Well, 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 anyway, look, David, it's always good to talk to you. Always good to and, talk to you, sir. And thank you for cheering me up. Today. Oh, you know, if you go to my website, amok.com, I, I talk about this Angelo Quinto story. And this, this is one of the things about how we're covering Asian Americans now. But somehow we've missed out on the Angelo Quinto story. He's an, he's a Filipino American whose story came out. He, he was killed after a policeman put his knee on the back of Quinto's neck. Wow. It's, it was played up as a local story here, but this is a national story because Quinto also had some kind of mental health issue. He was going through a crisis uh, moment. The police came, snatched him from the arms of his mother, and then cuffed him, put him face down, and then applied the George Floyd technique, and he died. Now, he went. He was rendered unconscious, and he died officially in the hospital three days later. And this happened. This happened in December, but it wasn't released until a week, uh, two weeks ago. Last uh, two weeks ago, this coming Friday, because the attorneys were filing a lawsuit against the city of Antioch. So go to my website at amok.com, or I do a piece on ALDEF, the, on the ALDEF blog, and follow the case of Angelo Quinto. It's a story that people should know about. Okay. Thank you, buddy. Emil Amuck on Twitter. Read him over at ALDEF, the Asian American Legal Defense and Asia Education Fund. Very quickly, who's on the PETA podcast? John, you have a question about PETA? John has a question? Um, no, I don't. Do you, do, you, do you know that Emil is a world-class 
vegan, John? Yes, yes. I actually did talk to Emil a couple of times, actually, when he was on off hour, office hours. Uh, do, do, do you know that, that you're not doing it right? I'm not doing it right. Yeah. I'm not doing what right. You're, you're not a world-class vegan. vegan. Oh, world-class. Uh, you have I'm, to be. Well, I'm a SoCal vegan. That's close. No, you got to be as here. vegan as Emil. <laughs> Otherwise, you're, you're part of the problem. Do you have oil in your diet, John? I actually minimized the oil input into my body more over the last year. I, I do stir fry with water like 90% basically. Mm -hmm. So apparently if you. with an air popper. Right. So if you use Mazzola, John, then, then you're not a good vegan, according to Emil. You're a bad vegan. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I have balance. to feel guilty if I stir fry with sesame oil. I made my hummus with tahini, with, with almond paste. And I had to feel guilty, John, because I remembered Emil told me oil you is nuts. I'm oil nuts. David, David, I, I, I do have the Church of Veganism, and you can I, I hold vegan confession on Saturday afternoon. So uh, people can go to my amok.com website and go to attend or, or go come to vegan confession. I always I, talk about... The John Hayes, Dan, the Ro, the Rose Law, the Rose Law firm billing records. Hillary, I always bring this up. She said to Bill, don't turn over my billing records to the special prosecutor. Once you give them that, they'll keep asking for more. And Emil is like the special prosecutor, the Whitewater investigator. No matter what I do. It's it's not good enough. I, I go vegan you. for you. <laughs> now you're going to tell me I, 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 I can't eat soy because it's bad for my prostate. Soy is not bad. I soy can't eat tempeh because it's processed. Fermented. And fermented. <laughs> that's bad for you. No, fermented is actually good for you. Probably for you it's good. Although you probably like sauerkraut. Definitely. You like you would tell me one lima bean and water, lukewarm water with no ice cube, right? Because the ice cube, you know, you have to, uh, that's from the refrigerator. That's bad refrigerators, fluorocarbons and, right? Can't have an ice cube. Ice cube? Uh, well, yeah, there yeah. probably are better ways to get uh, right. some kind of. Frozen, uh, I'm going to go on the Big Mac, John. This is what, see? <laughs> this is how Reagan got elected. You're supposed to be vegan for the animals and the environment. Your your health is the last thing. So, you know, if you go ahead and eat the vegan crap, but just make sure it's vegan. Well said. Right. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Emil. Thank you, Thank you John. Thank, Thank you, you, Dan. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> we'll see everybody for uh, office hours, right? Starting at 8 p.m., Friday night at nine. What am I saying? Friday. I'm so out of it right now. It's Friday at 8 p.m. Professor Hussein, did you have something you wanted to say? Oh, I just wanted to make an announcement that on Monday's uh, taping for the Tuesday show, we'll be having a guest on my segment, Kashama Sawant, from a city councilwoman from uh, Seattle. Wow. And that's great. We will Thank have you. the chance to discuss with this real force, uh, I think, in progressive left politics. So do send me questions and topics that you're interested in, David and I. 
addressing. Uh, you can send it to me on Twitter or in the Discord. If you're part of that uh, David Feldman Show server through a direct message, and my Twitter is at Adnan A. Hussein. Fantastic. Thank you for, I can't wait. That, that's, that's fantastic. All right. Uh, office hours and hours this, this Friday, starting at 8 p.m. Office hours and hours. We start at 8 p.m. and go until 10 p.m. Saturday night. If you've already attended office hours, I have a feeling your previous link will get you in. If you're having trouble getting in, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit attend a, no, no, uh, uh, office hours. Hit the office hours menu and you'll get a link and there'll be conversation, comedy, music, lectures. You'll meet some really great people. Thank you so much. Remember to stay strong and most importantly, protect the weak. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Okay, all flight controllers, go no go for landing. Retro, go. Fido, go. Guidance, go. Control, go. Telcom, go. GNC, go. Econ, go. Surgeon, go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle, Houston, you're a go for landing. Over. I do understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. 